What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hello everybody and welcome, yes, welcome back to The Iron List. This is our list podcast. <laughs> Sounds like you're about to interrogate the Iron List. Yes. Where were you on the night of the 13th Iron List? Put the hot lights on the list. Yeah. And it will cough up titles. Anyway, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Wrap. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I write for Slash Film. Hmm. Uh, Quite a lot, actually. Very prolific. Yeah. yeah. I, I was very proud of myself. I, I, As is my want, I wrote a Star Trek article over mm-hmm. there about pop music in Star Trek and how, mm. how it's always weird. Yeah. Try to put it, kind of, it kind of breaks Star, your yeah. reverie when they're like hyper aware of something that's yeah. contemporary. Uh, when they put uh, Sabotage, the Beastie Boys Sabotage in the 2009 Star Trek movie. Well, because that's, they're saying... That's weird. Well, because when you think about it, how much, how much art are we readily familiar with mm. from in Star Trek is hundreds of years ago. Yeah. A, little, a little. But what you're saying is that, and you're making a statement that in hundreds of years, the Beastie Boys will still be considered classic music, which is right. a bit of a, a swing. Like the, you're, the, the, you're making uh, a gamble there. The one that really got me is in Star Trek Discovery, they're listening to We Are Trying to Stay Alive by Wyclef Jean. Wow. Uh, it's like from 1997. It's like, that's okay, already that's, very dated. Yeah. <laughs> like, that, that's not one that goes on a lot of party mixes today. No, no. Maybe Wyclef will have a big resurgence. I don't know. I, but, feel, um, I feel like Shakira is actually, according to my local radio stations, they still play like Hips Don't Lie constantly. Okay. That's a very, you know, I feel like Shakira is a better gamble than Wyclef uh, at this uh, point. But anyway, we're, but, off, uh, we're uh, off on the beat. Well, uh, but the point I was going to make is at the, at the head of my uh, my Star Trek article, mm-hmm. uh, because of the Beastie Boys sabotage, I found a, a photo of Valeris from Star Trek VI, uh-huh. who has a speech about sabotage. Ah, uh, yes. And I, I hope that Trekkies could make that connection between the Beastie Boys well done. and Kim Cattrall. No, no doubt that's why the song was in. The J.J. Abrams version? I like okay. To, I like to think somebody was doing like a deep oh, cut. There you go. But they weren't, because no. nobody gave that movie too I much thought. I don't think it's the case. In any case, this is The Iron List. This is a monthly podcast here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, where we ask our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where you can listen to our podcasts ad-free and get a whole bunch of exclusive shows and Discord hangouts as well. Uh, there's a poll every month, and you get to pick a top 10 list idea and we will take whatever idea wins and we will do a big epic podcast in which Whitney and I each do our version of that top 10 list. We do not discuss it in advance. We do not plan these things out. We just each do our own thing. This month, it is the latest in what I am increasingly thinking of as our Sesame Street series in which we are brought to you by a particular letter. Mm. We have been doing <laughs> the best movies that just happen to begin mm. with a particular letter of the alphabet. They have nothing else in common necessarily other than their movies. Uh, and uh, this time we have, we're, we're, we're chugging along. We're getting through the alphabet. We are 
going to present our picks, our top ten lists for the best films that begin with the letter G. G? Yeah. G? Yes. And, uh... That, it, that, that was a, a very oblique reference to um, Hollywood Steps Out. I don't know what that is. It's an old, uh, old Looney Tunes. The one with all of the uh, 1930s Hollywood stars and characters. Oh, I haven't seen that in forever. Fair oh, enough. Right. I, it went over my head. I'm, right. I, I, you already won. Well, <laughs> uh, watch that cartoon. It's very good. It's called Hollywood Steps Out. But, uh, yeah, so the way we do top ten lists here at the Critically Acclaimed Network is a little different from the way most other places do them. Um... We are of the opinion that if a movie makes our top ten list, it is pretty much getting our highest recommendation already. Mm. So we don't rank them. The number nine isn't a movie we recommend you see more than our number ten. The only difference is our number one is the film that if you forced us to choose, hey, the sun will go supernova and kill us all unless you tell us what you genuinely think the best movie that happens to begin with the letter G is, that's our number one. Mm. But our number two through ten... It's a nine-way tie. Yeah. We just want you to see all these movies. <laughs> we love them to pieces. We This is a fun opportunity to recommend a crop of films that otherwise would probably never be in the same conversation together, as opposed to most other top ten lists where they're often categorized together mm-hmm. and they're frequently compared. So I enjoy these quite a bit because we tend to get to recommend a whole bunch of weird movies a lot of yeah. the time. Yeah, Even if they're good. well-known movies, it's odd to put them together. If, if, if you're like us and you collect a bunch of uh, videos, DVDs, and Blu-rays, mm. uh, and you uh, think to store them alphabetically, yeah. you'll find weird shelf mates Indeed. sort of standing next to each other. Yeah. Uh, and on that note, Whitney, is there anything else you want to talk about before we get going? Nope, I want to get started. Let's get started. Tell me the first film you want to talk about. Your number 10, if All you right. will. Um, I'm going to start with the obvious one, the one that you know I'm going to include. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm starting with Gremlins 2, the new batch. Um, you know, it's on mine as well. Okay. <laughs> uh, we We're did off a, to a good start. We did a commentary for Gremlins 2, the new batch, because it is the apex of cinema. Uh, <laughs> it's been downhill ever since 1990. He, he, he sounds like he's joking, but he actually means that Gremlins <laughs> Two is yeah, it's a sequel to mm. a popular film. It rehashes various elements of that film. Uh, it is also just one of the most boundlessly inventive, mm. weird, ambitious mm. horror comedies ever produced. Yeah. I would put it on par with Bride of Frankenstein, which is also considered one of the best mm. horror movies ever made. Uh, it's got everything you want from a film. Uh, it, it's. Boundlessly imaginative is, mm. is an, another way I, I, I definitely describe it. It's a sequel yeah. to a popular film, but I feel like Gremlins 2, uh, Joe Dante famously didn't want to do it. He yeah. said, we're going to make a Gremlins 2, would you like to? And I, from what I understand, he only agreed to do it if he got to do whatever he wanted. Yeah, carte and, and what he wanted to do was kind of uh, take the piss a little bit. Yeah. Not just out of Gremlins, because uh, there's dialogue in Gremlins 2 to the effect like that makes fun of the arbitrariness of like the gremlins rules. Uh, there's a whole scene where they talk about what does it mean to feed something after midnight? Yeah, like, when is it not really after mean? midnight? Yeah. What if you cross a time zone with food in your teeth? Yeah, where does that, unless, and, and what and, if you eat before midnight, but then you find a bit, bit of tea food afterwards? And, and listen, the, the questions people probably asked Joe Dante. I, we've asked Joe Dante yeah. those questions. <laughs> and his answer was, we asked those questions in gremlins too, to which I said, you didn't answer them in gremlins too. <laughs> and then he changed the subject again. <laughs> Cause he doesn't want to talk about it. I still care. maintain, I think he doesn't care. I still maintain, listen, the, rules that they had for gremlins which to be clear mm. uh bright light hurts them sunlight kills them yeah. okay 
pretty straightforward. Not a lot of I mean, there are certain. Well, it's a vampire thing. It's a yeah. little inconsistent with how bright the lights have to be to hurt a gremlin, but whatever, it's fine. Uh, if you get them wet, hmm. they multiply. For every drop of water, they make a new gremlin. Yeah. So if you drop them in a swimming pool, they're going to make thousands of, if not millions, of gremlins. Mm. Um, bit of a plot hole there in Gremlins One. They're constantly in snow, and snow <laughs> yes, is but, ice. But but uh, Gremlins was made in California, and uh-huh. we don't know what snow is like here. <laughs> we we get really surprised when we learn that it's wet. <laughs> okay, that that actually is true, and that was my first experience of snow when I was twenty. <laughs> I actually got to touch snow for I, the first. I time. remember the first time I I've told the story before. We went up to uh, I was in film school, and we decided we were all gonna pitch into if we all. Thirty of us pitched in together in my class. Get like a cabin. We could get a cabin and Big Bear, and I think it was Mammoth. We got a cabin and Mammoth for like the weekend. It was like three days, and was not that bad. If once it was split thirty ways, Uh, and we drove up there, and I got out of the car. We were surrounded by snow, and for the very first time in my life, I picked up some snow. And my first thought, and I know how this sounds. Shit's cold. <laughs> like, in my head, when I thought of snow, I thought of, like, reading the newspaper with Calvin and Hobbes. Mm-hmm. I just imagined it was, like, just stuff. <laughs> it was, yeah. like, cornflakes or something. Yeah, like, just, like, newspaper, shredded newspaper, something like that. And it was just sort of like, oh, it's sort of rough. And, and in retrospect, of course it's cold. It's It's snow. frozen water. <laughs> of course it's cold. But I really didn't put that much thought into it until it was right in front of me. Um, but the other one is, if you feed them after midnight, they turn into monsters. Mm. And that's... I'm sorry, I think it's fair to say that that was weirdly phrased. Feed them eat after, after midnight. Well, eat when at, is it not after midnight? Where does the crossover? After it's dawn? Is it mm. noon? Is it one hour? Like, when is the one period of time? Can we clarify like from midnight, from midnight yeah. to when... Is it not okay to, to, to feed I, a gremlin? They, they didn't say. In my, in my brain, it ended at dawn, you know, midnight to dawn, yeah. in the middle of the night. You don't feed them then. Yeah. And and it's it's fairy tale tale rules. It's I like a that. fable. But um, fairy tale rules are usually pretty straightforward. Yeah, but, but even the first gremlins Don't wear those shoes. Is, okay, cool. Like, it, it plays pretty straightforward, and then the gremlins show up, and it just turns into complete chaos. Yeah. Uh, Gremlins 2 is just chaos pretty much throughout to the point yeah. where they literally break the film. Yeah. Uh, There's a really wonderful scene where it looks like the film melts and then like shadows of Gremlins appear as if they're in the projection booth mm. and they're like draped with the actual film. They are destroying cinema in front of us. This is yeah. Godard shit. The, the manager uh, of the theater you're in right now has to walk into your theater Tap Hulk the, the, Hogan the on the shoulder. Who, who's Paul Bartel, of by the way. Of course it's Paul Bartel. That's what he does in his spare time. He like goes into your theater, he taps Hulk Hogan on the on the shoulder and says, Excuse me, Mr. Hogan, there are gremlins in the in the projection booth. Would you could you do something? Mm. And the Hulk Hogan wrestling, you know, talks them down, like threatens to like beat them up and rips his shirt off, and the gremlins are like, sorry. And mm. then Hulk Hogan looks at the camera and says, Sorry folks, it won't happen again. Mm. Fucking genius. There's, there's a bit in this movie. There's a bit in this movie. The credits are rolling. Uh-huh. And this isn't one of those movies where it's like an airplane where there are jokes in the credits. Mm. This isn't one of the movies where the scene keeps going through the credits like the end of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's just the credits. Yeah. And then after a while, Daffy Duck just leans his head in and looks at the credits and says, long, isn't it? <laughs> 
And it is long, Daffy. I didn't know you were in this. Well, he he introduces the movie. In fact, um, oh, uh, right. at, at the very beginning... Um, I always forget about that. Yeah, there's that's an the thing about Gremlins 2. I've seen this movie multiple times and there's always stuff I forget. No. That's how densely packed it is. <laughs> the, the, the film opens as if you were going to have a, a Warner Brothers animated short. And yeah. we kind of do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what the Gremlins uh, are. Uh, Bugs Bunny is like riding on the, the Warner Brothers symbol. And yeah. They, uh, Daffy Duck says, no, you don't get to do that. I'm the star. I'm Daffy Duck. I'm going to do my ego trip thing. And he gets on the shield and everything goes wrong. He bumps into the the screen, uh, the big uh, concentric circles wrap around his waist and he gets really uh, stuck. Mm. And he says, well, we may as well just start the movie. And they do. They just start the movie. Even the cartoon like interrupts itself. There's no ending. Yeah. It, there's no ending, there's no beginning. It is the Finnegan's Wake of cinema. The the, the beginning touches the end. I love um, how you talk about Gremlins too. Gr- Gremlin, uh, there, there I is, love there's this how you talk weird, about Gremlins. This weird You're going to write the study. Criterion <laughs> essay for Gremlins 2. And someday, I, read it. I, I really hope I get to write the, the Criterion essay for Gremlins 2, the new batch someday, because it yeah. really is a, this weird uh, media study, this strange work of genius uh, that is dealing with cartoon language to deconstruct what cinema means in this like very kid-friendly way like little oh, yeah. kids could watch this it's, it's a little hev- it's a little intense maybe very little kids might be scared by like the spider gremlin oh yeah the spider there's, there's, a, there's scary, a couple of creepy bits but, but it's, also, it all turns uh, out okay it's also some of the best creature effects you'll see oh, in any so movie great. the animation on the talking gremlin is awesome wonderful puppetry uh, wonderful uh the costume design on the gremlins where they're all they're all wearing different things they all look a little different like you can always tell which gremlin you're looking at uh, even though they're basically the same creature, yeah. uh, it's a, it's a masterpiece of design. There's the a, humor is incredibly funny. The social satire is yeah. really biting. Yeah, there's a, yeah. a character in it named Daniel Clamp who mm. is clearly uh, he's, he's he's an Mar- amalgam of Rupert Murdoch and Donald Trump. Yeah, uh, not Rupert Murdoch. Um, Murdoch. Ted Turner. Ted Turner. Sorry, uh, because yeah, yeah. He's, like he has the the colorization of classic movies. That was a Ted yeah. Turner thing. Yeah, coming tonight uh, on the Clamp Network, Casablanca now in color with a happier, with a happier ending. ending. <laughs> Uh, there's a deleted scene, if you look uh, on the Blu-ray, yeah. um, where there's even some, like, chatter we hear, uh, and we overhear somebody talking about how Clamp would make a great president someday. Oh, God. Uh, so it kind of, like, bleeds into reality a little bit. A little bit. A little too much. But, uh, yeah, what, by the time the gremlins are taking strips of 35mm film and strangling Leonard Moulton, playing himself, <laughs> to death yeah. on camera, you, you realize that you've sort of passed through an aperture of reality. I want to give, just real fast, I want to give a quick shout-out to Leonard Moulton. A, mm. for doing that bit, which is very funny. Yeah, uh, it, because he, he genuinely didn't like the first Gremlins. Yeah, he gave he was, it a bad review. He, he's, he's letting himself be lampooned yeah. there, and it was very good sport of him. And also a good sport... He parodied his cameo in Gremlins 2. <laughs> for us. For a Schmodown entrance that we did. I believe it was the episode where we uh, played off against the Shire Wolves. And okay. yeah, we did this whole thing where we just got these little Gremlin dolls and we came in and we were being attacked by Gremlins. And like, we were kind of known for doing like big entrances. Be like, what are they going to do? So we just came in and we were being attacked by Gremlins. And if that was it, it would be a little disappointing. So we had Leonard Moulton. We, we, he let us come to his house and film him. Uh, we're not he close was, friends, but we've, no, we, we've we, met him. We know yeah. him to say hello, and he was very, yeah. very kind. He did not have to say yes. We would have been fine if he didn't. We would have been like, yeah, of course, you're way too busy, but he was super cool about it. And he did, we filmed like a 30, 45-second clip of Leonard Moulton reviewing our entrance and talking about how it's just this crappy reference to Gremlins 2, and he gave us no stars. What a wonderful well guy. Well Seriously, done. kudos to Leonard Moulton. Class well, act all the way. 
So yeah, I, I, I could I could expound endlessly on Gremlins 2, uh, but it, it, it is one of my favorite movies. I think it's one of the best. Yeah. I'd put it at number one, but I felt that was too obvious. It's a so, little obvious, uh, but I also think it's it's deserved, and you've made the, the great uh, argument for it. <laughs> so I think it's fine. But I... I it, it is what it is. But yeah, it, it made my list as well. I love the okay, pieces. Yeah. I think Gr- it's, Gremlins 2, the new batch. I think it's quite awesome. And I love the original Gremlins 2. I think it's also a damn near perfect movie, but it just Gremlins 2 is that much better. Uh, my number, I guess, nine, uh, since you, I also picked Gremlins, mm. my, my first pick that you don't know about. <laughs> okay. It's also a film that, like you and Gremlins 2, I've talked about a lot. Okay. But the difference is that I'm talking about a film that, unfortunately, for a lot of the time I've been talking about it, has been really difficult to find. Mm. Okay. But that's not the case right now, as of recording. I'm talking about Ghost Watch. Oh, go- Ghost Watch, the... TV the Russian film. No. Oh, I'm thinking of Nightwatch. You're thinking of Nightwatch. I'm not a huge fan of Nightwatch. I get it. It's not for me. Mm. Ghostwatch is a British TV movie from 1992. It was aired on Halloween night, 1992. And the, the idea is this. They took people who would actually do, like, live programming on BBC television. And they brought them in to do a fictional live program where they would have a news host and they would bring in experts on the paranormal to talk about ghosts. What is it like if ghosts are real? What does that mean? How would they manifest? And they send a reporter out to a place that is allegedly haunted right now. And it's kind of inspired by the Enfield poltergeist. Over the course of this allegedly live TV movie, um, we start seeing that the footage that we're getting from that house does maybe have some evidence of hauntings. And indeed, if okay. you... It's like cachet. There, there's actually, like, if you pause the movie at key points, and they, they did this very, very subtly, you can see reflections of ghosts in various mirrors. Or in the background in like a big crowd scene with a bunch of people like standing outside celebrating Halloween. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's super duper creepy the way they did all of it. At some point over the course of the film, it goes from being kind of a winking meta joke of a movie to being genuinely terrifying. And one of the things I love about Ghostwatch, and I love it when mm-hmm. any movie can do this, uh-huh. I don't know when the turn happened. I couldn't point to one moment where it's like, and now the horror begins. It's like, no, there's no Beetlejuice going, it's showtime. It's just gradually getting creepier and creepier until you don't remember when it was fun anymore. (laughs) Because it's genuinely frightening. And this movie never called its shots in its live performance. Hmm. It never, unless, you know, you just don't believe in ghosts and you assume it's, it's bullshit. Um... There was no distinct clue to the audience that it was a a fake. Mm -hmm. And as a result, there were one million phone calls to the BBC (laughs) that night. Uh, I love it. Yeah. Uh, There were enough children traumatized by the experience that it's actually been recorded in psychological journals as like a unique traumatic phenomena Hmm. uh it is really exciting and interesting filmmaking it's it's better if you're familiar with the uh television style that it's evoking so you can see how close it is uh but even if not and if you just treat it as like a period piece you'll get it 
Hmm. Um, but it's super great. It's super duper creepy. It's genuinely clever. Uh, and yeah, for a long time, the rights to distribute it were kind of complicated. It had a DVD release that went out of print. It was on Shutter for a while. They lost the rights to stream it. As of incredibly recently, it is currently available on Amazon and Vudu. You have to pay a couple of bucks to rent it. It's not like comes free with a subscription, but it is at the very least available, at least in America. I, other markets, I can't say. Um, so if you've heard me talk about Ghostwatch, and I know a lot of people who have asked me, how can I see Ghostwatch? You can see it right now. I highly recommend you do. It's creepy as shit. And don't forget, Christmas is a time for ghost stories. <laughs> There's that line in the song, there'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories. It's, Christmas is supposed to be a time when like the veil is lifted and there actually are more supernatural occurrences. So it's totally appropriate, even though it's technically a Halloween film. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Scares the pants off of me. I love it to pieces. Ghostwatch. Uh, what's your next one? Hey, Ghostwatch. Uh, I'll choose another horror. I'll choose a horror movie as well. Cool. Um, I, I have a, like... Uh, what, which one should I choose, though? I'm going to choose Gozu. I've never uh, seen Gozu. Yeah, Gozu is a, a film by Takashi Miike, who has made 650 million movies. This year. Uh, th this year alone. Yeah. One he, of the most prolific filmmakers you've... Just look yeah. at his ID page, how many features he's made. It's nuts. He's uh, he's slowed down. Yeah. Uh, I believe he has made 112 features. Uh, In the last, like, 30 years. Since, uh, like, 1991. So that's... Yeah. that's, that's he's it's like about three a year. Three and a half movies every I mean, you year. Know, I'm going to look it up. Let's let's yeah. actually get this this number down. Yeah. I'm very curious about But this. in the early 2000s, he put out... Uh, and I've seen a, a handful of his movies. Um, I don't know yeah. anybody who's seen all of uh, Takashi yeah. Miike's movies. Yeah. Takashi uh, Miike hasn't seen all of them, I'm sure. Uh, no, he's... In fact, um, sure he... he I, I found an interview with Takashi Miike where mm. he says that... He actually is like very skittish. You can jump scare him really easily, oh. and he doesn't like to rewatch his own horror movies because they scare oh, him. That's adorable. Uh, uh, he made only he only did a TV miniseries in 2022, but in 2021 he directed three feature films called Molsong Final, The Great Yokai War, Guardians, and Police Heroine Love Petrina, Challenge from a Phantom Thief, Let's Arrest with Love and a Pat. That's, <laughs> that's the full, the full title. title i love it oh that way it's a uh, sequel to i guess that's a series um okay. police heroine Lo uh love padrina mm. oh there was a tv show that he did okay. and then there was also uh, i think his latest thing was yeah. on disney plus which is like he's everywhere yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's he's, he's, he's done, done a, he's done a, all different kinds of genres did a it's really really wild. wonderful film his best film might be 13 assassins that's which a is a, a, tri movie. a tribute to seven samurai yeah he uh, did a blade and, of the immortal which is another great samurai movie he, um, he mostly makes crime movies. Mm -hmm. uh, he's done a few, like a few notable horror films mm -hmm. in the United States. He's probably best known for Audition, uh, the 1999 yeah. film. That was a big breakout. Yeah. He also does like some like family friendly genre stuff. He did the Phoenix Wright movie. Oh, if okay. you're familiar with that video game yeah. series, uh, he, he did. He did. Yeah, that, he did a really, yeah. really fun, surreal musical film called The Happiness of the Katakuris. Yep, uh, that's a really fun movie. And it's also got uh, a big uh, cult following over on the yeah, side of the pond. Yeah. yeah, and it's got some like stop motion animated stuff. Uh, that's a really great movie. I love yeah. Happiness of the Katakuris. Uh, he's done superhero movies. He did one called Zebra Man uh, yeah. about a guy who idolized a childhood superhero called Zebra Man and decided to become it. Uh, and then in the early 2000s, he did a film called Gozu, which is very difficult to define. <laughs> um, it starts out as a crime movie, and it's about uh, 
an aging Yakuza guy who uh, is given to wild whims that are putting uh, the, the syndicate at risk. He's make, uh, doing yeah. all these sort of uh, nutty things. So his protege is asked to sort of take him out into the country, back into the out into the sticks, and and assassinate him. Yeah, he does that. He takes him out into the sticks, but then he disappears. Mm. Like he just sort of vanishes out of a car one afternoon, and this young yakuza, yakuza guy doesn't know what to make of it, and he ends up hooking up with a man who has like a half of his face is sort of like bleached white and he says I'll, I'll take you on this journey to find him again but you have to stay at this really bizarre hotel and uh, you have to talk to these people he ends up uh, questioning the owner of um, of a convenience store mm. and in this really surreal twist she's not making eye contact to him he's like can you tell me about where he was and she's saying in a very halting fashion yes he was in here and he turns around and finds that she's reading off of cue cards ah. that are posted on the inside of the building and she won't stop reading off them so there's this weird, weird. dreamlike quality to yeah that's going really on. creepy and then gozu uh is a portmanteau that translates to cowhead and he ends up having a dream about a person with a cow for a head and the cow head licks him i mean that would uh, do it yeah it's it feels a lot like Lost Highway or David Lynch film and that you're kind of lost in this weird sort of dream space. Yeah. But Miike has much more of a sense of humor than David Lynch. David Lynch can be very uh dark filmmaker. Um Takashi Miike is a lot more playful. So there's a there's like, you know, poop jokes and some lightness. Uh when this Yakuza <laughs> person uh, reemerges, he does reappear, but now he is a a 22-year-old woman. Okay. Saying, uh, I'm I'm your I'm your master, but this is me, I can tell you everything about it. And now he has to figure out if he's going to have a romance with this woman who was previously an old man. And uh Yeah. Uh, so there's like some romantic tension going on as well. All I can imagine there, there's everything in this movie. <laughs> you've seen Wild Zero, right? Uh, yeah, I have seen with Wild Guitar Zero. Wolf. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's Guitar Wolf. Isn't Guitar it? Wolf. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's Wild Zero. Is just, we'll get to it when we hit the W's. I promise you. <laughs> uh, it is one of my favorite cult movies, and it is about a real life rock band called Guitar Wolf, and how they help a young couple uh, get together, help one of them overcome their transphobia, so they can be with the love of their life and, mm. and not be a dick about it, and also fight off alien zombie hordes mm. using magic guitar picks. Uh, it is one of the fucking greatest <laughs> movies of all time, and there's a great speech. It's, it's like, pretty fun. Yeah, there's a great speech like "Love has no genders or boundaries." Do it, and it's like, yeah, man. And then he like shoots guitar picks and zombie heads, and it's like, yeah, fucking awesome. Love that movie. Anyway, um, yeah, so I, I just I just want to yell that at the Gozu guy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, and 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 there's also some like really sick stuff going on in the movie that I'd rather not describe. Yeah, fair um, enough. One of the Yakuza bosses has a weird fetish for ladles, and I'll let you discover what he uses them for. I will uh, I will do that on my own free time. <laughs> uh, and so, some some rather unusual deaths in the movie as well. So it's, yeah. it's dark and it's violent and it's very, very strange. Mm. Uh, but it's incredibly compelling throughout. Um, yeah. I couldn't really tell you what it's getting at. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Like, clearly there's some sort of, like, themes of romantic tension and themes of duty uh, mm -hmm. when it comes to uh, a job that is not necessarily honorable because these are career criminals. Yeah. Uh, but apart apart from that, I don't know what, like, the, the symbolism of the cow is. Or uh, more than anything, it just feels really nice to be lost in this weird sort of 
very strange, almost whimsical dream space. I really like Gozu. Well, you pick this like weird, surreal thing that's kind of hard to define. And my next pick is actually, I think it is one of the best constructed Hollywood movies. Okay. Just, it's got every single thing a fucking movie needs. Mm. It is a great love story, a great premise, wonderful performances, Tons of memorable sequences. You know, I think uh, Ebert had that thing. A great mo- uh, a great movie has three great scenes and no bad scenes. Okay. <laughs> well, this movie has like ten great scenes and no bad scenes. Uh, this is Jerry Zucker's Ghost. Okay. Ghost is a movie that when it came out, there is like, you, you, unless you were there, you do not remember how much of a monster this movie was. This movie was everything. It was Patrick Swayze at his prime. It was Demi Moore just as she was really breaking out. Mm. It was Whoopi Goldberg in her prime. She won an Academy Award for this. Uh Also won an Academy Award for its screenplay. Um, And yeah, this just became the ghost movie. Patrick Swayze. It was like one of the biggest hits of the year. It was a gigantic smash success. It had a ton of Oscar nominations. It won two. Pretty good. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so the, the plot is, is this really simple. Uh, Patrick Swayze is a banker. He's in love with an artist played by Demi Moore. Uh, everything's going their way and then they are mugged and he is killed. However, when he gets up out of his body, like a ghost, uh, there's a you know big opportunity for him to move on and he decides not to. And he starts following his, his ex-girlfriend around or his girlfriend, I guess. Uh, and... He tries to figure out how, as a ghost, he's supposed to go on with his life and actually connect with humanity again. And we learn the rules of being a ghost. There's this incredible sequence where he's on a subway and suddenly someone can see him. And it's Mm. the amazing Vincent Chiavelli, who is one of the great character actors of all time. And you'd, You'd recognize Vincent Chiavelli. You would absolutely recognize Vincent Chiavelli. He is furious that Patrick Swayze is on that subway and it's all of a sudden it's terrifying you think this guy is like well nothing can touch him and it's like oh shit get the fuck away from Vincent Chiavelli every scene with Vincent Chiavelli is brilliant turns out there's a whole thing about why he died and he's got to protect his girlfriend and he ends up uh, communicating with a spirit medium played by Whoopi Goldberg who unbeknownst to Whoopi Goldberg can actually see ghosts she's been faking it this whole time but it turns out she can really do it um Beautifully constructed, genuinely romantic, very, very clever. The visual effects are lovely. Mm. Like, they don't just, like, make them look good. They make them look magical in, like, a really wonderful way. Like, a way that just... I've said this before, I'll say it again. I'm phobic of death. And Ghost is one of those movies that makes you feel a little less bad about it. (laughs) Okay. Because I I don't actually believe that, that... Personally, this is me. I don't really believe there's anything after we die, but this is a lovely fantasy of it Mm. where you actually can care for your loved ones and you actually have options and there's rules you can wrap your head around and it's not about judgment Mm. necessarily, although there is an element of that towards the end, but the rules are pretty loosey-goosey. This movie just has everything. And in addition to being directed by one of the guys who gave you Airplane, which Uh is just odd like what a great shift in career um it's written by a guy named bruce joel rubin who had in 1990 the year ghost came out one of the best years any screenwriter ever had because the other movie he wrote that year Hmm. jacob's ladder 
That's a good movie. Yeah. Jacob's Ladder is one of the. It's also a great movie that is very much, uh, although in a more oblique way, mm. about death. Whether it's a dream or not, no, there's, a, not, there's an element. It's not oblique at all. It's explicitly about. Well, you death. know what I mean. I'm trying yeah. not to explain exactly how it is about uh, it, uh, but that's, like that's, it is, that's like the central theme of of Jacob's Ladder. Is, yes, uh, but like, but like, uh, in what way? And what yeah. is it trying to say um, about it? It's not clear until towards the end of the movie. That's kind of uh, interesting. It's, it's a terrifying that, film, yeah. but it's also a very inspirational film too. It's kind of interesting because Ghost is. Mm. Uh, uh, I actually know about what's it, Joel Rubin, uh, uh, Bruce Joel. Uh, Bruce Joel Rubin. Bruce Joel Rubin. Yeah. I wrote an article about Bruce Joel Rubin at one point, and oh. um, he's a practicing Buddhist, and he wanted oh. uh, to write a Buddhist text uh, in sort of a modern context, and that's what Jacob's Ladder was supposed to be. That's a fascinating um, fucking thing. Yeah, and and, yeah. and and if you know about sort of, uh, if you've read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you'll yeah. see a lot of the, the same catch. sort of ideas. But when you filter that through like more Western ideas, it takes on a different form, even though yeah. it's still very beautiful and it's actually yeah. very uh, but, profound. Uh, which is odd because I don't see the same kind of themes mm. showing up in Ghost. In fact, Ghost appears to be mm-hmm. very much uh, in uh, uh, a Judeo-Christian tr- tradition um, about sort of more so, yeah. purification of the soul before passing into the afterlife. It seems that it seems to care more about what we imagine the mechanics of the afterlife to be yeah. in terms of like what we hear about, like in like. On like daytime television, people oh, wait, you had a near death experience. Yeah. What was it like? There was a light. Yeah. There was a tunnel. These are things that they decided. Like, okay, well, what if that's canon? Mm. What if the thing? <laughs> no, but, like, but like seriously, we're, it's a fun we, way to put it. Ghost creates mm-hmm. a, a a way to look at the afterlife that is mystical mm-hmm. and spiritual. But also you can wrap your head around it and it has clear rules. Yeah. And there's something about that that is somehow not distracting and the way that they parcel off information and the way that that information is used throughout the story doesn't feel like we came up with world building. Mm. It's important when it's important in the story. It's yeah. just a masterfully crafted Hollywood movie. Mm. Uh, and I love it. And if you've That's... never seen it, if you haven't seen it recently, check it out. It holds up great. It's yeah. It's been a while since I've seen it, but yeah, that movie's slick as fuck. Yeah, it's just really gorgeous to look at. Um, there's a, a, a little bit of queerness in yeah. the movie. Oh um, yeah. Uh, there's a, a scene where uh, Whoopi Goldberg plays a medium. Yeah. And she's able to talk to Patrick Swayze, uh-huh. and uh, very briefly, uh, there's a, a romantic scene where she's able to take possession, or, or Patrick able, Swayze is yeah. able to take possession of Whoopi Goldberg's body. Yeah. And what happens uh, in in the scene is then Patrick Swayze appears yeah. on screen, and he and Demi Moore get to be a little bit intimate. Yeah, because she uh, doesn't believe that Whoopi, he's trying to get Whoopi Goldberg to communicate with his ex girlfriend because yeah. he needs to it's, for a variety of reasons, and she doesn't believe him, and he's, this is the way that they're able to finally get her to communicate when he. Mm-hmm takes over her body and it's still him and it's totally romantic and yet it is Whoopi Goldberg's body. It's yeah, uh, And they it's, don't make it a thing. It's not even, they don't make it weird. Well, they also don't film it. It's no. just uh, when, when the, it's, when it's the in, physical contact happens, it's between uh, Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore. But, but it's, it's implicit in the text. Yeah. yeah. It, and it, it's, it's explicit in the text. It's mm. just not visualized. Yeah. And, yeah, I get it. That part's, yeah, yeah, it would have been nice if they cut back and forth uh, a little bit, you know? Yeah. It, it also has know? some of the like most romantic Harlequin imagery oh, yeah. you'll find in any, uh, that, there's, the, 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 the pottery wheel scene yeah. was satirized yeah. uh, just that, because it became so famous. That 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 song, Unchained Melody, which, uh. by the way, is not from Ghost. Guess what movie it's from? Unchained Melody. Oh, it's called Unchained. Oh, Unchained. Yeah. There's a, there's a, it's from a prison movie. <laughs> it's from a prison movie in the 1950s that is literally only remembered for this song. 
the original watch it online you can just see the clip the original context it's like oh my love my darling it's they're talking I'm about hunger for your touch hunger yeah. for your touch because i'm in prison <laughs> and i don't know if i'm gonna see you again or if you're gonna meet someone else like it's a genuinely sad yeah, song and it just took a on a huge song, life of yeah, it's, it's beautiful i think it's one of the best pop songs ever but it, the way that that song transformed is fascinating to me it's a, a really good use of the song in uh, in Elvis this year. Uh, Where do they uh, use it in Elvis? It's right at the end. It's the last song they. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Sorry, sorry. There's so much music in that movie. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, I finally did see Elvis. By the way, Elvis Elvis is pretty great. Elvis is pretty great. It's it's one of the like just the it's, best it's top super... to bottom just biopics. Like it kind of just does all the biopic stuff, yeah. but it's really but well it's done. Ener- but it's like energetic. It's and good. really really well done. Like kudos. I, I missed it when it came out in theaters. Yeah. But kudos. It was totally worth checking out. All right, what's your next pick? Uh, well, I also have a film about uh, explicitly about death. Only it's it's far less romantic and it's not fun to watch in fact it's one of the saddest movies ever made that sounds like a cybold film Uh, it's it's uh it's an animated film called grave of the fireflies you know what Uh, i i have a confession to make as much as i love anime as much as i love studio ghibli uh i've never had the courage to sit down and watch this because i know enough about it yeah and i know it's gonna Uh, wreck me it's it it's a studio ghibli film it was made in 1988 uh uh, by isao takahata Mm -hmm. who uh isn't talked about in the same venerated terms as uh, his co-worker Hayao Miyazaki. At least in but America. he is just as good. Yeah, he's, so, a brilliant, um, he's a brilliant filmmaker. Yeah. And this is a film that's set uh, in the aftermath of World War II. Yeah. And um, it is, uh, it's about, specifically it's about the firebombing of Tokyo. Hmm. And, uh, or excuse me, the bombing but, of uh, Kobe. Okay. In World War II. And uh, these two children are survivors. And it is about their survival. They're, they don't have people to look after them. They have to find ways to uh, just sort of, uh, you know, scour for food in sort of these bombed mm-hmm. out cities. They're constantly in danger. Uh, and it's, it's this very harrowing tale of how uh, they just essentially start running out of resources. Yeah. Uh, and eventually they start moving into a cave. And uh, the the title comes from uh, just a heartbreaking, devastating scene where the young girl, who's about four or five. Yeah. Uh, is collecting fireflies and uh, in the cave, and then she collects them and they die, and she buries them, giving them the funeral that she imagines that her parents, who have been sort of just whisked off by violence, never yeah. got to see them again. Uh, she imagines they got a funeral at some point. They got a burial. So she's give, she's burying the fireflies in place of her parents. Um, I have to go weep. Excuse yeah. me a second. <laughs> I'll be back. I'm going to bring the tissues with me. And when I come un- back, there will be no more. It, it is it's just... The film is unbearably sad because <sighs> there's... And, and there's there's actually a, a, an intro, like an, an opening sequence, where we actually learn what the fate of the children is going to be right at the start. And it's not a rosy future mm. for these kids. So uh, don't don't prepare for mm. some sort of escape or some sort of redemption or some sort of happy ending. Uh, this is about looking at tragedy and just feeling it. Mm. Uh, this is an attitude that we don't get in a lot of American cinema. The idea that sadness is the is the end purpose of a, of a piece of art. Yeah, uh, we it's, don't... It's, it's, we, the idea is so much of American westernized art mm. is commercial, mm. uh, for better and worse, mostly worse. Uh, and as a result, there's a general tendency of 
uh, let the customers leave happy. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, you don't want them to go away the, sad, uh, or they won't want to buy another ticket to it because it didn't a, make them feel good, which is a very immature way to look at art. Yeah, there, there's this incessant, almost instinctual need yeah. in the United States. For reassurance. To, yeah, to, to be reassured, to... Uh, mm-hmm sell the idea that one needs to be joyful at all times. This is why I think uh, Pixar's film Inside Out is so novel yeah. because it's a film that actually uh, says there's a bo- place for misery. Boosts sadness yeah. and disgust yeah. and anger as like vital parts of yourself. I mean, look, this um, is part of the national character. It's really yeah. sucks. Like consider like all the things that like, you know, half the country is furious, mm. like furious at. And it's all stuff like, um, hey, did you ever notice that there's like institutionalized racism and we can do something about mm. that? Mm. And you see videos of people like at PTA meetings saying, I don't want my kids to ever find out about, about that. I want them to know that America is yeah. the greatest country in the world. And that, I'm like, there can that, be no unhappiness in my child's mind. Yeah. yeah or, or just, stuff. or just um, in this country, I would, the lie needs to be perpetuated because I don't know how to live otherwise. Mm. And I'm like, that's fucked up that yeah, that is international yeah, uh, character, and it very much is. It, it totally is. And uh, I feel like uh, when you go to uh, other countries, mm-hmm. other nations, film industries, uh, and I feel like uh, in Japan in particular, there is a streak of films that is very explicitly about lamentation. Yeah. That it's about... Uh, feeling the sadness and living inside of it and mourning the loss of something. Uh, and you could say that uh, because it is takes place in a city that was actually bombed, it's based on, you know, real, uh, real life tragedy. Yeah. That yes, of course they would make films about lamentation and loss and destruction. Yeah, because it's something that they experience. Well, you know, we had, uh, I think in, a more in, in Japan, I think we had more of an influx of films with that tone, at least in the mainstream than usual, mm. after 9-11. We, we started having more films yeah. about tragedy and more films yeah, about the, uh, coping. You'll notice, uh, if you think of a film like, um, it was nominated for Best Picture, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Yeah, uh, which, which is a very mawkish version of it, but it is about sadness. But, uh, it's about sadness, but notice you use the word mawkish. That's a perfect word for it. Yeah. That's how we could deal with our sadness, was in these sort of like, blaring melodramas yeah uh or uh you'll notice that there was a a huge influx of movies about like death torture and nihilism that's where Uh, we got it out yeah we 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 used the horror genre to deal with a lot of our super dark about it that was where we purged a lot Mm. of our fear and discomfort and our awareness of mortality and pain Mm. yeah so that's that's uh, I, I'm convinced that's where the torture subgenre came from. I agree. Uh, I think. I think. I, th- I mean, we've had that genre has precedence before that, but I think its sudden surge in popularity yeah. in America uh, is directly keyed into people were feeling some really scary shit really intensely, and people were very hyper aware of their own mortality and yeah. the mortality of the people around them, and as a result, you know. Scream wasn't that scary right now. In order to actually deal with our fears, our anxieties, we had to go to a bigger extreme Mm. in order to get there. And so we had films like Hostel and Saw, and Mm. we started having more successful, uh, you know, Japanese imports of their more more violent movies. Three Extremes Mm. came out around that time. It wasn't a big hit, but it was... Of that ilk. I had a short one of those. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Bring it all back. Yeah. But yeah, so I I totally agree. I think it's um it's weird and we need more of it. And one of these days I will sit down with Grave of the Fireflies. Mm. I no, just... I, 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 
<laughs> I'm, I'm a sensitive lad. And unfortunately, if I watch something super sad, it will completely yeah, overwhelm me sometimes. It, it, so if I can avoid it, if like I don't have to, I don't always gravitate towards it. I have yeah, to grave, be in the mood for it. Yeah, or I need fireflies. to for work. You know? Grave of the Fireflies will make your soul ache. Yeah. Uh, it's also a really good use of the medium. Yeah. Uh, it's animated. If this were a live action film... Um, it it might have been a little too specific. It's about these specific mm-hmm. actors. Uh, when you animate it, it becomes a little bit more abstract, a little bit more academic, more and symbolic, that, really symbolic, and in yeah. in a weird way, purer. If if mm. I can use that word, uh, it's actually a, a little bit more. Uh, plainly emotional. It actually makes a deeper mm. impact in animation than I think it would have in live action. Uh, so it it really plays all of its cards completely fairly. Yeah. It just happens to be a, 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 one of the most painful tragedies you'll ever see. Yeah. And there's something to be said for that. I think no, there absolutely yeah, is. And I'm glad, listen, I'm all, nothing makes me happier than mm. when you recommend a movie like mm. Grave of the Fireflies or, <laughs> or Satan Tango or whatever. Like all these like really heavy, difficult movies because it means I don't have to watch them. Uh, <laughs> I just recommended that. Okay, I know it's my, it's my job to make it seem appealing to you. <laughs> if I can describe it and you say I'm off the hook, then I'm doing my job wrong. It was a joke. It was a joke. It was a joke. I promise. I promise. Anyway, um, let's move on. And I want to say I'm not picking this, okay. but I really wanted this was gonna be like kind of what I wanted to do uh, before you pick Gremlins too, and I had to admit it was on my list. Oh. I was going to go Ghost Watch, uh-huh. and then Ghost, uh-huh. and then I was going to pick the first five minutes of Ghost Ship. <laughs> <laughs> where, where everybody gets sliced in half. Yeah, it's fucking amazing. Yeah. The opening of this, this uh, Dark Castle movie, like Robert Zemeckis and uh, a bunch of those Tales of the Crypt guys. There were like maybe five to eight movies from Dark Castle that yeah. came out in the early 2000s. The idea that were- was... Yeah, it was they were really going to make the they were going to make it was going to be a horror movie production company and initially it was going to be uh darker more contemporized uh remakes of William Castle movies. Mm. Uh William Castle, one of the great horror filmmakers, one of the great filmmakers really. Uh and his movies have actually are still really fun for the most part. A lot of them mm. have aged really well in that sort of hey, we're all going to have a good time in a theater kind of way. Dark Castle came along, and you know what? Most of the movies are fun. Not all of them are good, but a lot of them are fun. I would say that House on Haunted Hill remake is a blast. There's a lot of really fun monsters and stuff in something like 13 Ghosts. And they did this movie, Ghost Ship, and if memory serves, it was the first original one that they did. Uh, And um, it's not very good. But the opening five (laughs) minutes is terrifying. The cast Uh, is great. It's got Julianne Margulies in it. Like It's a good cast. It's fine. It's not particularly good, but it's got one of the best openings in horror movie history where it's on a cruise liner. It's in the past. We learn how the ship became haunted. Yeah, it's it's everyone's like dancing on the main deck in this very, you know, uh, what's that one song? Um, um, It's very Moonlight Serenade kind of vibe. Very chill, old timey. Um, everyone's dancing. A little girl is dancing, like with the captain, and she's like standing on his shoes and everything like that. And then we see that one of the metal cables, mm. which is pulled incredibly taut, gets knocked loose, and it flies across the dance floor, and it cuts everyone in half <laughs> at once. 
but it does it so fast they haven't fallen yet. So everybody's top halves suddenly but, like and they fall see, into a pool, and of you blood. see in their eyes as they realize what has happened to them. Mm. And it's one of the scariest fucking things ever. And the only one who survives because she was too short is the little girl. And she's looking up at the captain as he starts like blood starts spewing out of his mouth. And then the top half of him falls off right. It's disgusting. And it is over the top. (laughs) And that shouldn't be frightening, but just the tone of it and just how unbelievably shocking and horrifying that is. A plus cinema. All right. The rest of the movie, not so much. So I'm not going to pick that. That's an asterisk. What what ghost movie did you pick instead? I was very, very tempted to pick several ghost movies. I mean, there are a lot of good movies. I mean, I'm I'm going to mention these again when I do my renders up. But the original Ghost of Mrs. Muir makes Uh, me cry every time. Uh, The 1995 Ghost in the Shell is a fantastic anime classic. Mm. Uh, I'll even go to uh, uh, Ghost Dog Way, the Samurai. I'll even go to bat for the incredibly over-the-top to a sublime level. Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. <laughs> That's a movie where Nicolas Cage, as a flaming skeleton, gets to piss fire. Mm. And it's great. But that's not what I'm actually going to pick. What I'm actually going to pick is a movie that I think is great, but I think its legacy is complicated and I want to talk about it. I'm going to pick The General. The General. Okay. The silent film, yeah. directed by Buster Keaton, and I can never remember the name of his co-director. He did a lot of All the right. Buster Keaton movies. I want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, it is it Clyde Bruckman uh, from the X Files show. That's why I should have known. They that. Named, named after yeah. Yeah, they Bruckman. named. There's an X Files episode called Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. It's one of the best X Files episodes. And the character the, was named after the director. Yeah, and... a director of all these great silent movies. Um, the General is one of the most, like, blockbustery comedies ever produced. It is the story of a young man at the beginning of the Civil War. He's in love with a girl. War breaks out. And she assumes he's going to join the military. And he doesn't want to. All he wants to do, because he's a train conductor, is run his train. That's what he loves. That's what he knows. But he decides to do it for her. He's going to go in there, and he's going to sign up, and join the war effort, and he goes to sign up, and there's this really hilarious thing is he keeps trying to cut in line, and it doesn't work. But when he gets there, he says, uh, what's your name? He says his name. And then what do you do? He says, I'm a train conductor. And the guy at the booth goes to his supervisor, and the supervisor says he's way more important to the war effort as a train conductor than he is as an infantryman. So no, don't take him. But they don't tell him that. So Mm -hmm. everyone labels him a coward. He loses his girlfriend and he's super duper lonely. What happens is the opposing army tries to steal his train. They kidnap his girlfriend. He has to chase after them Mm -hmm. in like one of those push carts. And then finally in another train. Mm -hmm. And a series of incredibly elaborate uh, uh, comedy slash action sequences. Some of which would have killed him if he got the timing even slightly wrong. Uh, And then when he finally catches up to her, it's a chase all the way back. This is a structure that was ripped off in its entirety in Mad Max Fury Road. (laughs) It's a chase going in that direction. And and they get to their destination. And then it's a chase back in the other direction. Same fucking thing. It works beautifully. It is a great system. Both films are full of incredible stunts. They are kind of the perfect double feature. For many years, The General was considered a pretty unassailable classic. Mm. Um, 
I've heard it's still people taught like, in film schools. It's still taught in film schools. I heard Orson Welles say it's just like it's just one of the like, movies don't get much better. Like they kind of peaked with the general, and there's a lot to be said about it. The problem with the general, and this is something that we really haven't reckoned with enough, mm-hmm. but now when you watch it, it's kind of in your face. Although the movie doesn't explicitly talk about the politics of, of the Civil War in America, mm-hmm. uh, the hero is in the Confederacy. Yeah. That's something I left out on purpose. If you're unfamiliar with the mm-hmm. film, you were like, hey, why didn't you bring this up? I wanted it to save it for the twist. Because Hollywood has a lot to answer for in terms of legitimizing the Confederacy mm. as historical heroes. I, I knew you weren't going to say yeah. Gone with the Wind when you were talking yes. about like a Hollywood classic. No, no, no. There, there's, uh, there's stuff... Listen, Gone with the Wind is a handsome production. There are things you can point to as like, hey, that's a great shot. Yeah. Gone with the Wind is just unbelievably top-down toxic. It is an, a grotesque justification of slavery as a lifestyle for Mm. the pre-confederate south and how once that was taken away from the south everything went to shit and how in order Mm. to save the south they had to keep slavery alive and this is something that ava duvernay would end up doing a documentary about it's already gone with the wind they end up using prison labor because the Mm. constitution left that as a as a loophole yeah there's uh, yeah we we gotta keep and in uh and yeah and in the modern world uh it's What's it called? Um, mm. When they simply uh, ship jobs overseas, yeah, and uh, try to use like cheaper labor in other countries. They're trying with to di- they're, different currency values. They're, they're trying um, to use the closest thing they possibly can to slave labor because that makes people more money. Yeah, yeah. it's fucked up, and it's a system keep, keep, that we keeps need rich to address. People rich. And the thing is, Gone with the Wind was very, very much about affirming and reassuring the American mm-hmm. South that they were right, well, and it was. Um, Gave to the Confederacy this very romantic notion that it was sort of a, a, a look at the title, Gone with the Wind, a sort mm-hmm. of like romantic tragedy. Something yeah. grand has now passed. We, we tried and it was uh, a lost was, cause. Yeah, this, this kind of, yeah, the lost like cause, that. this like romantic yeah. lost cause narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of that language was yeah. uh, put into movies about and, the Confederacy. And when you consider how that sort of uh, uh, pre-Civil War South has been very much fetishized in a lot of media, look at Firefly. There's a, there's an episode oh, of Firefly yeah, yeah. It's a where they fiction series. there's a science fiction series where the episode of Firefly is uh, uh, they go to basically a a planet where it's the plantation South but it's all romanticized and everyone's like oh look at the pretty clothes and I'm like yeah, it's, yeah it, we're not really gonna talk about it are we we're just gonna it's, like it's let a, this be romanticized in a weird fucking yeah, way it's a western in space and the main character is mm-hmm. was on the losing side it's a it's it's a Confederate it's, war allegory yeah he's yeah. like he's like the the lost Confederate soldier that's sort yeah. of the romantic uh, western image now, that 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 show was going for. now the general mm-hmm. uh, you can say for yourself whether the general should get a pass on this I think it gets an asterisk. At the very least. Because the movie is just trying to be a story, I think in many ways, about like an underdog in the backdrop of war. Yeah. But they did explicitly choose to make the Confederate characters heroic. They never actually say what they stand for. Mm -hmm. They just say, oh, the hated North. But they never actually engage with the politics of it the way that Gone with the Wind does. Mm. Uh, So... On one hand, it kind of works as an abstract piece of filmmaking, but it cannot because that's not possible. Yeah. It is part of a system of Hollywood that normalized and then deified 
the Confederacy. So I'm not so much putting this on my list as I am asking a question. Should it still be there? And I'm not sure I have a great answer mm. for it. Uh, because I, it's hard to watch in some man, regards. It, because Just because it is so ambivalent mm. or ignorant or sadly uh, 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 actively mm. taking part in yeah, the, uh, something that was a problem. It's a film that is about the Confederacy that yeah. doesn't vilify the Confederacy. True. Uh, but it also doesn't venerate the Confederacy. And if you look mm. at the main character, mm. the, the Buster Keaton character. Johnny Gray. Uh, yeah, his name is Johnny Gray. Isn't that cute? Yeah. Uh, you can tell that he doesn't give a shit. No, it's, he's, he's not no. in it for anything that the South or the North stands for. He only does he it is, because, because he thinks he can't get married otherwise. Yeah, he, he's so, he, is, he just cares uh, about his own shit. He is a, a, a and I mean this complimentary, mm. this is a descriptive sort of character term. He's a hapless rube. Mm-hmm. He is swept up in something bigger than himself. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't really care about the war. And I think uh, you could say that that's maybe displaying a level of ignorance mm-hmm. about what was going on around him. Sure it is. Uh, we could also point out that people who are making films in the in the tens and the twenties probably were just casually racist because that was a, mm-hmm. an institutionalized part of society. It also was. I mean, it would have been about sixty something years after the Civil War, but they probably at least knew people who were alive during it or grew yeah, up with yeah. people who were alive and fought during it. Mm. So these are different. There's a different level of connection. Exactly. To the Civil War than we would have now. So uh, I don't think this is a film like Gone with the Wind or mm-hmm. or like uh, even worse, Birth of a Nation, mm-hmm. which is very explicitly trying to forgive slavery yeah. and trying to make the South seem like it was uh, standing up for something kind of noble that was mm-hmm. lost. I think it is about an outsider mm-hmm. who uh, doesn't really give a care about what was going on around him yeah. at the time and is actually engaged in actually a, a really exciting piece of cinema. Yeah. Uh, we can still engage with it as an exciting piece of cinema, but if you are uncomfortable with a film that it's set during the Civil War and is about a Confederate soldier that doesn't once bring up the politics of the war, mm-hmm. then this film will rub you the wrong. And I think it's and I think that's fair to point out, mm-hmm. and I think it's fair to say that, that we, we should be evolving beyond that. Yeah. And I think the best you could say, and I don't know the motives of every single person who made the film. Some may have had motives where they really wanted to celebrate the Confederacy. That may have been possible. Some may not. I, I honestly don't know. All I have is the text. Hmm. The best you could say for the text is they chose a backdrop and it was a bad backdrop. Yeah. The worst you can say for it is someone, if not someone's, if not everyone behind the production, wanted to create a heroic Confederate hero. Yeah, I, uh, uh, and I think, but I think if they had done that more consciously, I'm pretty sure they would have actively engaged with the politics rather than just had them. Yeah, but they clearly there's, want there's people who believe moment, those politics to enjoy those movies. Yeah, there's there's not a moment in the general where they say yeah. uh, how, how great the South is. Yeah. And uh, I think that um, mm. they're choosing war as a backdrop because that is something that movies do. Yeah. They're riffing on a, a, a common, recognizable film set. Yeah. It could have just as easily have been a Western mm-hmm. or a haunted house picture. Yeah. They chose a war picture. Yeah. Uh, I'm not I'm not trying to forgive the general. I'm trying to have an interesting conversation about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do want to point out that these kinds of decisions where, at the very least, people are deciding how much they want to piss off racists in the audience. Mm. 
happens a lot more than you might think. I was reading mm-hmm. about uh, the casting of Hans. We yeah, we can't lose the racist audience. Yeah, they, they, yeah. yeah, we don't. And this is something that people talk about. That oh, well, honestly, movies do fine without the racist audience a lot. But um, I was reading a behind the scenes thing about uh, Star Wars, and it turns out that before he cast Harrison Ford as Han Solo, George Lucas has said this is in one of the books about. It, I forget which one. You can look it up. Mm. Uh, he wanted to cast an actor named Glenn Turman as Han Solo. Mm. Uh, Glenn Turman, uh, his career obviously he never picked up as much know. as Harrison mm. Ford's. I think Harrison Ford he's a bigger, owes bigger, him some money. bigger movie star. Right? Uh, <laughs> but uh, Glenn Turman, he was recently in uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's fantastic in that movie. He was in. Um, Super 8, he was in John Dies at the end. Uh, at the time, what was, oh, what was the movie he had just been in uh, in the 70s? Hang on. He was in a pretty big breakout hit like in the in the late 70s. I want to make sure I, I give the right film. Um, it's right in front of me. Cooley High. He was in Cooley High. Oh, okay. Uh, Lucas wanted to cast him as Han Solo. Mm-hmm. But he knew that Han Solo was going to have a romantic relationship, or at least the start of one, uh, with Princess Leia. And that was going to be Carrie mm. Fisher. And he actually said, I, I was afraid that if we made uh, an interracial romance, mm. that it would become a thing. He, he said, I didn't want to make like a guess who's coming to dinner kind of conversation. Okay. And that right there is not a great look. No, that no. that was so important to you, you didn't give a part to a black man. Mm. Now, a lot of people make those kinds of conversations, uh, those make those kind of decisions, and they're always fucked up. Yeah, they're 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 based yeah. on um, based on fear. They're based on fear. Uh, it's it's been really obnoxious watching sort of the pendulum swing so far uh, in mm. the racist direction in recent years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when when a, a black actress is cast in anything, mm-hmm. you'll see this like very particular breed of noisy troll crawl out of a hole and saying, yeah. "Oh, this is clearly a political statement." A, a black woman exists is a political statement. Yeah, well, fuck you. And that's true uh, for any kind of yeah. representation, really. It's like, oh, yeah. you, oh, why are there so many queer people? Because queer people exist, you fucker. <laughs> the hell <laughs> everyone's gay no it's the world is more comfortable now and people can come out comfortably now yeah people it's, are, it's just as gay people, as it's always but been. people are fighting tooth and nail and it's 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 frustrating but anyway I, i'm getting we're getting really sidetracked uh but the general is a masterwork of comedy and of staging and it's really really incredible but it has a seriously problematic element and it's one of the movies that if we're going to continue enjoying it and teaching it we cannot pretend that's not there we have no, to actively engage with that and we have to act has the time come where the movie is simply uncomfortable to watch? Hmm. And I'm not sure I have the right answer I th- for that. I think I'm not sure I'm the person to make that call. Uh, I think that something like The General, like I said, because it's so hapless and because it is uh, so um, weirdly cynical about the war, that it's far easier to palate than you might think. Sure. Uh, because sure. it doesn't make it's any... more so than other films. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't, I'm not doesn't, sure it's easy. doesn't apologize or glorify anything about the South. I think it actually is kind of sending up the South in a lot of ways. I think it's pretty anti-war for the most part, yeah. but it's also a movie about, you know, it, it ends with him being respected as a war hero. Uh, yeah, which but, is, but because he did foolish things, like he lucked nah, into it. That's nah, the joke yeah. of it. I get it. I get yeah. it. All right. Anyway, complicated conversation. Mm. I, I'm I'm eager to hear other people's thoughts about it. Yeah, but anyway, I'm, I'm, we should move yeah. on. Uh, 
Um, I think I'll choose. I don't have any silent films on my list, and that's yeah. that's a failing of mine. Um, but I do have a, a couple uh, sort of Hollywood classics as well. Um, I'm going to choose a Best Picture winner. Ooh. Uh, and uh, I suppose it's only problematic if you know anything about the personal life of the star. Uh-huh. Uh, but this is a film that won Best Picture in 1944. It's called Going My Way. Oh, okay. Um, I was I was trying to remember which one starts with G. No, I get it And now. it's not Gone with the Wind. Yeah, uh, well, I, I figured <laughs> that one was pretty obvious. Are there yeah. any others that start with G? Grash. <laughs> well, green, green Book is the Oh, yeah, Green Book. One. Green yeah. Book. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Mm. Going My Way is better. Yeah. <laughs> Going My Way is better thing. than Green Book. Yeah. You really liked this movie. Did you see it for uh, the first time when we did our podcast? No, no, I'd seen it before. Okay. Um, yeah, we've been, we've been doing uh, all of. Uh, the best picture nominees on our uh, on, Patreon, on a Patreon podcast yeah. called uh, Only the Only Best. The best. And we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture in order. And we, yeah. a little while ago, uh, we did Going My Way. Going My Way uh, won Best Picture in 1944. It was the biggest grossing movie of 1944. It was a huge, huge hit. Um, and it, star- it stars... Um, uh, Fitz, what's his name? Fitzgerald. Uh, Barry Fitzgerald. Barry Fitzgerald. As a grumpy old priest. Yeah. His his character trait is that he's grumpy, and the church isn't running the way he likes because he's kind of stodgy and stuck in his old ways. He's very dogmatic. Yeah. Uh, and I actually... It's about two Catholic priests, and I'm not Catholic. The Godfather but, was starts with a G. What's the Godfather? I've never heard yeah, of that okay. one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking of another yeah. best picture that starts with a G. Sorry, the, go on. The Gesting. Um... <laughs> Sorry. It's fine. I made myself go It's fine. Um, I, I'm not Catholic, but I know what I know from uh, Catholicism is that it's, it's uh, it, as Christian sects go, uh, incredibly dogmatic. It's it's very yeah. rule-oriented. It's very hierarchy-oriented. You know, priests can talk to cardinals, cardinals can talk to bishops, or or however that works out. And, mm-hmm. and the only person who can talk to God directly is the Pope. You have to go up the ladder. Yeah. Uh, it's, it doesn't work that way in most churches, but I know that's Catholic. Yeah. Uh, and we should add a second, another layer on top of the Pope, just for fun. Like in between the Pope yeah. and God, like There's super a guy, Pope. <laughs> yeah, no, just just like a courier, just has to actually be the one who like just takes oh. the message to God. <laughs> there like, you go. I guess that's the Metatron. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> that that's the Metatron. There you go. It is actually, but anyway. Moving on. Moving, uh, but uh, this old Catholic priest is very stuck on the dogmatism of his faith. Mm. Uh, and he feels that everything should be very kind of dour and serious in the Catholic Church. And into his life comes... Uh, Bing Crosby, mm. who is also a Catholic priest, but he's actually a far more liberal Catholic priest. He's much more about mm. talking to people and welcoming in the poor and all of this sort of like... Mm. Um, Being very approachable. The, yeah, what the uh, old priests considered sort of like the un, uh, the uh, untouchable element of society. Uh, Bing mm. Crosby says, you got to kind of welcome it in. And Bing Crosby has to... Like, it's his job throughout the movie. Mm. He takes it upon himself to essentially change this guy's mind not in a mercenary sort of way not in a direct sort of way just in a way that he actually believes and he actually believes in uh, a very broad sense of christian gentleness yeah uh, a very very in, in a very positive way in a very uplifting way in a very helpful yeah. kind of way what do we do yeah. with all of these why don't we build well, homes and give you know, it's based on the out. idea that like the uh, church should be able to evolve yeah, with the yeah, times and yeah, in order yeah. to reach people in a way that people will actually connect with now, which yeah, is something I, churches can be very slow to do. Yeah, a, a friend of mine who is a practicing Catholic uh, put it this way. He said that um, the Catholic Church is one of the few entities on this planet that thinks of issues in terms of centuries. Yeah. How 
on like a really, really broad timeline. They're not yeah. given to whims of immediate public yeah. policy. Oh, are people talking about this uh, for the last 50 years? It's a fad. Yeah, 50 years yeah. is like that. That the, Not enough time has passed on the, something to, to for us really to really know for certain. change yeah. Catholic doctrine. Yeah. So um, that, that's why it's such a slow-moving entity in terms yeah. of like changing... Uh, policy or whatever the Catholic well in does. terms of what it's um, cool with in terms of yeah. like you know like what you know the general morality shifts over time and mm-hmm. usually it gets hopefully it gets kinder and more understanding yeah uh and but um yeah again the Catholic Church can be really fucking slow on that shit <laughs> like really yeah. speaking uh, but, of someone who was raised Catholic I was raised by uh, lapsed Catholics kind of so like so I was kind of Catholic mm. and then so by the time it got down to me I was an agnostic <laughs> like, that's did, how it did, goes did you, uh, you you took like communion though or you're an altar boy or anything like no, that no I was never or? an altar boy yeah. I was never an altar boy we went to church a few times I asked my dad once so hey why don't we go to church more uh-huh. like because we believe in God right and then that's like yeah we, we believe in God I'm uh-huh. like okay just clarifying that <laughs> um but we don't go to church why don't we isn't that kind of a thing why don't we go to church and my dad said well you go to church to be with your community the people in your community yeah and we don't like the people in our community <laughs> I don't want to hang out with them. The answer, the answer is misanthropy, son. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, just, I don't know. I didn't uh, like people I, at his church. I don't know. What are you going to do? But that's what I really appreciate about going my way is it is very much about sort of the evolution of, yeah. of a religious order. Yeah. Uh, and how... Uh, you know, many religions are very, very old and actually they do need to evolve and change and, you know, interact with the community in kind of this important way. It also, in terms of filmmaking, yeah, introduces a kind of character that I really like. Um, mm. The Bing Crosby character isn't the protagonist. He doesn't have to go through, like, in, tradi- in, in yeah, traditional screenwriting terms, he doesn't have the change. He doesn't yeah. have sort of the... the come to God moment as it were. Yeah. Uh, he, he's the one who has to sort of aid others, even though the camera is on him. Yeah. Follows him and, and you sort of, it's his yeah. narrative. He walks into other people's yeah. stories and sets them aright. Yeah. There's, yeah. Uh, I, I started calling that character, the benevolent helper. It's like the yeah. benevolent helper genre. Like the helper will yeah. is already a complete character when they enter the story. Yeah. And it's their benevolence that will sort of spread out into the world. And that's, a very inspiring kind of story to see. Yeah, I think I feel like that, that there's there's going to be a state you can see these characters as sort of mm-hmm. aspirational. There's going to be a state where you do finally have your shit figured out. Yeah, and that that's nice to watch. Whether I, or not it's realistic, it's nice to I, watch. I feel like that, and I'm not sure if going my way. I don't think it invented that. It might have codified it in no, some way, but, it, but it, it's it's it, kind of a good like one of the prime. It, examples it's a great example. It, yeah. It's a great example, and indeed there was a sequel to this movie, mm. which I actually prefer to going. Yeah, Gunway is the fine. The of St. Mary's. Yeah. Gunway is fine. It's a likable movie. It's very very sweet. It hits you harder than it hits me. I, I like going my way. It, lot, I can yeah. totally appreciate that. I have no I have no unkind words to say about going my way, other than I like the sequel better. Mm. Bells of St. Mary's finds Bing Crosby's character. Uh, going to another church. He has been sent to another place which is in trouble. And it's Mm. a church that is also uh, a boys' school. Mm. And it is being run by nuns. And one of the head nuns is played by Ingrid Bergman. And she, just like, it was a good time to be Ingrid Bergman. Like, every single thing she did. (laughs) I was in the next year. It was like 45, wasn't it? Yeah, he was was in like a, he was on a hit train. It was like Gaslight, Notorious, Bells of St. Mary's, Holy crap, what a great run. (laughs) Yeah, amazing run of films. Um, and she plays a wonderful character who wants to be a little bit more stern, but she realizes that in order to reach these kids, she has to meet them on her, on their level. There's a great bit the, where the boxing scene, yeah, the boxing a, scene is the great, the best scene. In there's the this kid in the school who is being like getting into fights a lot, but he can't fight. 
And so he's losing a lot, and it's not doing wonders for his self-esteem. And Bing Crosby is like, well, we, maybe we could teach him boxing? And she's like, no, we're not doing that. Like, but then on the slide... Because that's what he likes. He likes to fight. Yeah. And Bing Crosby's like, well, let's meet him on his level. Let's yeah. relate to him on how he likes to fight. And she and... refuses to engage with that, but secretly she sees the, the wisdom in it, such as it is. And she picks up... There's a great scene. She picks up a book on boxing so that she can learn about boxing. And the guy's like, okay, yeah, this is a book by, written by one of the best boxers in the world. He only lost one fight. And she's like, well, did the guy who beat him wrote a book? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's a funny fucking line. But she reads the book and then she tries to teach the kid boxing and she's like, okay, get, get your get your hands up. she's in the get, habit. She's like in your fancy outfit, footwork. Yeah. You know, like actually just bounce around a bit. And then she's like, come on, take a swing. And the guy socks her. Punch her right in the face. Just punches the Ingrid Bergman nun in the face. And she's like, oh, I... No, she, she like, she smarts for a minute and you can tell like she was going to cuss and then she's like, swallows it all. It's like... It's all right. It's all yeah, right. That's that's what you're supposed to be yeah, doing. Okay. That's you did it. <laughs> really wonderful scene. Such a great. It's it's wonderful. Ingrid Bergman gets punched in the face. Ingrid Bergman makes that movie for me. I love that movie to pieces. But going away is very very sweet. Mm-hmm. I, I would argue that that kind of storytelling actually became very prominent on television. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. And in some regards, there's there's always been like the cowboy who goes from town to town cleaning things up, and that's mm-hmm. but that's more violent. Yeah. But you would have things like Touched by an Angel, which yeah, is that every yeah. single week, you know? It's not my favorite show, well, but I, I get think, it, you know? I mean, going my way, even for a film from the 40s, is yeah. actually a lot less saccharine than something like Touched by an Angel. Oh, uh, which is yeah, a really, mostly, yeah. Which is a really strange thing to say about like, well, that's a mainstream a, hit film from that, the 1940s. Touched by an Angel was a, was a very Christian series. Yeah, it was... Ex- yeah. Explicitly Christian, yeah. and, 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 and in a way that was a little bit Christian, more. It's about priests. I realize but, uh, that, but I feel like Touch by an Angel was a little bit more proselytizing yeah, than, yeah. and not that it was. It was still network television; they're going to only do so much. But it was still more so mm-hmm. than I think going my way, which yeah. was very much we're going to pull these old fuddy duds in the church, kicking and screaming into the 20th century, whether they like it yeah, or the, not. The version of that I liked that I watched when I was a kid was a show that nobody refers to anymore called Highway to Heaven. Oh, with uh, uh, Michael... With Michael Landon. Michael Landon, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael I, Landon. God, was, I haven't seen that movie since it was on TV. He was an angel, yeah. and, but, he, but he like wore a leather jacket and was like really kind of the sexy leather, James Brolin type. The leather jacket confused me, and I swear to God, there was a time when I was a little kid, because I was a little kid in the 80s, uh-huh. where I thought Knight Rider and Highway to Heaven were the same show. Because <laughs> they were on at the same so time. So I'm like, what if the ghost a little bit like David They do look yeah. a little bit alike. They look like they could be brothers. They look like they could be brothers. If you cast them as brothers, you'd be like, yeah. Yeah, Michael yeah. Lent. He was in that one. He was in Little House on the Prairie. That was, was the one everyone knew him from. from. Yeah. yeah, that was a big deal. Uh, it shows nobody talks about anymore. I, I haven't yeah. heard a Little House on the Prairie reference for a long time. I, I'm mostly the book. I think the book is still somewhat yeah. read. Uh, but, but yeah, these, uh, these yeah. very gentle narratives about uh, these benevolent holy figures that yeah. help, they're actually here on the planet to help people out in small ways. Yeah, basically yeah. the Incredible Hulk without the fights. Um, <laughs> the show. Uh, but that, uh, anyway. so yeah, so it, yeah. It, in conclusion, going my way is exactly like the Incredible Hulk, but without the fights. <laughs> um, <laughs> next up. Oh geez, what do I want to talk about next? Uh, you know, I'm going to go back to we've been talking about some heavy shit. I'm going to talk about one of the funniest movies ever made. Mm. I, I'd be surprised if this isn't on your list. Okay, Galaxy Quest. Galaxy Quest is not on my list. What? No. Galaxy Quest not is even, not even on my runners up. What? <laughs> I, I enjoy, I enjoy Galaxy Quest, but I don't I don't love it the way some people. Oh my do. god, I love Galaxy Quest. So uh, there's a, there's a theory that went out about Star Trek movies. That the odd ones are all bad, uh-huh. and the even-numbered ones are all good. Yeah, uh, that's not strictly true. There are some okay odd ones, but the, generally speaking, 
Rathacon, Voyage Home, Undiscovered Country, Country, and First Contact. All winners. And one, three, five, seven, and nine at the very least had flaws and they weren't as successful at the box office. Um, and then everyone's like, but then Nemesis came out. That was an even-numbered one. That was supposed to be the good one. And, and that one bombed harder than any of the other Star Trek movies. Yeah, and it kind of seemed to reset the system and now number like 11, the J.J. Abrams Star Trek is considered one of the good ones and then right Into Darkness is the even-numbered one and it's a bad one and then mm-hmm. from and then Beyond is okay so that's an odd-numbered one and it's good. What happened? And I argue this. Galaxy Quest counts. So Galaxy <laughs> Quest came out between in, Insurrection and Nemesis and it reset the yeah. clock. So technically, Galaxy Quest is Star Trek Ten. Galaxy Quest is a comedy that came out in 1999 and it is about the cast of Star Trek, but not Star Trek. It's called Galaxy Quest. It was a TV show in the 60s. Very, very much framed after Star Trek. And you're supposed to watch the movie and think... It lasted one season and the actors are now only associated with those roles. Yeah, much like a lot of the actors in Star Trek were for many years. Um, You're supposed to look at the movie and go, oh, it's Star Trek. Alan Rickman, he's the serious actor who played an alien who had a lot of dignity and now everyone associates him with that alien. That's Mr. Spock. But he's not Mr. Spock. Um, the the gag of the movie is it's it's straight out of Seven Samurai slash Three Amigos slash A Bug's Life. Uh, a group of aliens has been watching what they think are historical documents of Galaxy Quest. And they have built their entire culture around Galaxy Quest and now they have space travel and their spaceship looks exactly like the ship from Galaxy Quest. The controls are exactly the same as the controls they had worked out in Galaxy Quest. Everything is Galaxy Quest. And they're being attacked by an evil villain named Ceres, named after critic Andrew Ceres. Mm-hmm. Uh, they enlist the crew of the Galaxy Quest to come back into the captain's chair and to all their other positions in order to save them from conquest. And the actors, initially, don't realize that it's fake. Mm-mm. And then they do realize no. They, they, the actors think it's all fake. They think it's all a gag. They think they're they're acting. And then they realize it's all real. And now they're trapped in their own show. Mm. <laughs> it is unbelievably clever. Almost all the jokes land really fucking well. Mm. Um, and yet the the beauty of it is, you can actually take the drama genuinely seriously. There are actual moments of pathos that the movie earns. Because although the actors in Star Trek never actually did anything that they did, they did inspire people to live by those principles. And over the course of the film, they realize that what they did as artists, though they may resent it, though they may have been typecast, that mattered. And actually embracing that they were part of a work of art that had that much of an impact on people is significant. Mm. Uh what a wonderful film. The cast is perfect. Like, everyone in the cast is fucking amazing. Sam Rockwell's really funny. In that Sam movie. Rockwell's really funny. Enrico Colantoni is the leader of the Thurm- of the Thermians. <laughs> does the most amazing voice. And apparently that was all him. That he, wasn't he in the script. Up, yeah, he came up with that on his own. We need your help. Like, he can't, can't quite speak English. Oh, I love it so um, much. He's such a great character actor. Um, the, the, the visual effects are really fun. It's actually got a good combination of practical and CGI. Mm-hmm. The aliens are actually, like, good old-fashioned, like, guar-type monsters. Stan Winston stuff, yeah. yeah. Really good-looking movie. Uh, uh, I love it to pieces. I think uh, it holds up really great. 
I don't love it to pieces. I, I, I like I it. You, I thought you did. No. What, no, what is it? What is it that never quite makes the jump? Uh, it's 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 not terribly funny. Um, I feel really? like uh, okay. I feel like it's a fun concept, but a lot of it's uh, sort of torn between a lot of crass jokes and a lot of slapstick stuff that falls a little flat. Um, I feel like the um, hmm. the alien design is fun, but some of the the gags with the aliens are really obvious and not fun. The big living mm. rock monster is, quite frankly, pretty stupid. Oh, uh, I think it's fun. <laughs> uh, I feel like there's a, a little bit more of a... It, it just it feels too colorful, too bubbly, too slick uh, to really make the humor land. It feels too friendly. Uh, the movie needs to be a little bit more cynical, I think, a little bit more uh, uh, down to earth about mm. uh, sort of its, its actors, mm. the actor characters. I would like to see a cynical mm. version of Galaxy Quest where there is a, there's a little bit more bitterness involved. Yeah. Um, I wonder if there is one. I'm trying to think of like, is there? Well, Seven Samurai, I suppose. But, well, yeah, but that, but that's but that's the literal version. That's yeah. the that's the unironic version. There's a lot of ironic versions of Samurai Samurai. Seven Samurai was the original film that was about people who were being attacked by invaders and they cannot defend themselves, so they hire people to defend them. It is a mm. trope that caught on, and there's a lot of unironic versions of that. But then there were also joke versions of that where they would enlist people who looked like they were brave defenders but were not three mm. amigos is an example of this bugs life is an example yep. of this galaxy quest is an example of this uh so those are the ones that are sort of that that sort of commentary i guess i'm trying mm. to what is what, there's got to be one where it's like that but it's not yeah i don't know i'll have to think about that but anyway um, yeah, I, I feel like i feel like galaxy quest was um it was warmly received at the time. It got good reviews. Yeah, uh, it, it was, was a crowded a mo- year. Was a 99 was a great hit, yeah. year for cinema, and it kind of just mm. was treated as like a pretty good studio film. Yeah. And, but and, it grew in estimation over time. Yeah, and, and it's a pretty good studio film that I think got over-rescued. I think people kind oh. of leapt to its defense a little bit too hard oh. to the point where it's now being venerated as a classic when really it's just a pretty good studio movie. Uh, that, that, I disagree. That, you know, you, you can watch it, enjoy it. I, yeah. I'm not going to say, you know, discourage anybody from watching mm-hmm. Galaxy Quest. I think it's quite enjoyable. Yeah. But... It's far from one of my favorite movies. Okay, well, you know what? Fair enough. Uh, I disagree. I actually think it is just that good, but fair enough. All right. All right, moving on. Well, if you chose a film from 99, I'm going to choose from something right nearby. I'm going to choose a, a 2000 movie. Ooh. Uh, by, it's the first film from uh, one of my fav- favorite filmmakers, David Gordon Green. Ah. And it's called George Washington. I've never seen uh, George Washington. Oh, you haven't? Oh, my goodness. No, um, I, always, I always meant to get around to it, and it never comes up. David Gordon Green is uh, quite an interesting filmmaker <laughs> uh, because he started his career strongest uh, which yeah. rarely happens. Usually uh, a filmmaker, if you look at sort of like the grand filmography, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, so-called great filmmakers, they'll start with sort of experimental fare. Mm-hmm. They'll get into sort of start exploring their interests. build steam over time. And yeah, and then they'll sort of hit their stride at some point in their career uh, f- a little later than the start. I feel like this happened to a lot of uh, when festivals started taking over mm. Uh, the industry a lot more. There was this real uh, move to discover people at festivals, find these great first films. Yeah. And then what would happen was you would find those great first films and some people would continue making great films or they would get only get better over time. But there are also people who were picked up, lauded, and then they were thrown into a studio system yeah. and they didn't necessarily thrive in that environment. Some got out of it, some didn't, some thrived. But there are a lot of people who, like, they... A person I think of as a good example is Ed Burns. Okay. Ed Burns was a filmmaker who wrote, starred, and directed a low-budget uh, ensemble dramedy called Beautiful. The Brothers McMullen. Okay, I was thinking of Beautiful Girls. That was a later film. That was, that was later, and that was also uh, Ted Demi. 
But it's a very Ed oh, Burns right. film. Oh, my gosh. It's okay. a very Ed Burns film. They're, they're definitely mixed, of a piece. I mixed them up. That's, they'd that's be a, on me. They'd be a great double feature. Ed Burns made a movie called The Brothers McMullen. It's a pretty good movie uh, about a group of brothers, the McMullens, uh, and their various relationship foibles as they are very different people and they're in very different points in their lives. For, it's a very talky movie. It's yeah. a very talk. It's a pretty good movie, honestly, of that era when there was a lot of stuff like this, the, the Battle Rockets, the Whit Stillman type stuff, just people in the 90s talking about their relationships uh and everyone thought he's gonna be the next big thing he was not uh he continues working mm -hmm. he actually had some pretty good success as an actor you might remember him as one of the main characters in saving Bob ryan but his directing career never became a big deal mm -hmm. the way a lot of people assumed he was so yeah. he's another person i would argue their directing career peaked early yeah, I, you know? I suppose so. You know, yeah, that, 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 I think that happened I, more I think the, with fair. the. I think it happens with um, some festival filmmakers. Yeah, and we don't um, talk about them as much anymore, so they're less yeah, they, easy to think of. But yeah, David Gordon Green's best movies are his first four mm. uh, because he did George Washington. He followed that with All the Real Girls, this yeah. really aching romance. Uh, he did um, Undertow, mm -hmm. which is this kind of noir chase movie. Uh, most of his films are set in North Carolina, where he's from. Yeah, and then he did uh, Snow Angels, which is really fucking intense. Yeah, uh, with Sam Rockwell and Kate Beckinsale, and uh, there's. All, all of these early films deal with uh, the way a community deals with local tragedy. Yeah. Uh, which is why his film Halloween Ends is actually more in keeping with a lot of his earlier films. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, well, I feel the same way about Halloween Kills, but fair enough. Uh, but, but Halloween Kills sucks is the problem. <laughs> I like Halloween Kills. Like, okay, it has this interest in it, but it's a bad movie. <laughs> I do I not just, like Halloween. Listen, kills. Say what you will, it's of a piece. That's all. It's of a piece. I I, I like Halloween. Of those, of the three, he made three of the Halloween movies. Uh -huh. Of the three, I like Halloween Ends the best. Weird. I feel like uh, the the one that is just called Halloween is like it's like he's doing a cover song. Yeah. He's just covering John Carpenter. He's doing those things, and mm -hmm. he does it effectively. But where's you? Where's yeah. the original story? Where, what, where, what's your uh, take on the Babysitter? I didn't see the sitter. I'm sorry, just the sitter. Yeah, sorry. which which is a, a more or less a remake of Adventures in Babysitting. Yeah, except it's Jonah Hill class, and everyone yeah. in it is a monster. Like every yeah, it's just it's, really crass. It's and a gross. really hard to watch movie. Actually, I do not care for it. <laughs> it was just kind of a joke. I didn't mean to. But yeah, he did uh, stoner okay. comedies like Pineapple Express and yeah. Your Highness. You know, these unexpected things. Yeah, uh, he, he did. A, he started his career with these really soulful indies, and his very first film was called George Washington, mm -hmm. about a bunch of kids in North Carolina. Uh, who are just being kids. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very uh, very storyless, the movie. It's mm. actually very much about the experience. And uh, uh, David Gordon Green has a very sensitive eye to um, a very particular form of nostalgia where you remember like the most important summer of your life. Hmm. Um, there's another nostalgia piece that came out earlier this year called Apollo 10 and a half. I which really is, like that movie. Like I, I like Apollo 10 and a half. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. But um, yeah. Uh, that one's very much about memories, but those are very pleasant memories. George Washington is about all of them. It's about sort of the, the positive uh, experiences mm. and also the negative experiences. And in fact, this is an, uh, a film about how um, the main character, George, uh, accidentally kills one of his friends. Oh, wow. In an accident. Uh, and nobody's around to witness it. So oh. it becomes this thing where you know how much do we confess to with their kids these kids are 12 
and they they're now responsible for a death. But death is also part of of their community. They're incredibly impoverished. Someone might die in their community, a homeless man, and nobody will come pick that guy up. So they'll just yeah. go and see the dead guy. Yeah. Uh, so death is kind of hanging over a lot of these people, and um, and yeah, the the main character George kills somebody, and they decide to hide the body. He's twelve. He doesn't know what else to do about this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and in a really kind of they have their their solutions are all very twelve year old solutions. So we're sort of really getting to know these characters and uh, sort of the 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 tragedy that they're going through, but also a lot of the just the memories they have, the people they're dating, the texture of the ground they're walking on, the yeah. sense in the air that they're sort of walking through. It's a very tactile movie, uh, and. It, it really kind of puts you in the place and doesn't judge the characters. There's no melodrama in a movie like this. Yeah. It's just about the experience of it. And uh, sounds, sounds neo realist. It, it's, it's incredibly realistic. I'm not sure yeah. um, if there was actually this like little uh, mini wave because between George Washington and Lynn Ramsey's film from the year before called Ratcatcher. Yeah, that is an excellent double feature, and they came out right next to each other. Um, and I, I love movies that are about kids and the kid experience yeah. without succumbing to what we were talking about, that co- sort of mawkish over-focus on joy that yeah. you get from a lot of American cinema. Yeah, yeah. It it's about really sort of how, how broad and textured and difficult and fun life is for a little kid uh, and how it's <clears throat> not always rosy and how kids can be really sort of casually cruel. It doesn't... But at the same time, David Gordon Green is not reveling in their poverty and mm. he's not fetishizing their misery. That's Harmony Kareem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah he, <laughs> that, that's that's yeah. Gummo. Gummo yeah, is a yeah. movie I like for entirely different reasons just because of yeah. the daring filth it presents. But uh, th- that's not what George Washington is. George Washington is actually incredibly humane and incredibly sensitive. Uh, it is a crackerjack of a first movie. Wow. And... David Gordon Green did fulfill his promise. He made four excellent movies in a row, and now he's trying out all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. He's made stoner comedies. He's made horror movies. And, and, and I want to make. Uh, I, I want to. I'm curious if you agree with me. I think you will. Um, although you're arguing that he was on like just that first four film streak is uncanny, and yeah. maybe it is. I haven't seen them all. Um, I, I I do think he's made some good films since. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it just, it just that that's a streak you can't continue for forever. Very few mm-hmm. filmmakers can keep that going that long. Um, and I would, it's, I will go to bat for Mengelhorn. Mengelhorn is quite good. Mengelhorn is might be Al Pacino's last great performance, as far as I'm concerned, at least so far. And, like, I can't and think Harmony Corrine is in that one. Oh shit, you're right, he is in that one. <laughs> Forgot about that. That's weird. M- Mengelhorn uh, stars Al Pacino as a retired, like he was like a football coach or something, like a hmm. like a high school coach of some kind. Okay. And everyone in town has like a story. About him, like some kind of urban legend about him, like some cool thing he did. Yeah. But he's actually just a normal, boring, lonely guy. Hmm. And it's just him trying to go about his business while he's still got this weird imprimatur of people around him thinking highly of him. Hmm. It has a wonderful ending. The ending of Manglehorn is the, 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 the really the last shot of Manglehorn is really great. It's really great. I love that ending to Peas. It's one of my favorite endings to a movie in the last like ten years. Um, there's a, a few. 
David Gordon Green really excels, I think, mm. uh, when he's letting people converse. Yeah. When he's trying to be melodramatic, I feel like he he doesn't have a handle on that yeah. quite as even, much. Even like his comedies, uh, when you look at something like Pineapple Express, mm. the funniest parts are just stoners talking to yeah, each other. Yeah, when they're just sort of hanging out yeah. and conversing, and it's and all then, very natural. And then when something like really like badass happens, like there's a shootout, it's funny because until then, this was just stoners talking to each other. Yeah. It's not funny because they're shooting each other. It's funny because now they're doing that. Like something very movie is now suddenly happening yeah, in this otherwise very natural world. Yeah, that's why that but movie yeah, my, works as well as it my does. My favorite yeah. scenes in, in that first Halloween movie you did is when people are just sort of like hanging out in convenience stores and yeah. playing pinball. Very brief scenes, but it's like, oh, there there you are. It feels there, like Haddonfield is a community. Yeah, you know? yeah, like, yeah, yeah, that's the best part of it. Anyway. And I feel like that's a big part of Halloween Ends, is uh, sort of how the community is now, like, tainted in this weird way. I, I feel um, like it doesn't explore it very well. I feel like it gets, it mentions it, and then it gets distracted think, by the side quest. I think in, in, in emotionally, it mm. it lands. And the, the the thing I like least about Halloween Ends is the ending of the actual... Oh, the ending doesn't work. ...where yes, they try, no. to, try to make it turn into, like, this big sort of action climax. Uh, yeah. David Gordon Green also did a few... Like just sort of mainstream Hollywood melodramas. He did a film called Stronger with yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal. Our brand uh, is crisis. And he did Our brand is crisis. Yeah, yeah, this kind of biopic which has none of his hallmarks. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he's a very diverse filmmaker. I'm glad he's trying a lot of stuff. His next movie is a remake of The Exorcist. Uh, we'll see Odd how he does choice. with that. Yeah. yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. Uh, so he can do. He's an artist. He can do whatever he wants. But yeah. I will say that those first four movies just are kind of like the the as far as what i've seen kind of like the pinnacle of what he's capable of doing and he came out right out with george washington and george washington is just a beautiful experience hard little harrowing mm-hmm. uh it does look at mortality and death and poverty in unflinching kinds of ways, but it's all the admirable for it. Okay, well, uh segue. Uh speaking of mortality and being admirable and stuff. Yeah, you, you ever see the game uh, the David Fincher film, The Game. Yes. Yes, I have seen The Game. You know my movie Rules? The Game is pretty good. The Game is great, and it is yeah. really overlooked in his filmography. Like, well, uh, I, I remember when it came out. It was, like, it was the late 90s, still, mm-hmm. and it was after Seven, uh, seven mm-hmm. which was a huge deal. It's difficult to explain how big Seven was. Mm-hmm. Like That is one of the dreariest fucking movies you'll ever watch. And it was a massive hit film, and mm. it was enormously influential in terms of its style, mm. in terms of its tone. Uh, that kind of dictated for a lot of people like what thrillers and sort of grim and gritty would be. And we're still seeing yeah. it now. The Batman takes a lot of its cues from Seven. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I remember that brief period where every thriller was ripping off the opening credit sequence in Seven. Which is a, kind of a... It's a Nine Inch Nails music video. They play, they yeah. play a remix of Closer, yeah. uh, the Nine Inch Nails hit. and uh, But yeah, it's like this like quick-cut, jerky kind of it, montage. It, it's the killer in Seven putting together like all their journals and all their really creepy drawings. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of an atmosphere piece. And yeah, it was huge it was everything so after the debacle of alien 3 a movie i like but david fincher Mm. isn't happy with it seven was his big calling card uh there's a scene in fight club Mm. where um all all of the men have been gathered together to just cause destruction and project mayhem they call it in the movie 
and uh, in one of the scenes, they go into a blockbuster video, and all the oh, videos yeah. are still on VHS, and they're taking these powerful electromagnets and just uh, running them across the videos, erasing the magnetic tape on all yeah. the videos. They're erasing all these cassettes. So rude. And there's an end cap of nothing but Alien 3 videos that they're paying extra <laughs> close attention to. That's been Fincher's only real comment on it. Like, he doesn't want to talk about it. No, he's not fine. He, he's he did eventually put together a director's cut, which yeah, I mean, is a, a better version, but they're basically the same film. It's, it's clearer, but it I think they're clearer. both fine. I, yeah. I admire how miserable that movie is. I don't, I don't dislike that movie. I think yeah. it's, a lot of people got mad because they, like, they killed characters off between films, but I'm oh, like... Whatever, start they're, fresh. They're, yeah, who cares? Like, just, I, 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 I'm not trying to compare this to a movie I had in my head. All right, yeah. that's 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 not the movie's fault. It's doing its own thing. So anyway, David Fincher would go on to do more Oscar-y type things later in his career, but in the 90s he was the thriller guy. Yeah. And right after 7, his big film was The Game, which starred Michael Douglas as a uh, sort of a, a solitary billionaire. Yeah, uh, who lived uh, only to make money, and his only real familial attachment was his ne'er-do-well younger brother, played by Sean Penn. Mm. Uh, and Sean Penn, for uh, Michael Douglas's birthday, gets mm. him, as a gift, an experience. A, an mm. allegedly life-changing experience, where you go to this company, they, they, they run a whole bunch of tests on you, they give you a physical, they get your psych profile, and then they tailor a game... Hmm. That will play out in your real life. You won't so, know if the people you're talking to are part of the game or not. Are they part of a puzzle you have to solve? Full, uh, full scale, real life scavenger hunt. Basically, it's yeah. like the whole world is an escape room. Yeah. So there's a lot of puzzles. You find uh, this mysterious box on your desk one day. You know that's part of the game. I think there's a symbol on it to indicate. There's, the, the company yeah. has a symbol. Uh, one of the first things he finds is like a clown in his driveway, like a toy clown, like out of Poltergeist. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got like a video in it. Uh, and it's really super creepy. And at first, it's actually like revitalizing his interest in life. Because mm. we learned very early on that the big formative experience for him as a child, the trauma that has kind of formed him, was watching his father kill himself. Mm. Uh, and his father killed himself at the exact same age Michael Douglas is now. So he's starting to kind of get a new lease on life through this thing. But then it turns out the game is probably trying to kill him. Mm. And I don't want to go into the great details of it There's a lot of twists and turns in it It is incredibly slickly presented Wonderfully just Whereas Seven felt like The world was like Eating itself in a very hellscape Kind of way mm. The game is very cold And morgue-like In its portrayal of just Everything in the mm. world um, It's very dreary But over the course of the film, it becomes more and more Hitchcockian. But it's not just a Hitchcockian thriller. And over the course of the film, we realize that whether it's by design or whether it's just by the nature of what Michael Douglas is going through, uh, what this film is really about is depression. Mm. What this film is really about is using the trappings of a paranoid thriller where you don't know if you can trust anyone and using it as a metaphor for uh, mental health, undiagnosed mental health, and possibly even an intervention. Uh, mm. It is a great Hitchcockian thriller, uh -huh. beautifully presented, and it actually has a reason to exist beyond entertainment. And I would say even more so than something like Seven, which is great, but it's kind of bleakness for its own sake. Like, what's really Seven 
saying really well, like it's, life it's, sucks it's, it's just it's kind a, of it's about nihilism yeah it's basically about, you know the, the attempts to grasp at morality will fail because mm-hmm. there's nothing to grasp in the world. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's, it's very it's very bleak. It's, it's which, kind of, which matched you know the country's attitude at the time. It's fun. It's kind of this anti-transcendentalist kind of mm-hmm. thing, and I feel like the game is trying to f- look within that kind of pulp, almost airplane novel mm-hmm. iconography, which I honestly think is where Fincher is best. I think when he's trying to do something really serious, he always comes across like he's trying like. To goose things up way too hard, like he doesn't trust the material. But when he's mm. given like a mystery <laughs> or a thriller or some kind of life yeah. in a situation, he's great at elevating it and making it seem stronger than it might be in other hands. Yeah. And I feel like the game uh, approaches towards the end a uh, uh, genuine catharsis okay. for uh, for the characters, perhaps, but I, I I think the audience. And I get a lot out of the game. I think it's one of his best films. It's it's been a while since I've seen the game. Mm-hmm. Um, when I saw it for the first time when it first came out. Uh, I saw it as a metaphor for midlife crisis. It's that too, that, I think. That uh, it wasn't necessarily about his depression, it was about his mortality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, depending on your views of mortality, that could also be closely linked to depression, but... Mm-hmm. The older uh, I get, the more I view it from this lens. Okay. I think when I was your age, I was... When it was... I saw it in theaters as well. Okay. And I had the same take, but I was a teenager. Yeah, yeah and now we, we, uh, now we, were, the, we were younger, so we're seeing an older man yeah. facing down mortality. And, and indeed... Pretty easy out, but... Uh, it works. Yeah. It, it's functional that way, but... The thing is, is that Michael Douglas is can be a very icy actor. He can be very warm. Mm. Something like *Romancing the Stone* or even the Ant Man movies. He can be lovely, but he's he's great at playing sort of serpent-like characters. Mm. Very cold-blooded. Yeah, Gordon Gecko. Gordon yeah. Gecko is a great example. Um, and indeed, I think the game is definitely playing off of that sort of general vibe. What if Gordon Gecko? Had went on for another 15 <laughs> years and started really thinking about his life and well, yeah. finding out how hollow it was. Well, Oliver I, Stone tried to do that. They know. that sequel to Wall Street. I actually never saw that. Was it any uh, good? No. Oh. Uh, like, it, and it, it came out during like the big financial crisis in yeah. the, the late 2000s. You'd think Oliver Stone would have something a little bit more acidic or pointed to you, say. You'd imagine. But he had already mellowed out as a person, yeah. which, you know, I'm sure that's fine for him as a human being. But, but it doesn't necessarily make his I, movies any better. I miss, like, <laughs> angry upstart Oliver Stone. This was the time for angry upstart yeah. Well, in any case, um, I think what Michael Douglas is doing, I think there's a way to play depression in cinema that is very clear to the audience, very mm. obvious. And I think he's hiding it the way someone who is hiding it would hide it. I think that, and as a result, I think if you're not on that wavelength, I think you might be missing it. But I think he's actually doing a a pretty nuanced performance of someone who is just kind of lost interest in life Hmm. and real, and just and just that feels really empty and hollow, and is retreating into themselves, and they feel isolated. And I think it's interesting performance. I don't think it's his best performance he's ever given by any stretch, but I do think he's given a great performance as someone who's going through something. Very heavy. And, um, yeah, I love this movie to pieces. Uh, yeah. And I think uh, it, it deserves more credit, at least in David Fincher's filmography. I, uh, but here I am saying it's one of the best films that starts with the letter G. So there you go. <laughs> I, I have the Criterion put out an edition. Oh, I that's have, right. I have Criterion's edition, so yeah. we'll probably g- give it another look pretty soon. I highly recommend it. I highly uh, recommend it. What's your next pick? Uh, I'll choose another one from a similar era. Uh, one, another one that I saw the first time when I was a teenager. This one was swallowed up in the mid '90s uh-huh. uh, because it came out right in the wake of Pulp Fiction, and mm. uh, when the movie Pulp Fiction came out, a lot of 
very similar casually violent crime thrillers became mm. very quickly involved. Very conversational and, uh, crime thrillers as well. Yeah, a lot, like something like, like Suicide Kings uh, or and, well, Truth and, and Consequences, New Mexico. And, a, a lot of the difference was the attitudes towards violence. Mm. Um, if you watch a film like uh, the one I'm about to talk about or like Pulp Fiction, acts of horrendous violence happen very quickly, right away. Mm. And people just continue talking casually as if nothing happened. It's like, yeah. oh man, that guy's dead. That was something that didn't really happen in thrillers. Usually when somebody died, they scream, ah! And well, because like big dramatic music. Because violence is, is we're facing, shocking. Yeah, we're facing death. And, but for uh, certain characters and, and certain stories, it's passe. Yeah, and in the late 90s, you'll find any number of thrillers about people who just sort of murder, ah, that guy's bothering me, bang. Okay, good, he's dead. Let's have yeah. breakfast. You know, it's... Uh, so this was another film in that vein had the same star, but it's actually incredibly intelligent about, about the way movies are made and the way L.A. operates. Okay. Talk about Barry Sonnenfeld's Get Shorty. I That's a good... Uh, I haven't seen this in a long time. Yeah. I love Get Shorty. Uh, it's... it's Not to get a little too ahead of myself, but I think it is one of the more significant showbiz dramas. Mm. Uh, it's about a, a char- It's based on a novel by Elmore Leonard, and the story mm. goes that uh, John Travolta, who plays the main character... Uh, didn't want to do it because it was like a very pat thriller. He wanted, yeah. wanted it to be more like the novel. And he actually put his foot down and said, I needed to add more dialogue. Mm. I needed to add the dialogue that's in the Elmore Leonard book. Cause Elmore Leonard's a very talky kind of an author. Mm. And so, uh, there was a passage in the original script that said, get me my coat back. It was very expensive. And it was changed back to, do you see a $350 coat back in there like like Al Pacino wore in Serpico? Because if you don't, you owe me the $340 that my ex-wife paid for it. Like, there's a lot of information in there <laughs> yeah. now. And, and the film's better for it. Elmore Leonard's yeah. a film. He's, he's one of those, Hollywood goes in waves with certain writers uh. where there'll be like a 10-year period where they just adapt the shit out of Jane Austen. <laughs> they adapt the shit out of Edgar Allan Poe mm. in the 60s. And we hit an Elmore Leonard phase in like the mid-90s, like mm. the early 2000s. That was a pretty good phase, actually. Yeah, because El- Elmore Leonard's an interesting author. Yeah, um, very, and again, the way Elmore mm. Leonard, you read even the crappiest Elmore Leonard novel, I've read some, the dialogue is great. <laughs> you can get to, an entire chapter is nothing but dialogue, yeah. and they would tell you not to do that normally, and it just flies off the mm. page. Um, yeah, totally, yeah. yeah but, uh, you keep the dialogue. You yeah. don't just keep the plot. The plot usually uh, isn't the best part. It's really hilarious, too, because if you live in L.A., you know exactly where they're shooting these locations. Like, yeah. there's Miami. That's Wilshire Boulevard. That is not Miami. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, John Travolta plays a character named Chili Palmer. He's a lone shark, like kind of a low and low guy in sort of organized crime. He's yeah. not, like, deep in the mob or anything. He, he'll he go to, like, a house and rough up, but he's not, like, a, a tough guy. He's actually kind of... Well, he's, not, he's not a mean guy, is yeah. what he is. He's, he's actually he's, very amiable and personable, but if he needs to shoot you, he will. Mm. Yeah. And uh, he, he uh, is... His boss dies. His new boss is played by Dennis Farina. It's a, one of the great Dennis Farina performances. Oh, he's wonderful in it. Uh, this he, is kind of my introduction. A, he should have gotten an Oscar nomination for this. This movie. is kind of my introduction to Dennis Farina. He'd been around for forever, yeah. but somehow I just never saw the movies he where yeah. TV was in. But yeah, he's he's fucking delight. <laughs> Everyone's a delight in this movie. Yeah, well, like Gene Hackman's wonderful in this movie. Danny DeVito. Uh, uh, it's one of the better Rene Russo performances. Uh, this was kind of the breakout Rene Russo performance, I think, for mm. a lot of people because. 
she had been in, been in things, but yeah. she was like the romantic lead in like Free Jack, right? Which is kind of a fun movie, but it's not really a juicy <laughs> part for Renee it's Russo. Not Renee Russo's movie, uh, no. Yeah, but this, like this she gets to really yeah. steal scenes, and she's wonderful in it. But uh, over the course of the movie, and through some plot complications, Chili Palmer has to go from Miami to Los Angeles to rough up uh, this guy named Harry Zim. He's like a B movie producer, and he has a script. He calls it My Driving Miss Daisy. Like, it's the important Oscar script he's going to produce. And Shirley Palmer says, well, what the heck? I'm not going to beat you up. Slimeball Harry Zim, played by Gene Hackman. Mm -hmm. Gene Hackman has never been more pathetic than he is in this movie. Oh, and And he's so wonderful in it. I mean, he's such a good actor. He plays it well, but... uh, he ends up staying in L.A. to help produce this movie. Yeah, so the, this yeah. this guy who was basically the John Travolta character from Pulp Fiction mm. is now going to be a movie producer. Yeah, and here's the thing: he loves movies. He's, he's a he, that's why he stays in L.A. He yeah. likes he he genuinely a, cares about cinema in a way that all of these people who live in this town and make the movies do not, mm. and that makes him actually good at the job. <laughs> Although there, there's a really funny line of dialogue where he's calling up a friend back in Miami. He's like, okay, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to produ- produce movies. And the guy on the other end of the phone says, what, what the fuck do you know about making movies? He says, I don't think the producer has to know much. <laughs> Great line just, of dialogue. It's kind of true. Yeah. But he gets involved. The producer's job is to get things done. It's not to make the movie. Right. right. Usually, yeah. But uh, he, he gets in, uh, romantically involved with the Ray, Renee Russo character, who is like Harry Zim's screaming queen. She's like the actress yeah. that, that works for him. And uh, the fact that she screams well becomes a plot point late in the movie. Uh, Delroy Lindo is in this oh, as sort of like a rival gangster. Good breakout role for Delroy yeah. Lindo, too. Everyone had a breakout Everyone's role. Everyone's great. Even, um, oh, my God. Uh, oh, who plays... Um, uh, there, there's a character named Yayo, like a, this young punk character oh. who ends up getting shot. He's played by recall. somebody significant. The, uh, this, uh, this, yeah. This movie is so fucking funny. Yeah. This movie and, and it's is... really complicated. You have to watch it a couple of times it, just to get your mind around the, the, the story. The plot's kind of ornate. You can just kind of lose yourself in the characters and get the gist of it. Mm. But the plot's a little elaborate, maybe to a fault. Um, this movie was such a big deal when it came out. I remember, because this was the thing that kind of solidified that John Travolta was back. Okay. John Travolta had a lot of ups and downs in his career already. Mm. He was he was on Welcome Back, Cotter. He was very popular. Saturday Night Fever was a monster. And then he just couldn't capitalize on that from the late 70s to the late 80s. Then he had Look Who's Talking. Oh, good. John Travolta is back. That's a hit movie. Couldn't capitalize on that. Career was in the crapper. Pulp Fiction comes around. According to John Travolta, literally the only script he'd been offered. Wow. That was like literally the... It was you make this movie or you're done making movies. So he made the movie. It didn't matter what it was. And it turned out to be this huge career revitalization. And he made some smart choices right afterwards. And I think Get Shorty might have been the smartest. Because yeah. it established it A, it established this new, slightly older, slightly cooler John Travolta mm. that we would get in films like Face Off as well, uh, or Broken Arrow. And that was just unbelievably important. And this movie was a hit. Mm. It was number one at the box office for a while, and then it dropped out of number one at the box office, which happens. You know, over time, you, you lose it. Oh. And then it became number one again. <laughs> it came back. The word of the, mouth the, was the, so good, it the, picked up God, steam the, after like a month. The 90s were a wild time. <laughs> yes, but, it um, was. Great movie, though. Uh, but yeah, I, I, and, and we didn't even get to Danny DeVito, the tree of the title. Yeah. He plays this. Uh, he plays the movie he, star. Yeah, he's, he's like the, this uh, very egotistical, uh, self-obsessed movie star. He's a portrait of himself in his, yeah. his den. And yeah, he's like the great actor. He's like, oh, and he's the like the get. He's they're gonna try to get him for this movie. And of course, Danny DeVito plays this guy like a complete fucking fool. Yeah, like 
again, to stress, everyone's great in this movie. Just yes. there, there aren't bad performances. To a one, it's it's one of the best cast movies you'll ever yeah. oh, see. Oh, and also James Gandolfini. We didn't even mention oh, him. Yeah, he, I didn't know who he was when this movie came out. I actually yeah. forgot he was in it. Uh, it's he wasn't anybody yet, but he's yeah. in this movie. Uh, and the way it sort of toys about the corruption of Hollywood while still making it look fun yeah. is weirdly brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not about how Hollywood is this horrendous cesspit full of crime and, and vice. No. It is that. Yeah. Like, people are shooting each other over scripts in this movie. But it's still fun. But it's still presented as very sprightly. It's it's no, this it, really complex plot that you're with throughout the entire movie. Yeah, that's the it's amazing thing. It's this weirdly thing. brilliant filmmaking. I've, I've seen so many movies that treat Hollywood like a magical dream factory. Or I've seen so many movies that treat Hollywood like this like Babylon, mm. just this absolutely nightmarish landscape. Yeah, where where you just fall into debauchery and sin, and it's practically a scare film. And then I just get shorty, which is just like yeah, yeah, everyone's a crook and everyone's completely incompetent, but it's charming. But we like it. <laughs> we like it that way. <laughs> everyone's if, if you're if you can sort of follow along and and you know keep your cool. Be cool. No. You'll be you'll be great. Well, the sequel, Be Cool, is not very good. No, the, the sequel is actually yeah. quite bad. Uh, Unfortunately. The, the idea of Be Cool is uh, a lot of time has passed and Chili Palmer is now tired of movies mm-hmm. and he wants to move into music. Fine idea for a sequel. Perfectly good idea for a uh, Get Shorty yeah. sequel. Uh, but this idea that he gets like... Re- the cynicism about the film industry is mm. missing from uh, the music industry in Be Cool. Mm. In fact, it's all about sort of capturing that honesty. Yeah, it's in, about him in, like in finding movie, like yeah, a young ingenue yeah. and helping. The, it's almost like an Elvis movie on that level, yeah. where it's just about helping this person find their thing, and then and then like having to get people out of shitty contracts is where like the Elmore Leonard stuff comes in. Mm. But it, it, yeah, Be Cool was directed by F. Gary Gray, and I love F. Gary Gray. He can make a great movie. Ordinarily less, he just didn't this time. No, I, I don't think he was right for the material. I don't think he had that kind of... Yeah, that sprightly sparkle. Yeah, he's he's he, not a sprightly filmmaker. No, he's not Barry Sonnenfeld. And he can make a funny movie, too, but he's not Barry Sonnenfeld. It's a very different vibe. And I think they were trying too hard to make it feel like Barry Sonnenfeld. Yeah. Whereas if they had just made an F. Gary Gray movie out of it, it might have been great. I, I was just looking up Be Cool, and I just now learned that uh, a cameo role in Be Cool was performed by Dan Brown, the author. No shit. Of, of uh, The Da Vinci Code. Weird. <laughs> like, he's in the movie in That's a cameo. A really not, weird. Not as an author. He's just, like, in the background in one shot. Super duper weird. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, but yeah, so Be Cool. If you but, really want to watch it, it's not the worst, but it's nowhere near as good as Get no, Shorty. No, Get, Get Shorty is... is kind of a phenomenon. Uh, Barry Sonnenfeld's an interesting filmmaker because he's yeah. made a few big hits because he also did uh, Men in Black. Mm-hmm. He, the Addams Family 1 and, and 2. And he did the, the Addams Family movies uh, and then he just sort of like fell off. He started his career as a photographer. He shot films like Big. Oh, and and, uh, uh, and a lot of the Coen Brothers early stuff. That's like right. Like Raising yeah. Arizona so and uh, a, a, Blood Simple. Great looking Excellent movies. cinematographer. Hit making yeah. guy. I think his last film was Nine Lives. The cat oh, that's movie. not no. He worked with Kevin Spacey. He's been on a doing a lot of TV. Okay. He's, he's been doing a lot of TV. He did the he did that TV series Schmigadoon. Oh, okay, that was a big hit. Which I heard was cute. Uh, he did ten episodes of a series of unfortunate events, which I did watch the first season of, and is very good. Okay. And that definitely has that old school Barry Sonnenfeld. Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, touch. Well, he also did the film Wild Wild West, which was oh, God, that was a huge bomb. It was a huge bomb, and I yeah. think that kind of kind of marked him for a while. But immediately the, the, after the back to back 
Wild yeah. Wild West and Big Trouble. Well, Big Trouble. Uh, that one wasn't his fault. Though. It wasn't that. That was a bad timing movie. Uh, yeah. it, I mean, it was a bomb. It lost a huge amount of money, but uh, it had a great cast. Yeah, really funny comedy film. It's based on a novel by Dave Barry, yeah, uh, the, the humor columnist. He wrote a couple of novels, and he, he wrote one called Big Trouble, and that, that's what that's based on. But the film climaxes uh, at an airport mm-hmm. with these sort of ne'er do well characters played by Tom Sizemore and Johnny Knoxville before people knew who he was, mm. uh, sneaking a nuclear bomb onto a plane. Yeah, uh, it, it, it was going to be released in late 2001, and that yeah. wasn't funny at the time. It ended up sneaking out in 2002, which was still probably way a too little, soon. Little too soon for that. Yeah, one. and so after that, he ended up doing Men in Black Two. That was a big hit, but then he did RV. Yeah, and then he started doing more TV, which I think ultimately worked out yeah, pretty well. I think, for I think him. Wild Wild West, yeah. yeah, and Big Trouble. That that back. I I really him. recommend Big Trouble, by the yeah. way. Um, I think we we're far enough away that we can kind of laugh at that joke now. Uh, and just yeah, un- you gotta, under- you, yeah, you gotta, yeah. Un- understand that there were a lot of jokes about ineffectual airports in movies, just mm-hmm. pretty generally. Uh, uh, prior, before nine eleven, it was very common. Yeah, in fact, so I just was... saw this uh, deleted scene from Love Actually. You know, like Christmas classic oh, yeah, everyone yeah. likes. It's this uh, sort of pastiche of a whole bunch of different romantic subplots going on at Christmas, and there was a, a subplot where I think it was Liam Neeson's son in the movie. Uh, was in love with a girl in his school and she was going away in an airplane and he wanted to like make a big declaration of love to her or something like that. I'm really hazy on it. But there was a deleted subplot apparently where he was a gymnast and he ran through the airport to see her off evading airport security by doing elaborate gymnastics over and over and over again and it is the funniest fucking thing <laughs> but i guess around 9/11 everyone's like maybe we shouldn't make light of evading airport security right now. It was like a whole thing. Anyway, we got to move on. Um, I'll tell you a movie. My next movie is a movie that I'll bet you Chili Palmer loves. Well, he loves Touch of Evil. He does love Touch of Evil, but um, I didn't. I didn't pick Gutch of Evil. Gutch of Evil. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't start with a G. What can I do? Gulch of Evil. Gulch of Evil would be a great western. I kind of want (laughs) to see that. Something only Ed Wood would have made. Uh, no, but I'm picking a crime movie, uh, and it's a movie that the ghoul goes west. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, I'm picking a crime movie, and this is a movie that I think when it came out, it was generally considered to be a B picture, but uh, it has risen in estimation over the years, and now it is maybe not famous, but if you follow noir, you've probably heard of, and hopefully you've seen Gun Crazy. Oh, I love Gun Crazy. Gun Crazy is great. Yeah. Gun Crazy is really fun. So Gun Crazy uh, is uh, directed by a filmmaker named Joseph H. Lewis. It stars John Dahl, uh, who uh, it was in... Um, he was in Rope, wasn't he? Wasn't he one of the guys in Rope? Oh, yes, he was. Yeah, John Dahl. Uh, he plays a guy who at a very young yeah, age... It's a great... It's a 1950 film. That's a mm-hmm. good choice. Yeah, really good film. Uh, I love this movie. So uh, he plays... At a very young age, he becomes obsessed with guns. He thinks guns are neat. Not, he, not committing crimes. He just, well, he, the, tries, the, he wants the, to steal one, but like beyond, but he's, he's not just like interested he, in like the mechanics of a, a yeah. firearm. His obsession with guns leads him to make poor choices, but it's not like he wants to shoot people. Yeah, it's not like he wants them to kill. He thinks that they are fascinating objects, much in the same way you would see. I don't know, like you you watch the Fablemans, and like mm. young Steven Spielberg becomes obsessed with cameras. Mm. It's like that, except it's a gun. And it really doesn't have a lot of utility outside of being a gun. So this guy ends up growing up and falling for it. This is a great sequence where he meets 
a woman at like a carnival or a sideshow, and she is a sharpshooter. Mm-hmm. And it's like that scene in Rear Window where um, Grace Kelly kind of like leans into the camera, like she's about to kiss you as you're laying down, <laughs> but it's she's shooting you, <laughs> like she's so sexy and she's shooting you, and he immediately falls for her completely. And they fall madly in love with each other, and they're both completely obsessed with guns, and they end up, because they don't have much else to do with that, deciding to commit crimes. Mm. And they decide to rob banks, and they become very good at it. Um, And, yeah, there's downfalls, 1950s. They're still working within the production code. But one of the really things that I love about this movie is these characters are really just very passionate about their lives and what they do. And they're passionate about their work Mm -hmm. in a way that I don't think a lot of crime movies at the time really were into. There's a great bit in this movie. And I'm paraphrasing this madly because I haven't seen it in a while, uh, where uh, John Dahl is being interrogated Mm -hmm. and the cop is just this, just this shitty cop (laughs) who doesn't get anything and he's come with all these prejudgments about who criminals are and he says why why do you gotta rob banks why can't you work for a living and John Dahl's like it's really hard to rob banks (laughs) that is way harder than just getting a day job and saving up that's actually the cop's sentiment is actually something I've said to myself watching like mob movies yeah it's like you're working you're like killing people Uh and working really really hard to make all this money uh huh and a job if, where, like, you're a job doing where, like, a legal... the, the mortality rate is pretty high. Yeah, like, like, you'll you, be lucky you, to live to be 50. You could get, like, yeah. a non-illegal job yeah. and probably, like, meet the same result, right? Like, there's... <laughs> I remember when I was in film school, I've told this story before, when I was in film school, uh, one of the first things, and pretty much every teacher had this speech. It was, oh. I don't know if they planned it or if just every single one of them thought this was really important to cram down our throats. They said if you're going if you're tr- going to the film industry to make money, hmm. there are easier ways to make money. <laughs> just be an accountant, be a lawyer, you will make so much more money. Like you might hit it big and be make billions. You probably won't and will have to work really hard just to get by like anyone else in any other thing. So if you just want money, this is not the way to do it. And I feel that way about crime. It's so because yeah. there's no security in it. <laughs> there's no there's no safety. There's no retirement. You know, there's no there's no golden parachute. Mm-hmm. All right, it's just dangerous and not safe, yeah. and it's no guarantee you'll do any good at the, it. Uh, the the bank the bank heist movies as well, and this is another one. They have to keep on robbing banks and going yeah. crazy. It's like. Okay, so this this is like something you do on the regular. It's like you yeah. need a, a regular, steady gig to mm-hmm. keep the money coming in. Yeah. In every heist movie I've seen, the number is never high enough. Yeah. It's like, we're going to do this one last job and we're going to retire. How much will you get? $40,000. Really? What are you going to... You're going to buy a house for $40,000? Well, grant, granted, in the 50s, that was actually kind of a lot of money. Well, I mean, not, I'm talking about like a more modern <laughs> oh, film, yeah. but yeah. No, I remember... I remember what, was, uh, what was it in Ransom? You remember, remember the Mel Gibson movie Ransom? It was a mm. remake of a, a Leslie um, Leslie Nielsen movie from like Ransom. the 50s. Ransom. You know, the one Ransom. where they give me back my son. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Ron Howard did this remake with Mel Gibson and he was played a rich guy whose son is kidnapped. Rene Russo was in that. Uh, right. And the, the, one of the weirder things about it, though, is the kidnappers don't want $100 million. They, they want like... 900,000 or some like surprisingly low number mm. and there's Mel Gibson like he's talking to Delroy Lindo Delroy Lindo Delroy Lindo plays the cop <laughs> and uh, and uh, he's just like they know they can get more right and they're like and everyone's like 
maybe that's all they need. <laughs> I don't know. Like, they're the ones asking. Uh, uh, maybe they think that's easy for you to get, and it won't cause any problems. You're talking about another Mel Gibson picture, uh, yeah. Payback. Yeah, yeah. Which is a remake of Point Blank, the John yeah. Borman movie. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, great. Both really good movies, actually. especially the especially the director's kind of Payback. I haven't seen Payback, it's, but I, ha- I yeah. have seen Point Blank, and I hate it. I know. I don't get it. I think that movie's great. I don't yeah, understand why you don't like just, that it's one. It's just... Uh, Many just the, the, the everything's off about that movie. Nothing it's very sixties. I'll give you that. Yeah. It's very dated in a lot of ways. I still think it's neat. Uh, I feel like I'm I'm seeing like the castoffs of a different movie. Um, but I think but it's the plot of payback. The plot of payback yeah. is he he's trying to get he went away to prison and he wants some money back that was stolen from him. Mm-hmm. And people keep offering him more than what he's asking for, and he gets mad. Yeah, he's like, like no, 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 I I, I specifically did this job to get this much money. Uh, this is how much that was stolen from me. I don't want more than like, that. I, I'm not trying two, to make waves. I just like, want what's owed yeah, me. Here's two. Here's two hundred thousand dollars. I need yeah. fifteen thousand. That's all I ask yeah. for. Stop insulting me. Anyway, back to Gun Crazy. Gun Crazy is a fantastic film noir. It's filled mm. with passion. It's got this really wonderful. It, it's low budget, but it doesn't feel it because they shoot things with a lot of energy. There's this really famous sequence in it where yeah, they're in a car. Famous one yeah. yeah, they're in a car, and the camera's in the back seat of the car, and we see John Dahl and Peggy Cummins. Uh, they're in the front seat and they're plotting. They're going to get out and rob this bank. And they're driving up to the bank. And it's all done in one shot. And the whole thing is they're going to park the car. They're going to run inside. And then they're going to run out with the money. Problem is, it was solo budget. They were shooting without a permit. And there were no parking spaces. So they let the scene go. What would the characters do if there were no parking spaces? And it was basically like, well, shit, I don't know. Drive around the block. Let's see if we can find a spot. And the, you can sense this desperation in it that is so absent from so many of the other, even great crime films, like The Asphalt Jungle or something, where just everything feels so planned and professional. And the fact that they're amateurs who are, like, trying really hard and doing a pretty good job of being criminals, uh, it just stands out. It's a very special movie, and I really love it all pieces, so please see Gun Crazy. It's great. Yeah. Right. Um, what you got I, I like Gun Crazy, too. Yeah. Uh, I don't have any film noirs. Oh. I do have a film that is, uh, it's very tense. It's about uh, two two, uh, Mm. players who are just sort of, they're diametrically opposed. And the movie is geared toward an inevitable conflict between these two opposites. One of them is Godzilla, and one of them is Mechagodzilla. Oh my god. And the movie is called Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. Okay, I have a question for you. Yes. Why is it called that? Uh... Let's see. There's there's a third monster in it. There is actually. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen Godzilla versus yeah. Mechagodzilla. King, named King Caesar. Yeah, King Caesar is a weird. It's just this it's like, like this kind of dog thing that lives like, in a mountain. It's usually when there's like a third monster, you do it so that the two main monsters will like team up and fight it at some point. Yeah, well, that's, that's what that happened in King Kong G- versus Godzilla. Well, that was King Ghidorah for the longest yeah. time. King Ghidorah yeah. was the bad yeah. the bad one, the bad guy yeah. that everybody had to team up and and beat up. Yeah. Uh, I'm of all of okay. There's no shortage of Godzilla movies. There's, they all begin with a G for the most part. We're, we're close to forty Godzilla movies at this. Yeah, point. like most of them begin with a G. Like destroy all monsters, notwithstanding, most of them begin with a G. Mm, half the, of them begin with a G. Half of them begin with a well, G. Well, uh, I guess there was that stretch in in the '60s when most of them started with Godzilla versus. Yeah. And, uh, what are the other ones? Yeah. Uh, well, there was let's see, there was Godzilla. Godzilla raids again. Uh huh. Uh, King Kong versus Godzilla. Okay, I'll grant you King Kong versus Godzilla, which is different from Godzilla versus Kong. Yeah, by the way, the, that's the, how the you American film them. was Godzilla versus Kong. I remember uh, around the time when we were coming up with the rule book at the movie trivia showdown, and 
someone had asked Christian Harloff on Twitter, mm. like, if someone said in uh, the answer to a question, and someone was like, hey, what's the name of that movie from, like, 2020 or 2021 uh-huh. uh, where Godzilla fought King Kong? And they said... King Kong versus Godzilla instead of Godzilla versus Kong, would you accept that answer? And he said, yes, that would be fine. And I'm like, no, it would no, not. Those are two different movies. It's literally a different movie with that it's title like that a, came out over 60 years prior or around 60 yeah. years prior. Sometimes you got to uh, really kind of nitpick about that sort of thing. There's a so, movie called The Evil Dead and there's a movie called Evil Dead and those are different movies. Sometimes it's uh, genuinely important. Yeah. So, yeah, then there was uh, King Kong versus Godzilla, then Mothra versus Godzilla. Yeah. Then uh, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. Yeah. Uh, invasion of Astro Monster. So not, a lot of okay, not only okay, Sarah okay, I'll, I'll give you that Invasion of the Astro Monster is not. I mean, Ghidorah does. Oh, I guess so. Yeah, Ghidorah. Yeah, so got, yeah, In, got Invasion of Astro Monster, which okay. is incidentally also Ghidorah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ebera, Har of the Deep, that big lobster. Uh-huh. Uh Son of Godzilla, Minila, uh-huh. who uh, is like this close to being Scrappy Doo. Um, no, God, he, I don't understand why some people like that movie. Uh, uh, yeah, but, destroy, but yeah. uh, Son of Godzilla is okay. All Monsters Attack, the other one with Minila, the one where he talks. Oh, that's, that's what I'm thinking insufferable. Of. You're right. I apologize. Mm-hmm. Son of Godzilla is fine, yeah. I guess. Destroy the Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that one's that. Destroy All Monsters, the best one. Great movie. Uh, yeah, then there was and Godzilla versus Hira, Godzilla versus Gigan, Godzilla versus Megalon, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla uh-huh. from 1974, and Terror of Mechagodzilla, and that mm-hmm. ended the first wave of Godzilla movies. Ended. The Showa era. And then there was the return of Godzilla, and then a whole bunch of Godzilla verses again. Yeah. And then we had Shin Godzilla. No, then we had Millennium Era. Right, but through then they were still called Godzilla. Yeah, it's true. All, yeah. all of the, I guess, all of the ones in the the Millennium Era. Every Godzilla movie Godzilla from 1989 anyway. to uh, t- 2016, when Shin Godzilla okay. came out, started with a J. Most of them start with a J. I, this is, I guess, this is my Godzilla representative then. Okay. Uh, and I love. Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla because yeah. Mecha, Mechagodzilla Godzilla rules something about Mechagodzilla yeah. um, like taps into something incredibly primal in my brain <laughs> Th- this idea of a gigantic robot dinosaur shooting missiles out of its fingers and lasers out of its eyes like appeals to the inner seven year olds that has never died inside of me it's the idea because the premise of Mechagodzilla is it's Godzilla if Godzilla was a robot and you could pilot that robot mm. Uh, the idea is we're going to... What's the only thing that can stop a Godzilla? Oh, another, another Godzilla. But we yeah. don't have another Godzilla, so we have to make another Godzilla. Mm-hmm. You could have tried to improve on that design? Mm-hmm. Nope, there's no improving on Godzilla. But, we just a, have to do a robot version of Godzilla. And uh, and a big the first part of the movie, we think that Godzilla has turned evil. Now, oh, like, yeah. At this point in the series... Uh, and I've made this comparison before. Godzilla is like Japan's bouncer. Yeah. If you're a big uh, monster and you want to get yeah. into Japan, you got to yeah, go yeah, through yeah, Godzilla. And he's got the clipboard and your name isn't on it. <laughs> and, and these, and these like, drunk asshole ruffians keep trying to come in. And he, he throat punches them like Dalton in Roadhouse and says, fuck off. He doesn't necessarily like working for for Japan. But he'll do it because it's his job, and he's, oh he's, he has a good work ethic, that guy. Oh, my God. <laughs> Godzilla's the guy who, like, used to roadie for Metallica. Like, he's got some scars and some yeah. mileage on him. Like, he doesn't look yeah. like the action hero mm. who would, you know, come into town, beat everyone up, get the girl and walk out all yeah. shirtless and sweaty and looking awesome. But he would kick the shit out of that guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. He'd, he'd like... He'd, he'd like he'd, he'd, 
hit a guy in the solar plexus so he like like steps back a few minutes and then we'll say something really calm like don't be naughty yeah it's like well fuck yeah <laughs> and the wise monsters back off yeah pain don't hurt yeah and, and then of course there's like the owner of the rival bar who's trying to take the place down that's king Ghidorah. yeah and sometimes he has to call his other bouncer buddies to team up and kick out was king it, was alan arkin in roadhouse is that the character we're thinking no it's ben gazera ben gazera the yeah. other alan arkin <laughs> the other Alan Arkin. Uh, Miami, they're, they're, I don't know why. Both they're, actors. they're both wonderful. They're both good actors. Yeah. I just I always get them confused. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> ben ben Gazzara is like the tough guy. Ben Gazzara was in St. Jack, which is a pretty tough guy movie. Yeah. 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 Uh, Alan Arkin was a little bit funnier. Like he, he, could, he played like put upon sex. It's interesting because I never funny. really knew him from the funny stuff. I knew him from stuff like, like Wait Until Dark, where oh, he was right. like the one where he was playing a tougher guy. Oh, right. And it was only later that I realized, oh, did he do a bunch of comedies? And I was like, yeah, that's what he was yeah, known for. Like, I just somehow missed those. It's like, like the in-laws, that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, so yeah, uh, there's Godzilla doesn't have a sense of humor. He's a little no. bit more Ben Gazzara-like, but he serves the role of Dalton. Yeah. It's like he's got a regular Saturday night thing. <laughs> And, and they, that was uh, not that was not Dalton's line. That was no. the guy Dalton kicked out. Oh yeah, I'm gonna yeah. make you my regular, my regular Saturday, Saturday night, night thing. thing. It's like ha- having sex in the locker room or whatever yeah. that thing is. R- Roadhouse rules, by the way. It sucks, but it's, it rules it's so bad. <laughs> but it is exactly the right kind of bad. Yeah. It is perfect '80s bad. <laughs> it's 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 not good, but it's great. Right, right. It's the best way to. Describe I remember it. I, I peeled a sticker off of a, a book in a bookstore once that uh, said "Now a major motion picture," and I stuck it on the Roadhouse video at my local <laughs> video store. Now a major motion picture. <laughs> How did they turn that book into a movie? That, that was that was my comment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, point being, uh, God, yeah, Godzilla, the, the big mm. bouncer, has now met his like robotic match, and yeah. there's a wonderful scene where Godzilla's fl- or Mechagodzilla is flanked by King Caesar, mm. this uh, dog monster that sleeps in a mountain for like thousands of years and awakes only ever every so often. Yeah. Uh, not a very interesting monster. A, a subplot season. that takes up a lot of real estate in the first part of the movie. And the movie's like 89 minutes. Yeah, it's, real it's, short. it's really padded for considering that it's kind of just, mm. we just want to see Godzilla. But yeah, they, they think everyone thinks Godzilla's the bad guy now. Like he's mm. abandoned his post as our bouncer and he's the bad guy. A plot they recycled for King for Godzilla versus Kong. Mm. Um, and then it turns out, yeah, you rip off that, that all that Godzilla shit and there's a Mecha Godzilla yeah, under like, there. like a rubber... Yeah. I, I would love to say, you know, sort of like on a practical level, it's like one, uh, like an alien species built Mechagodzilla. Which is the but, plot, yeah. But another alien species had to make the skin. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that, they that had to outsource it. Yeah. yeah. That would have been a fun plot point, but no. Yeah. They, they, like like all, the, all the contractors on the Death Star, in, like in all the contractors later, on uh, Mechagodzilla. In, in later renditions of the character, if you remember the the end of the first Are we calling Godzilla. Mechagodzilla a character? Yeah, sure. Why not? He's, he's piloted. He doesn't have agency. Uh, that's like saying the Mach so, 5 is a character in Speed Racer. Look, let me have Mecha Godzilla. Okay, all right? I'll let you have Mecha Godzilla. Mecha Godzilla is not a car. He's, he's real, damn it. I'll let you have it. It's, it's too late at night for me to for me to for me to take Mecha Godzilla from you and expect you to get any sleep. I forgot what I was going to say. You were talking about outsourcing Godzilla's That's skin to another Godzilla's. alien. Oh, in, in uh, yeah. one of the uh, later movies, when yeah. they brought back Mechagodzilla for like a new uh, rebooted yeah, they, uh, they brought him back timeline. a couple of times, yeah. Um, in the, at the end of the original Godzilla, they destroyed Godzilla with the oxygen destroyer. Like something yeah. even more deadly than the nuclear bomb. So it's yeah. a big tragic Escalation. Yeah, it's yeah. like, well, we have to use violence again. And that's, yes, we solved our problem, but we just used a bomb and that's terrible. Yeah. Uh, in one of the later sequels, they harvested Godzilla's skeleton mm. and built Mechagodzilla around it. Which is and also, they used in 
Godzilla versus Kong. Godzilla versus Kong, they like got like bits of his brain yeah. or something and put it inside. They, they, Godzilla, they took yeah. King Ghidorah's head. Oh, that's, that's right. what it yeah, was. They yeah. took Gene Keter as head because Gene Keter could psychically control mm. other monsters and like reverse engineered that's his right. brain. That's right. That's yeah. a stupid fucking movie. You know what? Godzilla vs. Kong, the new one, uh-huh. is the best American Godzilla movie. Oh, really? Just I love King down. of the Monsters. That's mm. my favorite. All right. That no. one gives me everything I wanted. Every monster yeah, gets okay. a moment in that one. That's what I want. I want I want King Ghidorah. I want Rodan. Uh, if they just found a way, I, I, I'll bet they tried. If they just found a way to get Gamera in there, I would have been my favorite movie of the year. It's a different thing. I know it's a different thing, but I would have tried. Superman and Spider-Man. I know, but I would have tried. I would have tried so hard. Can we try? They managed to put the exorcist in that movie. They did. There's a scene in that movie where you finally see like Godzilla's underwater lair. Like, where is he when he's not tromping around japan turns out he's got an underwater layer and in that underwater layer it's full of like ancient runes mm. this kind of cthulhu yeah, kind um, of you know uh back when they used to worship these these titans, Leviathan, yeah. titans that's what they call them, these titans and you can see the statue of pazuzu from the exorcist is in there too <laughs> they put the exorcist in there but we can't get camera fuck sorry someday Someday, Someday God, they're Godzilla, gonna Godzilla they're gonna be Gamera. Like the, they're gonna, that's gonna they're make gonna money, man. On the wall. Yeah. That's gonna make money, okay? Because Gamera's way more popular in Japan than it is here. That's like, true. That, they're yeah. gonna that's gonna do well overseas, and I'll watch the shit out of it. Oh, I'll be first in line. Shin Gamera. <laughs> they they made Shin Godzilla. Yeah, and they did uh, Shin Ultraman. Well, I was gonna say, yeah, that's the yeah. same the same filmmaking team. Uh, rather than do another Godzilla film in mm. that same continuity, did Shin Ultraman. Awesome, and I haven't seen it yet, and I'm mad about that. I think it's coming out this year in America. Maybe so. Sure. It's I been out. So. It's been out in Japan for a while now. Yeah. Uh, anyway, point being, watching monsters wail on each other is like one of the few times I'm excited by like a big fight scene <laughs> in a movie. Like because because it is it's tapping into something really kind of youthful yeah. and primal in my soul. So yeah, when when I'm seeing Godzilla twist Mechagodzilla's fucking head off, I'm cheering. Like yeah, kill him, hit his face. <laughs> Shoot a missile in his mouth. <laughs> poke him in the eye. Yeah. There's a, that wonderful shot in, in uh, King Kong versus Godzilla where King Kong shoves a tree into Godzilla's yeah, mouth. that's a fun one. It's like, yeah, you make, force him to eat a fucking well, tree. Well, that was like the best part of the of the Gareth Evans concept. It was Gareth Evans. Who yeah, did Gareth that. Edwards. It was Gareth Edwards. I always get him confused because it sounds so similar. Uh, but Gareth, because they make movies around the same yeah. time. But, but like, uh, that's the one where it's like, he's finally finding that Mudo and he's going to barf fire down his mouth. Yeah. Like he's in a de- like, like he's in an episode of Jackass or something. Like, the, like the, it's awesome. The one exciting moment in that yeah. dull That's great, movie. though. That's a great moment. I've never seen Godzilla do that one before. That's true. Yeah. Although uh, I have seen Godzilla um, stomp a smog monster into the ground. Yeah. Pull out his eyeballs and yeah. breathe fire straight onto the eyes. Okay, see, I would what I would have done is I would have had that him nuclear, first use the eyes as click clacks. Remember click clacks? Those were fun. And in Invasion of Astro Monster, uh, he and Rodan uh, take on King Ghidorah on a different planet, huh. take him to the moon, and they beat him. And Godzilla does a victory dance. And look, look up the victory yeah. dance because it's pretty special. I'm going to ask you a question. When yeah. we're done on our Patreon page doing the step up franchise uh-huh. which it will be sooner than later we'll, we'll finish it sometime this year uh-huh. um do, do you want to do every godzilla movie uh, i mean we can put that out to our our listeners if they want us to do hey listeners i know we've been doing this for like two hours and 15 minutes if you're still here uh, <laughs> if you haven't fallen asleep uh or completely zoned out uh you, you, you want to see us do a patreon podcast where we review every single godzilla movie 
Well, I'll, I'll, I mean, well, I'll do it. Force me to watch I, I, movies. Yeah, he's already seen them all. I've only seen like a third of them. Oh yeah, like, I've, I've I've missed yeah. a lot of them. So yeah, it'd be, it'd be fun I, I, for me. But there are a lot of them. Too, there are a lot. Of them. Them. So listen, we got to move on from Godzilla. Uh, so my next pick uh, for the best movies that begin with the letter G is Gojira. Is it really? Yeah, it is. Oh, well, fine. All right. Gojira fucking rules. Um, uh, it's, well, here's the deal. I have some criticisms of it. But I, I'm sure say. you do. But for me, Godzilla, as, as you were kind of talking about, Godzilla kind of transformed over time. And initially mm. he was the villain. And then he became Japan's bouncer, basically. Yeah. And the Earth's bouncer after a while. Mm. And I love that version of the character. But there's a certain purity to the original no-nonsense version of Godzilla, where Godzilla was well, not a friend. Well, Godzilla wasn't even a character yet. Godzilla yeah. was an animal. Yeah, which is great. Yeah. And that, that's one of the things I love about Shin Godzilla as well. Mm. Is that he, yeah, and in Shin like Godzilla, the... he's treated as a natural disaster. Yeah. And in the original Gojira, he is, uh, which is different from the American version Godzilla, which they inserted Raymond Burr in there to try oh to make God. it a little bit more accessible to American audiences. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. It's a very is, similar yeah. film, but it doesn't have the same vibe. Um, he was, This was less than 10 years after America dropped the bomb. Mm. Uh, twice. Uh, in Japan. Uh, and... Um, yeah, the wound is still fresh, and mm. everyone is—it's still on everyone's mind. And Gojira is well, the, uh, very much a reaction to that. There was, uh, in fact, uh, this is pretty well known. Uh, Ishido Honda, who mm. made Godzilla, uh, was inspired by a real life event of uh, a boat of fishermen who mm. were exposed to uh, re- lingering radiation yeah. at sea, and they died yeah. uh, from an event that happened nearly a decade before. So, like, there were still mm. there was still death. This bomb yeah. dropped a long time ago, and it was still killing. It people. had a legacy, yeah. and, and we're still living through it. And um, which is one of the reasons why the one of the, the thing that pisses me off in Godzilla: King of the Monsters movie, I was just defending, but there's one bit that really annoys me in it, where Godzilla has the shit kicked out of him, and he goes down into that underwater catacomb, mm-hmm. and in order to recharge Godzilla, they decide to feed him more nuclear bombs. Yeah. and I'm like, okay, I realize Godzilla's turned into a different thing, but that's kind of perverse if you think about it considering okay, he was if, originally represented mm, the absolute the, the terror horrifying bomb, terror yeah. and and indeed legitimate human tragedy of the atomic bomb mm. so Ishiro Honda's film is, is actually it's full of dread mm. it's full of like this these all of these ominous portents of this monster that might be coming and we don't know what it I mean we know now because Godzilla's become so iconic but if you can try to put all of that out of your head and try to watch Gojira as if you know nothing mm. There's it, it it is kind of Lovecraftian actually, and there's the sheer magnitude of it, and in terms of like there's something unthinkable out there, and when it hits, it hits in stark black and white. It's actually very striking, and there's a really good sense of scale even to this day, that I think is just really really powerful. And then after Godzilla does his devastation, which is Again, more frightening than in any of the other Godzilla movies I've ever seen, with the possible exception of Shin Godzilla, which starts with the letter S. Obviously, but in the context of this podcast, it's relevant. <laughs> um, they have to decide how do we stop it, and it turns into a metaphor for nuclear escalation, where they're using a Godzilla against us. How do we stop that? And then it becomes a matter of, would we, in turn, use a weapon of mass destruction? Mm-hmm. And... Would we do so cavalierly or would we do so with extreme hesitation? Yeah. And it becomes a much more of a of a moral tale. Hmm. I love that version of Godzilla. For me, as much as I enjoy the fight the fight in Godzilla, hmm. um 
I feel like that's what Godzilla is at at his heart. Yeah, is something that is actually born out of something really genuine and emotional and painful. And I think Gojira Gojira holds up really well. I think in terms of, um, and this might be heresy, and 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 I'm speaking as somebody who loves Godzilla, loves Godzilla movies. Yeah, no, Um, I think you've already proven that. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, it's very badly paced. That thing drags, and it's not long. Uh, It's it's not. a lot of the movie is just sort of dealing with a crisis. It's a disaster movie. Yeah. And, uh, and a lot of those shots of Godzilla first coming up, like where we see his head coming up over the ridge, mm-hmm. or um, you know, the first like bout of destruction where he's just sort of charging through the city, mm-hmm. those are some pretty good, terrifying sequences. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the movie is just uh, these long scenes of mourning and contemplation yeah. where they're reiterating a lot of the same ideas. Yeah. And, it's uh, a mournful, and, contemplative monster movie. Mm-hmm. It's not about action. Uh, well, I, I, it's not that I'm eager to get to the action. Okay. I understand that's what later Godzilla movies are for. You yeah. know, when they start being a lot, a lot more uh, uh, salacious about mm. sort of their violence. Mm, goofy. Uh, yeah, and a lot of them are just plain silly, and I, I like that too. It could be fun. But uh, in terms of like its actual filmmaking, it's pretty damn shabby. Oh, I, I like that about it. It's not nearly as shabby as Godzilla Raids Again, which they mm. rushed into production. Sure. Um, Godzilla Raids Again, they tried to go for the same mournful tone, but it ended up being another monster-on-monster fight. Like, there's yeah. another... No, there's another. There's, a, there's another Godzilla, because they killed the first one. Yeah, they, 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 they killed, killed yeah. Godzilla. They vaporized Godzilla. Yeah, there we, was no we go- see his skeleton. We had the, we, so he's the, gone. At the Godzilla we know from future Godzilla movies is a different Godzilla from, from Gojira. the first one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and there was actually an error in the filmmaking when they were making Godzilla Raids oh, yeah. again. Uh, in order to sort of uh, examine the size of these creatures, they were yeah. going to play the monster fights in slow motion. And that's actually something they do throughout a lot of the mm-hmm. Godzilla movies. And a they, lot of, a lot of movies will yeah. just do that in order to sort of make something seem like, yeah. make it seem a little larger. Um, yeah. But there was an error in the editing bay and they accidentally sped it up. Oh no. They, they, instead of slowing down the film, they turned oh, the knob the wrong no. way and it started playing really oh, fast. Oh, and the director no. said, Oh, actually that looks really cool. Let's have that. So now we have these like Benny Hill, <laughs> style <laughs> monster fights. Well, I didn't pick that movie, yeah. did I? No, no, no. So I, I, there's a lot I really admire about that first Godzilla. I like how it did sort of birth the genre, but it is far from perfect. I don't, I don't, here's the deal. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking mm-hmm. about greatness. And so I think, A, historical significance, it matters. Mm-hmm. But B, I think it's actually way more dramatically potent than any other Godzilla movie I've seen, oh. with the possible exception of Shin Godzilla, Shin Godzilla which I think yeah. is a great movie. Um yeah, Shin Godzilla is one of the it's, best. It's pretty great, and I think it captures a lot of the best parts of the original while updating them mm-hmm. uh, in a really exciting and often very funny way, and I think well, it's very effective. But What I like about Shin Godzilla yeah. is you, you talked about how Godzilla was a symbol for all, for the bomb, and mm-hmm. uh, and it, it stayed that way for a while to the point where the metaphor fell, kind of fell away. Mm-hmm. Godzilla stopped being a, a metaphor for the bomb after a while, but people kept coming back to it. Oh, he's a metaphor for the bomb. Well, not anymore. Yeah. Like, that part is kind of gone from Godzilla. And yeah, I feel sure. like uh, Shin Godzilla was made after the Fukushima disaster. Exactly. And so now he actually had a new symbol. He was this yeah. new kind of like symbol for being unprepared for a man-made Yeah, man-made disaster. environmental yeah. threat. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I, I will just we can move on, but real fast, I just want to say that shabbiness that you're talking about yeah. for me is not a deal breaker. Okay, and in fact, I actually think that gives it a lot more personality. Mm-hmm. And I like when my genre films have some shabbiness to them because 
it often requires filmmakers to find other ways to uh, engage us. We can't rest on production value. Yeah. And I think when it comes to Gojira, I think they pick their battles. They know when to spend the money, and the money looks really good in those scenes. And the rest of it, it is based on portent and drama. And mm. I think it's mostly effective. And I, if you want to argue that it's slow, yeah. I can see that. I think it's slow compared to other Godzilla movies. Mm. But for me, it's got this like looming apocalyptic dread to it mm. that... I and, and, really and, love, and I like that. But I feel yeah. like uh, they they lean on certain notes repeatedly too often. They yeah. uh, they have a scene, they leave, and then they come back and have like the same scene. Yeah. I, f- I feel like it's not it's not really well put together as a piece of cinema. We, we, we differ. Uh, Let's move on. What's your next pick? Uh, I'll I'll just skip right into it because there's no way to link Godzilla to Ghost World. Uh, <laughs> uh, I love Ghost World. They're both um, outsiders. There you go. You know what I've read? I've read essays that uh, compare uh, Godzilla to like like an immigrant experience, hmm. like coming in uh, to a new place and uh, being seen as like having a skill, but also being seen as like kind of a disaster unto yourself. Yeah, you know, written by uh, people who have who have immigrated. I've seen that that point of view sure. before. I think it's one of the best oh. things about monsters. Really, is that it's easy to project a lot of your experiences. Yeah, you can, if you, you feel can, like an outsider, they can be a you symbol can, for yeah. a lot of different things. Yeah. All right. Ghost World is actually incredibly specific uh, about a really kind of uh, specific teen angst that I think isn't really uh, handled in films anymore and Mm. isn't really part of the culture anymore. But because Ghost World comes from a time when many, many people took a great deal of pride in being outsiders. Mm. And the main character in this movie, Enid Coleslaw, played by Thora Birch, uh, who she had a rough go of things. You know, if you look up sort of the behind oh, yeah. the scenes drama with her and her parents. And yeah, she had a rough one. She, yeah, she was. Her her parents were like taking advantage of her, and yeah, it just wasn't cool for her for a while. So yeah. there's a reason we didn't see her in a lot of movies, even though she's very talented. Um, yeah, she plays this character named Enid Coldslaw, who at the very beginning of the movie is. Uh, watching a Bollywood film, something that was actually kind of rare. Mm. Um, oh yeah, that was yeah. not that was not in, very in like, mainstream in, like, in America. Two thousand one. Yeah, that was so, considered like real, like oh, you're mm. cool. Yeah, she yeah, yeah. she hated but, pop. But you still are. But, yeah. She hated pop music. She was very suspicious of all popular culture, mm-hmm. and she had a compatriot on the outside, uh, who's a, a character played by Scarlett Johansson before mm. she was really big. And they've just come upon their high school graduation, and essentially hell is now behind them. Yeah. High school was not fun for them. Mm. They were disgusted by all of these sort of bright chipper kids who are into all of the pop stuff. It's like, we're going to get an apartment together and we're just going to be cool together. And I'm going to listen to these old jazz records. And Scarlett Johansson starts saying, well, we need to do things like get jobs yeah. and do like actual mainstream responsible stuff if we yeah. want to have an apartment. Exactly. She starts and, she starts growing up a little, a little quicker yeah, in yeah. a lot of ways. Uh, whereas yeah. Enid has taken so much time and energy constructing her outsider attitudes that she doesn't really know how to look at the world any other way. She actually is just a genuine outsider and has learned to love that. And she finds a new kindred spirit in Steve Buscemi, who plays this complete horrible misanthrope character who only shares her passion for very old blues records. And uh, there's a lot of really beautiful music in this movie. Like 1930 stuff from like, uh, um, oh, who who does the uh, Devil Got My Woman in Ghost World? I actually don't know. I'll look it up while you're talking about it. I think it was Skip James. I'll look it up. Um, uh, but uh, th- this idea of taking pride in being an outsider is kind of a notion that's kind of gone. I feel like 
it, it was like this movie came out in 2001. It was almost like one of the last gasps of uh, Gen X's youth in mm-hmm. a way. Uh, because after that, you know, it was Skip James. Skip James. Sorry. Yeah. Look up Skip James. I have some Skip James records. Very, very good. If you can find Whitney, he'll let you borrow them. I love you said like I have some Skip James records. You want to borrow? You want to borrow some Skip James? <laughs> some some Mississippi John Hurt. Uh, some yeah. of those old old Delta Blues records are just just heartrending. Yeah. Um, and this that's sort of like the emotional cores that these people actually have a great deal of passion for art and for things that aren't being typically celebrated by the mainstream. They found it. They found the store of beauty out on the fringe. But being out on the fringe means no one listens to you. So there's this push and pull between uh, buying in and selling out. And uh, Enid uh, refuses to do that. She did, doesn't even really, really know how to do it. And the film ends perfectly for her. Mm. Um, in, in not necessarily a very positive way, but something that makes really poetic Oh, it makes sense for the sense character. I'll give it, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the celebration it has of a certain kind of bitter humanity is not something you'll see in a lot of movies. Uh, and it helps that it was made by a man named Terry Zweigoff, mm. who's only done a couple of movies. Yeah. Uh, he did a, a, the documentary film on Crumb in the mid-1990s. It's just called R. Crumb, the cartoonist. And he made, it's just called Crumb. And he made Bad Santa. And he made Bad Santa. Yeah. And he made Art School Confidential. That was his other uh, big feature film. Each one of those films is aggressively misanthropic. True. Uh, it just... He... Terry Zweigoff, that is, hated humanity. He, he had a, just a, a supreme disregard from anything that people found to be comfortable. Mm. And as a filmmaker, he dares to push you into uncomfortable spaces spaces and sure. i think with ghost world he's doing it uh, almost on a philosophical level uh what does it feel like to actually live and want to live on the outside and our heart goes out to mean it not because we pity her but because mm. we want her to win on the outside mm. we don't want her to break in on the inside uh and uh that i i think speaks very strongly to a certain notion that i think a lot of adolescents go through Especially the ones who uh, have found a niche for themselves. I feel like something like Ghost World wouldn't necessarily play to a millennial audience. Uh, I, 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 and this is me just sort of speaking as an old man, but attitudes did seem to change after a while, at least as, as, as I sensed it. Um, there was this notion that uh, breaking into the mainstream, being part of the group, mm-hmm. being accepted into the big group, was going to be the ultimate triumph. We're going to sort of change the rules. All of our outsider stuff is going to become mainstream. Uh, you'll find plenty of essays around, uh, you know, in the early 2000s about how all of the cult stuff is now mainstream and that sort of robs it of its some of its magic. Mm. Uh, you could see that about comic books. Comic books used to be sort of a fringe interest. Uh, yes, they then, did, yeah. then uh, at some point they sort of worked their way into Hollywood and now are sort of the still to this day are dominating the box. The, the irony is that comic books themselves are still a fringe interest. That's what's really strange. Like comic book sales, from what I understand, mm-hmm. haven't gone up yeah. during the glut of superhero well, movies. They kind of shot themselves in the foot because they went direct market after a while. It used mm-hmm. to be you could find a lot of comics. Mm-hmm. Going to the drugstore, yeah. going to a newsstand, which we don't really have as much anymore. We're going to the market. And they would just yeah. have a stand with not a lot, but they would have some comics there. Mm-hmm. And you would casually run into comics and you would say like, well, they'll have the next Spider-Man next month. So mm-hmm. when I come here, so you would come back and it was easy to find. And then they realized they could get more money by going direct sales 
by sending comics almost exclusively to comic book stores. Mm. Problem is, now people aren't incidentally discovering comics anymore. You have to have go to out go of your way. A, a store, lot of people yeah. did go out of their way for a while, but then it started dwindling off because a lot of the mainstream comics were still catering towards more adolescent audiences. And unless parents were taking their kids to the store specifically to buy comics, mm. they weren't running into them randomly and yeah, just getting yeah. hooked the way I did reading, you know, the X-Men Inferno crossover at 7-Eleven. <laughs> That's where yeah, I discovered well, it. So I don't the, think the I idea think, of, uh, so know, they're still like are on yeah. the outside because they're at specialty stores. So uh, the idea of print media was also kind of dwindling. A lot yeah. of those weekly circular that you'd find just sort of laid out in big piles in front of like movie theaters. You just pick one up off the rack, take it home and read it. Yeah. Uh, that went away. Just yeah. a lot of a lot of the stuff moved online. And yeah. I feel like before the technology kind of mainstreamed a lot of the stuff, made a lot of that information, a lot of that the, that art easy to find, there were uh I guess you could just call them brave shoppers. Yeah. People who would go out of their way to find interesting stuff and out of the way stores somewhere on the edge of town. Yeah. And that's what Ghost World is about. It's about those people who are looking for really interesting art and have devoted their entire personalities to it. Yeah. To the point where it's hurting them socially, mm. but they can't give up the art. And if that's not a metaphor for being a film critic... <laughs> I don't know what is. Yeah, it's if that's not a metaphor for just someone who is passionate about any art. It doesn't necessarily have to be old blues records or being some sort of misanthropic outsider. But it is about how devoting yourself to uh, esoteric interests is almost a full time job unto itself. And mm. there's something very profound about that that Ghost World really understands. Uh, it. it it's, and even though it's really kind of bitter and it's really kind of misanthropic film, it's also incredibly warm. I think it really understands Enid mm -hmm. uh, through her bitterness. I think it relates to her bitterness yeah. and makes bitterness seem like a universal human trait, mm. which it is. We all get bitter about shit. Yeah, sure. We're disgusted by stuff. Yeah. It's okay to be disgusted by the world from time to time. I don't disagree. Mm. Do you not like Ghost World? Not nearly as much as you do. Okay. <laughs> I don't see the warmth that you see right. in, in Ghost World, at least not that pervasively. I, I find the movie to be uh, uh, a very sullen experience. Uh, the the Enid's... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? E Enid's outsider quality. Mm -hmm. Enid's, uh, Enid stands in opposition to a world that is... The, the so-called mainstream world is so cartoonishly presented yeah. as so unlike the humanity that is bestowed upon characters like uh, you know Thor Burge and Steve Buscemi and Scarlett Johansson to an extent. She changes more over the course of the film. Um, everyone around them is a cartoon. Yeah. And it but, makes them feel like they're living in this like oppressive world of squares. And I'm not saying yeah. that people like that don't exist. I'm saying that the movie doesn't seem to believe in those people. Yeah. yeah. And as a result, uh, the movie feels weirdly one-sided. And I could have gotten into that, except I also think that Enid, she's young, she's mm -hmm. making mistakes, she's learning, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, she does she's, a lot of foolish, self-harmful things. She, she does... Yeah cruel things that I have trouble forgiving her for mm. as an audience member. The, the inciting incident of the movie, basically, besides them graduating, is they basically see like a, a Missed Connections personal ad uh -huh. uh, that turns out to have been written by Steve Buscemi. And he's like, he's trying to connect with someone that he thought maybe mm. we had a moment. And they find that so pathetic that what they yeah. decide to do is answer it 
and say, and stand, I will meet you. And deliberately stand him up. Deliberately stand yeah. him up and then just sit at the other side of the restaurant and watch his suffering and get off on it. Yeah. And they do. And eventually Thor Birch feels a little bad about that and starts trying to connect with him. But I never see... Her fascination with him is so based on pity mm-hmm. and is so insufferably mean to, at, at its headset, at, 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 its, at the outset, um, that I they lose me on her very, very quickly. And I, oh, don't, right. I, I have trouble following along with her journey, even though there are many elements of it I can sympathize right. with and appreciate and enjoy. And I think he's a really interesting character. Steve Buscemi's never been nominated for an Oscar, and I think he got really screwed over for Ghost World in particular. Hmm. I think he definitely should have been nominated. He probably should have won. He's doing everything you're saying. Okay. Even though he's living a very miserable life. I think that the take on Enid Coleslaw clearly for me vacillates between kind of celebrating and appreciating her for in all of her complexity mm-hmm. and treating her and the world around her as this kind of shitty place I'm supposed to like enjoy anyway. And I don't, I'm actually mm-hmm. kind of mad at you for finding warmth in this hate pit. <laughs> and I, I find and I appreciate that the movie is showing me a distinct world yeah. and it's very well crafted and it's clearly doing exactly what it wants to do. I don't think it's a bad movie, but I do not have this warm connection uh, to it that I, I you think, do. I find it very miserable and I think it's not always very successful I, I, at it. I, I don't want to say like there's it's not like a comforting kind of warmth. It's sure. that sort of like Huddling together so you don't die of hypothermia, kind of. Yeah, warm. but I don't even see that. Uh, I see. Like I see. Everyone's the, connection is well, based you, you off said of said that this, it's it's based like kind of mutual hate of of the outside world. But and they. But she doesn't the, even like him. And, it, and he doesn't even like himself. There's a, a I wonderful line that of he dialogue. Likes her. There's a wonderful line of dialogue Steve Buscemi has in the movie. It's like. She says, you should go out there. Find someone who shares your interests. He says, I don't want to find someone who shares my interests. I hate my interests. Yeah. Like, he is genuine about who he is. And so much of the movie is her perpetuating, frankly, a romantic comedy movie lie Hmm. about the the nature of their relationship in a way that feels really frustratingly contrived for Hmm. me. Um, And again, I don't think it's a bad movie. I I, I wouldn't even say it's a mediocre movie. It's a very good movie, but... I don't have this close emotional connection other people have to it because I find it deliberately off-putting. Yeah, I'm sure they're yeah. doing it on purpose. And I think they succeeded way too well. <laughs> <laughs> and they just completely lost me after a while. And I can't find my way back to this sort of uh, uh, familial connection some people have to this movie. Okay. But I respect that you do. I see what you see. Mm. I just don't see it myself. The, the, yeah. This... I think it was one of the, the best movies of 2001. I think it's one of the best movies of the 2000s. Uh, I, I just adore this film. Yeah. I, I think uh, in terms of its deep understanding of not wanting to participate yeah. is something that's very vital and something that we don't find in movies much anymore. Mm. It, was, it felt very vital at the time, and yeah. I think it's only become more significant as time has changed. Well, my next pick is a film that is also from the turn of the century. Okay. Uh, I think it came out in 2000. I could be wrong. Uh, it is also about teen outsiders. Okay. It also features some of the best younger actors of their generation. Uh, and it is also full of metaphor and allegory. And that is Ginger Snaps. <laughs> See, now, you like this movie more than I do. I, I think Ginger I think Snaps that... is amazing. No, I, I do. You know what? 
I love Ginger Snaps. Okay. Uh, I came to it kind of late. Uh, yeah. you, you actually lent me your video of it. So it used to be really it. hard to find. Yeah. They didn't used to be on like DVD in America for like a really long time. I had to get like, um, initially I had to get, I think, a VCD of this sucker when it first came out because they refused to release it in America. I don't know why. There's clearly a market for it. Uh, it was popular enough in Canada to get two sequels, or rather one sequel and a prequel. Um, but yeah, it was really hard to find. They finally put out a decent DVD of it, like in the late 2000s. Yeah. Um, and uh, it fucking kills. So Ginger Snaps uh, stars Emily Perkins and Catherine Isabel as sisters. Mm. Uh, they are teenagers. They are outsiders. They hate everyone and everything except each other. And they're really just very gothy kids. The yeah, opening they, they, credits they like is to, a montage of they, them staging their own deaths in a very Harold and Maude kind of way. Yeah, they're like they got fake blood and yeah, staged yeah. The, like they've been killed in some really horrible way. And they take, yeah. I think it's Polaroids. I think they take. They take a lot of Polaroids, and, and it's like it's like scene. it's basically like an art installation where it's like mm-hmm. how could all the different ways we could kill ourselves. Yeah. Uh, and their parents, uh, who are, I forget who plays the dad, but Mimi Rogers plays the mom, and she's a wonderful in this movie. Mm-hmm. She's a very underappreciated actor. Um, they take it in stride. They see this as, oh, they're kids. That's a phase. They're very odd. They're they're very mm-hmm. milquetoast suburbanites. Yeah. Um, so one night, yeah. That, that's in it, um, sort of, to go back to Ghost World for just a second. Sure. That, that's sort of a vital interest. There's sort of an affect to the gothiness of uh, the characters in Ginger Snaps, mm-hmm. like they're they're deliberately trying to stage something, and yeah. I feel like it's a little more genuine with someone like Enid. I, I think that I think mm-hmm. this movie is, understands that about them. Mm-hmm. Actually, is that they're they're acting out, they're trying yeah. on something, mm-hmm. and we're going to see them grow apart very quickly because uh, one night they are out and about, and Catherine Isabel's character, the older sister, is bitten by a mysterious animal. It is a werewolf. Was it terror perfect? It's t- <laughs> was it drinking was a perfect? Was it drinking a pina colada yeah. at Trader Vic's? Yeah. It, anyway, she's been by a werewolf, and she doesn't transform into a werewolf automatically the way they do in some uh, horror yeah. movies. It's gradual. Uh, yeah. It's it's gradual. It takes place over the course of a month. It's a full moon. By the next full moon, she will have transformed completely into a monster, and that next month is puberty and microcosm. Yeah. And she's starting to experience feelings she never really understood before. She's interested in boys and sex in ways that she never really understood before. She's more aggressive. She's starting to get hair where there never was hair before. You know, all over your body. <laughs> like a werewolf. It's not subtle. She ends up having sex with a guy. She ends up giving it to him. And his version of it takes the form of basically uh, sexually transmitted infection. It starts like burning when he pees and stuff. And it's... Werewolves have never been a subtle metaphor. Like, just no. so we're clear, most of the classic universal type monsters are unsubtle metaphors, and I do not expect, nor do I even necessarily reward subtlety mm. in these kinds of monster movies. These are allegories, and it's a broad one. What makes Ginger Snaps so great, besides the fact that they just really thought it out really well, everything, every part of it really, really fits. Uh, first off, Emily Perkins and Catherine Isabel are fantastic actors. Hmm. Emily Perkins plays like uh, sort of the the more uh, mawkish ga- uh, 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 of the two, hmm. um, and she's watching her sister outgrow her very quickly. And everyone's just like, "Oh, it'll happen to you too." And she's just like, "I don't want it to." She's turning into a homicidal maniac. So watching her in like very much in isolation, trying to 
deal with a really horrifying situation that she is completely unprepared for and having death something that she just recently thought was all fun and games uh turn into a very real reality and her growing up out of that very quickly uh is very striking and dramatic and i think emily perkins is such a great actor it ends up reading like poetry mm -hmm. uh catherine isabel does that you know sort of a jennifer's body transformation into like the hot girl in school yeah, she becomes a lot more sexual she becomes a lot more sexual in a very teen movie kind of way, but she never loses that sense of menace behind that, and I think she's actually genuinely intimidating and a really, really great werewolf. And the the real surprise superstar for me, and I realize it's ironic considering I just praised them a few seconds ago, is Mimi Rogers. Because there's this whole bit in the movie where Mimi Rogers is completely oblivious to everything there there goes. There's a great bit in the movie where they have to hide a body from their parents. They're coming home. Uh -huh. And they realize that, okay, we can't hide it, so we'll pretend it's a school project. And we're doing our death <laughs> thing again. And their dad's just like, oh, that looks really real, honey. And Catherine Isabel's like putting real blood on her hands and licking it. It's like, it's caro syrup. Do you want some? And he's like, no, that's okay. And Emily Perkins is like, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> so fucking great. When Mimi Rogers finds out what's mm. actually happening, to the extent that she can find out, yeah, her response and the way she carries that character and what you find out about that character and what she's been kind of hanging on to this whole time is really kind of beautiful <laughs> and kind of an amazing character and character choice. And just shows that even though this movie is dealing in some very arch uh, uh, cinematic language, there's actually a lot of thought mm. behind a lot of this. And a lot of... A lot of sensitivity and I think a lot more depth than a lot of even really great werewolf movies. As, as far as I'm concerned, there's only like five or six really great werewolf yeah, movies. I, I like werewolves as monsters, but yeah, yeah. there's just like so many shitty werewolf movies. And I think a big part of that is because Stephen King has talked about how there's really only three different kinds of monsters. There's mm. uh, vampires, werewolves, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mm. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, vampires, uh, Frankenstein, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Vampires are the, the horror without no. The, the creature Cre outside of you mm. uh, that wants to attack you. Uh, Frankenstein is the monster that we create. Yeah. You know, and then comes back to bite us. And then Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the or a werewolf, within, is yeah. the monster within us that we're trying to contain. And I think it's always been tricky to get a werewolf to look good on camera. Yeah. Which is very, yeah. very... If you have a low budget in particular, it can be very, very difficult. That's been very, very daunting. And I think, and in particular, ever since Psycho... Serial killers have just taken over that story, and there's a lot, a, a lot of less, like this, less, you know. uh, less making masks out of yak hair. You know, it's yeah, um, like but like yeah, you, you can tell that the stepfather is a story about a werewolf if mm -hmm. you really think about it. You know, manhunter well, is as well. They're all these are all people who are scared of the monster within them or they're embracing well, the monster within why, them but they're uh, hiding it and they only let out at certain times and I, I it's cheaper i think that's why uh, a character like the incredible hulk yeah. remains uh interesting to a lot of audiences because that is a werewolf story it is uh i i feel like in the more recent movies they're they moved on from they, they turned him into like this sort of comedic side character they're all comedic yeah. characters now but uh, yeah no they, we lost uh, a bit of that pathos with the hulk and i mm. That's a bummer, but I, like, I get like, it. Like it's boring to, for Mark Ruffalo to play after a while. Yeah, like like Mark Ruffalo, okay, yeah, he, he has that sort of like he can play sad characters pretty well. If he played a straight up werewolf in a movie, he'd be great. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's got he's got that melancholy you want from someone yeah. who's done things they regret. Yeah, the the, the problem know? with the Hulk is that he's not really interesting as like a superhero. <laughs> no, he's force of nature, really. Yeah. So that's why you know Ong Lee didn't make a superhero movie. He made this werewolf comic. It's more like an EC yeah. comic. Than no, movie. I agree. So again, I think this is, 
at least one of the two or three great werewolf movies. For my money, it's the best. I think it's the one that tells the story best. Even though there are elements of it that, you know, the, the actual full transformation werewolf we get at the end of the movie. Mm. I've seen better looking werewolves. But not many. Like, honestly, like, there's, there's, I mean, I've seen, like, some good CG werewolves, but in the realm of practical werewolves, it's basically an American Werewolf London in London and The Howling. Those are, like, the two of the gold standards. Yeah, Yeah, that doesn't get much better. They're they're very similar, not quite the same, and I don't think we've ever done much better than those. Mm. uh, Dog Soldiers is pretty cool. As mm. monsters go, I don't think it's a particularly good movie. It's fine. No. I think it's a little dunderheaded. Uh, but like, it's basically like, what if action, but werewolves? And I'm like, okay, anything more? No. Oh, oh, okay. Well, that's fine, I guess. I'm not <laughs> terribly interested. But like, Ginger Snaps for me is mm. is is the, the 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 king of the crop. Anyway, well, what, what, uh, I I think uh, Ginger Snaps would have hit me a lot harder mm. if I had seen it as an adolescent. Fair enough. I I, I saw it when I was like I, eighteen. Yeah, so I saw it when yeah. I was like. I was only like 35. So it's like, this is a good movie for adolescence, Mm -hmm. but it didn't ring really super true to me because it it seemed like kind of blunt and obvious. Mm -hmm. Uh, It reminded me very much of a movie that nobody talks about called fun. Not a great movie. Uh, Have I seen that? Maybe not. It was from the late nineties and it was about uh, sort of two, uh, two youth. I think Alicia Witt was in it. Um, One of the actors from mole rats. Uh, And these, these two teenage girls, um, are, are bored and they try to play pranks on somebody and then like this very rope fashion they end up kind of mm. like talking each other into killing someone for fun. okay all right yeah, almost like, like a jawbreaker kind of thing yeah, yeah. kind of but you know it, it, little indie film is very terse mm-hmm. um we're uh, directed by raffle zelinsky i don't know yeah i don't, I don't know don't, this movie uh <laughs> i'm not sure if i could like wholeheartedly recommend it but you yeah, know it's that's, kind, kind that's of interesting interesting concept right. um but yeah it I felt like um, Ginger Snaps could have gone a lot further with it. There could have been a lot more death in it. Um, it 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 feels very um, like teen soap opera. And I know it did come out after Scream. It was part of so that, that wave. That was, it was so part of it, that wave. It had a lot of that kind yeah. of like very artificial kind of feeling uh, teen uh, th- th- That wave of like turn of the century teen movies mm. was basically... Scream was at one end of that spectrum and She's All That was at the other and a lot of movies kind of lived in the nebulous area in between for better and worse. So I I guess in a way it it was a post-Scream movie that, you know, Mm. wasn't as good as Scream. It was like, well, we're going to do that a little bit. That's a high bar. I I understand that. Yeah. Scream is quite a good movie. I actually really, really like uh, the the first four Scream movies. Uh, Um, I like the fifth one too. uh, Oh, they made a fifth? Shut up. Like, Move on. Well, Tell well, me what's, what's you, a big fan of you made your point. What's a nice pick? Um, we got two left each. Okay, uh, we, we've done some pretty um, like mm. uh, kid yeah. kid friendly movies. Movies about teens. Yeah. Fun uh, you know. movies about sort of discovering life and moving through it. Um, uh-huh. This this is a movie about uh, death. It's about closure. It's about endings. Oh, it sounds awful. Uh, and it, and it's called Goodbye. See, I did one too. It was called Ghost. I, I yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> I, I Ghost World. Um, <laughs> What, you, it's called Goodbye? It's called, goodbye. No, it's called Goodbye Dragon Inn. Oh, Goodbye Dragon Inn. Uh, goodbye Dragon Inn. I, I is... should have known you were going to do this. <laughs> uh, not, that, not that you've sprung something horrible on me. I should have... You, I know you love this movie. But, I should have known it was going to make it a I just love Goodbye yeah. Dragon Inn. Fair enough. Um, uh, goodbye Dragon Inn came out in 2003 uh, from the uh, Taiwanese director, Tsai Ming Liang. And Tsai Ming Liang is 
uh, often considered one of the masters of slow cinema mm. in that uh, a lot of long sustained shots, a lot, not a lot of camera movements, not a lot of dialogue, just a lot of living in a space for a long, long amount of time. Mm. Slow cinema allows an audience uh, to engage with a film in a, on a different sort of level. Uh, so too many films try to grab you, mm. try to pull you along or try to lead you along and in some sort of way along a story with some characters. Uh, slow cinema is about uh, prolonging those moments and turning any moment into sort of an act of meditation. Mm. Uh, that's what Simon Lang is masterful at. Okay. Uh, Goodbye Dragon Inn is about the last showing in a local movie theater. So if you love movies, it's already sad. <laughs> no, is it? Wait, yeah. is it the last showing of this movie or the last showing of the entire theater? Last showing of the whole theater. The theater okay. is going to close. Okay. And uh, if you've seen a lot of Simon Lang movies, one of his recurring motifs is like flooding interiors. There's a lot of wet floors in his movies, uh, drains backing up, pipes leaking, and yeah, you can see that is happening to this this theater. There's like water sort of leaking in, almost like this elemental force is swallowing the theater back up. But yeah, there's this old cinema in Taipei. It's about to close down. And it's uh, about the last 90 minutes this theater is going to be open. And they're showing Dragon Inn, mm. which is a 1967 movie. It's a King Who movie. If you know yeah. King Who. King Who's uh, a great filmmaker. King Who's a filmmaker who uh, pioneer, helped pioneer the uh, wuxia genre. That mm. is uh, flying sword fight Chinese yeah. uh, movies. A Crouch, Tiger, Hidden Dragon is mm. perhaps the most famous example of the wuxia genre, especially in America. Uh, yeah, which, but which it's, was, it's, not, which was it's, not, it's not exactly the Kung Fu genre. No, it's because actually, uh, it's actually an option. And in fact, uh, from what I understand, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was like a throwback movie. Yeah. Uh, wuxia movies were much hipper in the 60s. Well, they'd had yeah. them, but they'd, they'd evolved into a very different form around that time. If you, if you, did you ever see a movie called Storm Riders? Oh, I didn't see that Storm one. Riders was kind of what the wuxia, where the wuxia genre was at at the turn of the century around the time Crouching Tiger and Dragon came out. Um, the visual effects were not as... They were more CG than there was... Uh, uh, they might expect, but it wasn't as good as it would be now, or even at the time in America. Uh, but it was very much like ah, this like I'm trying to remember the plot. Actually, it's a little labyrinthine. But uh, there's an evil king, and he had two sons, and they turned on each other. And one of them can like use water to fight you. And at one point, he rips off his entire arm and uses the blood to fight people. It's all just huge, <laughs> just ripped huge. This movie. Pretty cool. I haven't seen it in a long time. I have no idea how well it holds up. No. But at the time, it was considered like there were some cool kids who were like, "I saw Crouching Tiger and Dragon. It's no Storm Rider." <laughs> <laughs> it's like Matrix is good, but Existence is where it's at. That's baby. kind of the vibe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love both those movies. Those both good movies. Very different films. Um, They're similar, but they're very different. Goodbye, Dragon Inn. Yeah, uh, yeah. Is is just sort of all, the different experiences of the people in this theater. And how each of them is living through this uh, sort of uh, drama. Mm. Uh, one of the people in the audience is in Dragon Inn. He's watching his own movie. Oh, that's fun. Uh, there's a Japanese tourist in there, clearly there to hook up with somebody. Big empty theater. And he thinks he, he might, just like another guy in the, like just down the row, is like, could maybe kind of hook up. And there's this moment where they actually, one guy gets up to go like have a cigarette, because mm. you can smoke in this theater. And... Uh, and Japanese is it a period piece or was it, uh, was it like set no, it's in like... set in the present okay uh, and uh, he ends up like following him there and they're like sharing a cigarette and there's a lot of sexual tension no touching mm. a lot of sexual tension it's like are we gonna and uh, the the first guy like takes a drag off the cigarette and just says you know long pauses this theater's haunted <laughs> Japanese tourists like 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. They put out the cigarettes and they go back to their seats. <laughs> <laughs> no closure. No, closure. No, no, no development on that whatsoever. Just the, uh, but, you know, if, if you are one of those people who adores theaters, you understand yeah. that there is this... Uh, presence yeah, this history in, yeah and sort of in those uh in those walls and yeah. uh timing lang is really great at giving us like very mundane details he likes to film like uh, hallways and interiors in this very kind of uh, almost industrial way hmm. so we get to go into like the projection booth and we get to see we never get a really clear sense of this theater's geography it's like extending into other dimensions it's very strange hmm. uh there's a lot an extended sequence of uh the woman who works in the box office and uh, it really is this sort of, not just a, a, a poem about sort of cinema and the way it is you know, sort of dying out. It's especially significant post-COVID when a lot of those theaters uh, closed. But it, it actually is just a, a much more broader poem about the act of letting go. It's about accepting sort of the mortality of a place. And uh, that is unbelievably moving uh it's one of those movies that you under you're, you're sort of absorbing a lot of what's going on as nothing is happening and i know that sounds pretentious as fuck but uh i, I think that's what's really happening i think Siming lang is letting you look at this place live in that place and let you appreciate the passing with these characters yeah it is Fucking great! I need to see this fucking movie. You it's keep talking so about great good. this movie. It's, yeah, I got nothing to add other than that yeah. sounds good. Um, also, see Dragon Inn. <laughs> it's very good. I, I've actually I haven't seen Dragon <laughs> yeah. Inn. I've seen Goodbye Dragon Inn. Yeah, um, it's it's like a big long epic. I know those, those Wuxia films are yeah. pretty big. But yeah. yeah, and it was remade not that long ago. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Um, all right. Well, for my uh, next pick, it's my second to last pick. Mm. Um, and I was like, there's so many great movies that are going to, you're going to hear my like runners up and be like, how did that not end up on your top 10? Mm. A lot of great movies just happen to you with the letter G. Some of them you need to know about some of them you already know. Yeah. And I could totally cut this whole list and do another list of 10 great movies start with the letter G and they would be just as amazing. But I was thinking about it and I realized that, you know, I love movies in case you hadn't noticed. We talk about them constant hours and hours every week, talking about movies and related media and how much we love them and the history of them and the future. And what I love as much as cinema, if I'm being perfectly frank, is film criticism. Mm -hmm. I love film criticism and uh, film criticism has, when I was younger, introduced me to a lot of amazing movies and a lot of interesting ways to look at movies. And as I get older and I have... You know, become more set in my ways. I'm 40. Uh, you know, I've got my own ideas about things. And I think it's really important to always keep an open mind and to experience and uh, open yourself up to the insights of other people uh, that might have very different takes on movies that you either love and maybe there are reasons not to mm-hmm. or re- movies that you have written off only to discover that they're actually pretty great. Mm-hmm. On that note, Glenn or Glenda... I love that you picked this. Glenn or Glenda <laughs> is a movie yeah. that is often derided as one of the worst movies ever made. It is directed by a filmmaker who is often called one of the worst filmmakers ever mm-hmm. made, Ed Wood, Edward D. Wood Jr., 
uh, immortalized uh, in the Tim Burton movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the director of such films already is already a pretty celebrated cult figure prior oh, yeah. to the Tim Burton. Yeah, movie. He, yeah. He, if you if you were watching movies on like late night television, especially public access television mm-hmm. in like the eighties, you were gonna run into Plan Nine from Outer Space or Bride of the Monster mm-hmm. or some of his crap, and he made crap. It yeah, was low he's, budget. He's celebrated as one of the worst uh, uh, filmmakers of all time. Not something I'm really willing to debate too it's, hard. There, <laughs> there's definitely competition out there, but there's a there's a certain magic to uh, the Ed Wood crappiness where he had... It, there's a consistency to it. Yeah, he, it, he was an auteur. He had his interests. He had his interests and he had his style. And he had his... There's a poetry... His, his dialogue, dialogue is fascinating. And I defy you... Mm. To listen to these sort of cyclical weird, weird, cadence. Weird word salads that he comes he, up the with. The cyclical cadence in his longer speeches and and uh, and dialogue trees, mm. if you will, in films like Plan 9 from Outer Space are absolutely fascinating. Mm. And you can tell this is not someone who wrote down something real fast just to film some crap. This mm. is someone who really thought he was writing something brilliant. And I F- think there was something... Future events such as these will affect you in the future. <laughs> what? I couldn't write that! I couldn't write that. There's something to be said. I've said this about uh, the movie The Room oh. as well. It's like watching someone who doesn't understand poetry write sincere poetry. Yeah. They're trying to get their feelings and their passions and their creative interests onto the page, but they don't understand the language of the art form very well, or their tastes of it are not very mature. And so every Ed Wood movie is filled with amateurish acting mm. but it's all of a very consistent piece they're clearly directed to act that way yeah no matter who they are where they come from how much acting experience they have they all give a similar performance this is a director's stamp um so i'm endlessly fascinated by Ed Wood, by edward as a filmmaker even though he makes very bad movies but there's no movie he made in my experience i haven't seen every single thing he did um there's no movie he made in my experience that is as intensely like sincere Hmm. as Glenn or Glenda. And uh, if you've seen the movie, you can understand the basic backstory here. Uh, There was uh, a trans woman, Christine Jorgensen, Christine Jorgensen, uh, who very famously had a sex change and it was kind of just, Hmm. people knew about it. It was a big news story. And prior, you know, sex reassignment surgery was Hmm. not common at the time. Oh yeah. No. And it was not talked about very much. Hmm. uh, Anyway. So uh, she she made a lot of headlines Hmm. and a schlock movie producer wanted to make George Weiss was his name. Yeah. He wanted to make a, a salacious cheap ass, movie called I Changed My Sex. And it was just going to drag uh, the normies to the drive-in theater, make him go, oh, how weird. Yeah, was, and then they'd go he, home. He, he, he literally just wanted like a geek show. Yeah. Enter Ed Wood. Ed Wood was, and, and it's a little tricky here because a lot of the terminologies that they had at the time mm-hmm. are either not in favor today or considered offensive today or covered way more ground yeah. Than they would now, um, and so a lot of various different gender identities uh, would be carried under one large banner. Mm. Uh, at the very least, I believe even Ed would refer to himself as a crossdresser. Yeah, he would dress in uh, women's tra- clothing, I- and he would go out dressed as a woman and and mm. be a woman in public. Yeah, 
and and Edward uh, Tim Burton's movie and Edward is on record uh, mm-hmm. about his his gender identity. Yeah, uh, the phrase gender identity didn't work. The word trans didn't didn't exist. Really, it wasn't as we uh, know, wasn't yeah. uh, sort of in popular. These usage kinds yet. of sensitivities yeah. were not transgender yeah. was not a mm-hmm. in common usage. Yes, transsexual was, mm-hmm. uh, which but meant, it was meant the as... same thing in the fifties. Yeah, uh, and uh, he referred to himself as a transvestite. Yes. And uh, that he liked to dress like a woman. But mm-hmm. he was also typically pretty clear that he was a cisgendered man. Uh-huh. Well, he, was, well, he enjoyed was... dressing as a woman. There was mm-hmm. uh, just sort of like a, a gender cross that was happening. Mm-hmm. But uh, he is not typically called a transgender film. However, and this is the thing, you know, if, if standards and understandings mm-hmm. and cultural sensitivities were different... Um, who's to say how Edward would identify now? Yeah. A lot of people identify differently throughout their lives as they come to realize different things about well, themselves. And the, the bigger yeah. vocabulary we have, the more yeah. people are able to identify themselves so, as, one, as so, something. So I'm hesitant yeah. to label Edward too distinctly. Yeah, uh, and I think that's a big part of what Glenn or Glenda is. So he he volunteered to make this movie. Mm. Uh, he brought with him an aging and uh, at the time. Uh, uh, drug addicted, drug addicted, uh, and frankly, probably exploited by Ed Wood, mm. uh, uh, Bella Lugosi, uh, to play basically uh, kind of a narrative figure, uh, yeah. uh, someone who contextualizes the various events. And he decided to make a movie that was ostensibly about Christine Jorgensen. There was a plot mm. about someone who was going through gender reassignment surgery, uh, but also tell a story that is very autobiographical about himself coming to terms in a, a society that is incredibly judgmental mm. about anyone at the time who wasn't cisgender and heterosexual uh, with a complicated gender identity. And when you watch Glenn or Glenda, you will see, okay, the, the terminology d- didn't exist very well and it's very clunky the way that they attempt to use it. Mm. Uh, anytime they, a character on screen is a doctor who ostensibly knows what they're talking about, at best they're talking about shit that doctors didn't understand very well in the 50s and at worst they're making shit up. But there is also a genuine, earnest sensitivity and honestly an outreach to the audience for understanding, not exploitation, yeah. but to actually understand that people like Ed Wood, people like Christine uh, Jorgensen, who uh, would not be considered, you know, mm. accepted, to use air quotes, in society at the yeah. time, are real human beings with lifestyles and gender identities that have actual validity that can leave, lead perfectly healthy, happy lives... Mm. And that living in a world that completely oppresses and forces them to repress themselves more often than they should um, is taxing and extremely difficult. And we see these like horrible nightmare sequences mm. that, Ed, that Edward's the, character... The, the uh, devil literally appears. The devil that, yeah. literally appears and, and uh, uh, Bella Lugosi starts spout, spouting all of these old children's nursery mm. rhymes that are all about affirming gender identity like, mm. you know, snips, snips and snails and puppy dog tails. Yeah. So this is a movie that I, like so many people, I saw mm. the amateurish production values, mm. I saw the, the absolute clunkiness of, of it, and I had written it off as a work of, you know, well-intentioned incompetence. Yeah. 
And then I, I opened myself up to readings, uh, to sorry, not to reading, to uh, mm. watching a great video mm. uh, from a film critic named Glauder Glens. Yeah. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's called Ed Wood, Gender, and Glenner Glenda. It's about half an hour. It's a great watch. Yeah. Her, her real name is Sylvia, and she uh, mm. very active and makes a lot of videos. Yeah. Uh, they did a great video essay that is very watchable, very approachable, very understanding about the context in which Glenn or Glenda was made. That really opened my eyes and made me appreciate that although this film doesn't necessarily have the terminology to speak mm. as clearly and uh, cleanly about gender identity as we do now, much like Edward didn't really have a full understanding of the cinematic language, <laughs> um, that sincerity completely comes through. And it is yeah. so unusual in its time for how progressive it is genuinely attempting to be yeah, that yeah. I think it is. it approaches the level of... Maybe what not 50, good. 53. 53 it came out, yeah. It's miles ahead of its time. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, it, it's, it is, it, it, it's kind of important, and it's actually yeah, the, kind of fascinating. Yeah, the, the movie is only 60 minutes long, and yeah. even at that, it's padded. George Weiss yeah. wanted more sex appeal, so there's this bizarre strip sequence in the middle that has no place anywhere. It's, it's kind of like this uh, violently pornographic, but what I think is interesting is that it's heterosexually pornographic. Yeah. And it reads, ironically, actually rather well in the text, because Edward incorporates it into... The nightmare sequences, mm. and it's almost as just like here's well, heteronormativity here's, for you, you, and it's you, really you, uncomfortable. You, you need for you. to be sexual about this here. Yeah, uh, that's, it's, that's what heteronormativity is violently yeah. in his brain, and it's not mm. actually comfortable for him. And it kind of it so almost works in a weird way. It, it, it's it's a bad movie, and yet it's also a great movie. Yeah. Uh, and I, I I agree with you. I, and um, yeah, I, I was actually the one who found Glotter Glens. Oh, was, you, uh, was, I, was it you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I wanted to um, to get a trans person's perspective on Glenn or Glenn yeah. because I hadn't heard one. And, um, yeah. And I found this video essay, uh, Glotter Glenn's gave me a really wonderful quote that I still think about a lot. Oh, I wrote this down. Um, well, I wrote, the, I know exactly the quote you're talking yeah, about. The, I wrote the, it down. The, so the I pe- got it right. The people who demand subtlety. Uh, I got it. Subtlety is seen as a virtue only by those who can afford to be subtle or by those who, who, who benefit from complacency. You know, those yeah. who wish a film's message to be so subtle that they can just tune it out. Mm. Keep your politics out of my entertainment. Say the people who benefit the most Those, from complacency. Yeah, yeah. Beautifully stated. Yeah, yeah. So that's beautifully uh, stated. Uh, it's it's a wonderful essay. Uh, yeah. It's it's a and it is a wonderful film. It's also. Um, just on a base level, despite its incompetence, incredibly entertaining. Oh, it's, it's very uh, it's, watchable. It's really fun to watch, uh, just in how sort of wild and strange and and bad it is. Uh, is it a bad movie? You can't say so. It's, it's uh, incompetent yeah. in certain regards, but that doesn't necessarily make it bad. Just like being competent doesn't necessarily make you good. Yeah. You can make something really bad very effectively, mm-hmm. and you can make something really great really clumsily. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Glenn or Glenda is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, it's fascinating of its time, certainly. Uh, but not something to be written off and with long overdue for a, a serious critical reevaluation yeah. by a lot of people who haven't yet. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are some who have. And I want to mm-hmm. thank them for opening my eyes. Because, yeah, again, film criticism rules. <laughs> I went from having a movie that I disregarded to a movie that I love. And isn't that I mean, better? For for many years, it was considered, you know, a really important queer classic. Mm-hmm. And it just has become more uh, more significant over time. Indeed. Anyway, uh, you've uh, that's I've got one left. Got, I got yeah. one left too, and I'm actually still yeah. not 100 percent sure what I'm going to pick. Um, I didn't pick The Godfather. You know okay. The Godfather. You don't need me to say The Godfather. You don't need us to tell you. Um, it's on my it's on my runners out. Yeah, my number one is Jim Cotta. No, it's not Jim. Cotta. <laughs> <laughs> 
For a second, I was actually mad at you because, like, that starts with a J. No, Jim, Jim Carter Jim starts Cotta with a G. G. <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, Jim Cotta, G-Y-M-K-A-T-A, mm-hmm. is an action movie starring a real-life gymnast who uses gymnastics-oriented martial arts in order to win mm-hmm. a, like, life-or-death competition where he has to fight his way out of a city. Um, uh, it, no, it's it's like a... It's like a, a twisted competition it's like a race of some it's like kind. a race but the big yeah. centerpiece is you end up in a city full of like homicidal maniacs yeah it's like one of the challenges is you're you're in a city of homicidal maniacs some people love that movie i wish that movie was as good as it sounds i don't think it is it's kind it's, of fun but it's, it's nowhere uh, near pretty brain. wild i think it's jim cotta is totally entertaining I see jim cotta but uh, don't i don't want to oversell it i will put it that way no my number one film and this is a uh, i think this is a, one of the greats of cinema that um Film school students talk about a lot, but you don't really hear outside of the walls of film school. Interesting. What? It's Pier Paolo Pasolini's The Gospel According to St. Matthew. Wow. That um, is such a Whitney pick. <laughs> <laughs> that is like, wow. Um, I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong. I actually haven't seen it. The Gospel According to St. Matthew is The Gospel According to St. Matthew. That tracks. It is a film version <laughs> of the book of the Bible. Um, and it was made by Pier Paolo Pasolini, who was... Uh, aggressively communist, super anti-religious, like openly atheist, mm. uh, proudly gay at a time when that wasn't in vogue, and just hated everything about organized religion. Uh, Pasolini, and again, I haven't seen a lot of Pasolini, mm. but what I love is the like the stories of Pasolini because this was at a time when you could make a movie and release it in Europe where they liked art house cinema uh-huh. and they would riot. And they would like sc- scream your name in heresy, like you would. You could actually like piss people <laughs> off, not just like, like oh, I don't like Babylon. Like no, 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 no. People would be would furious riot, that you made yeah. something that challenged their point of view. Yeah. So uh, his films were always aggressively blasphemous. Yeah. Uh, his most notorious film is, of course, Salo, the one hundred twenty days of Sodom, based yeah. on a work by the Marquis de Sade, and he includes all the Marquis de Sade's shit. Including literal shit. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really gross. It's a tough watch. It's one of the most difficult movies I've seen, uh, Solo. And um, the Pope was visiting his hometown, the story goes. And he was stuck in a hotel room. I thought room. you were going to say he saw Solo. <laughs> I thought, no, no. The Pope was in a hotel town and was like, I haven't seen the Solo. I should check that out. <laughs> and they hung out and they had drinks. <laughs> no, um, uh Point being, the Pope was in town and traffic was really high and poor Pasolini, who wanted to get home, was stuck in a hotel room. And there was nothing to do in the hotel room. With the no, Pope. Was, not with the Pope. Pope's out in town. <laughs> I'm sorry. I keep Pasolini and the Pope never I met. Keep jumping. Oh, damn it. Okay. That's where, I really that's, thought that's where I, know. I thought that's where this was going. Okay. And uh, he's stuck in his, his hotel room uh, and th- there's no TV and there's nothing to do. But there is one. Somebody left a Bible in the drawer. And he's like, fuck it. I'll read this thing. This, this, you know, I'll, I'll actually like try to get into it. Yeah, and let's, so, let's, and, let's give it a try. And yeah. he started with, uh, with the four gospels and wouldn't you know it, he actually found an interesting story in there. He's like, you know what? This is actually about a political dissident mm. who, you know, is actually trying to upset things, uh, was arrested for mm. upsetting sort of the market and the local, local landed gentry. Mm. Uh, he, uh, was sentenced to death was exonerated, but then the people demanded that he be executed anyway, and he's executed by the state. But just to prove, like, what a dissident he was, how powerful his idea was, he actually came back from the fucking dead. Like, that's a that's a kind of story I would write, Pasolini said to himself. Yeah. And it exists out there, and it's about one of the most famous people in history. So he made 
an Italian neorealist version of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the um, uh, Jesus Christ is played by an actor named Enrico, Enrique Irazoki. Okay. I don't know how to pronounce it. Pronounce it. I, 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 he's I, not, I he's not known for anything other than this movie. Uh, and he is not, and I appreciate this, he's not that kind of beatific figure that you see in the icons or in the paintings. He's not some faraway figure. He's a guy. He doesn't even have the long hair because actually, uh, from what I understand, fashion at the time was actually keep your hair short. Uh, Christ in a lot of depictions has long hair. Yeah, very hippie. Uh, and, yeah, and, and you know he's, he's bearded. He has his hair short. He has a unibrow. He's kind of short. Uh, he looks like just a guy. Yeah, uh, and it has you know him just sort of like talking to people. It has his parables, uh, but it's much more grounded. It's very down to earth. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, the Jefferson Bible. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was interested in Christ as a philosopher and not as a deity. Okay. So he actually uh, got a razor blade and cut out all of the parts of the New Testament that make reference to Christ's divinity and just have his words as a philosopher. And you can actually buy this in bookshops. Interesting. uh, Does it actually have the the pieces like physically cut out of the book? That would have been cool. That'd no. be very cool. I would have uh, loved to. I buy that. No, it's just you know, edited and redacted to, right. s- to sort of examine Christ as a philosopher, and I think that's what Pasolini is doing here. I've, I've taken philosophy to, courses that it's like let's let's leave religion out of it. Let's yeah. just look at it as philosophy. Yeah, and, yeah. and I, I I too, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm a churchgoer, but I actually am much more interested in Christ as a philosophical figure mm-hmm. than as a divine figure. But, but, dude, um, I'm not. A, I'm not a religious person. Mm. I'm, I'm I'm an atheist, but. Mm. Dude had some good ideas. Yeah. yeah. This, I mean, I, this idea of, vibe. of love as humanity is sort of like a, a gentle flock that you know is drawn to each other. I think there's very profound things going on there. Uh, and I feel like that's what Pasolini is sort of getting at. Uh, not an idea of uh, divine peace or coming about some kind of uh, divine absolution. That's kind of absent from the gospel, according to St. Matthew. What is in it is... Uh, the righteous anger toward uh, a, a world sort of like overrun by uh, twisted politics and consumerism and, and economics. Uh, the scene where Christ trashes the marketplace, he it's like in Citizen Kane. He's just like knocking over tables and smashing shit. It's really exhilarating. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> Do you, you ever see the, uh, uh, the Chris Farley show on uh, Saturday Night Live where he interviewed Martin Scorsese? Oh, I didn't see the Martin Scorsese. I see the the like the uh, Paul McCartney one. Oh yeah. Like, so remember when you were in the Beatles? Chris yeah. Farley used to have this like talk show he would do at Saturday Night Live where he would just be Chris Farley interviewing the guest of the week. And it was always a like a legit celebrity. It was always a legit celebrity. It was like Between Two Ferns before we had Between Two Ferns. And his whole thing was he would just be really enthusiastic, but then ask really like kind of uninteresting questions. Hmm. And then he'd finally ask like a semi good question, but it would be a boring answer. So, like, he would have Martin Scorsese, and he would be like, hey, remember that scene in Taxi Driver where he got the gun in his hand, and he whipped it out, and, like, he had that device on his wrist, and it would, like, shoot out and stuff? That was cool. (laughs) Like, that was it. That was the whole question. But then, like, um, he did that for The Passion of the... uh, Not Passion of Christ. For uh, Last Temptation of Christ. Mm. And he was like, hey, remember that part in The Last Temptation of Christ where Willem Dafoe, like, goes into the temple, and he sees that people are, like changing money in the temple and he gets all really pissed off and he and he like throws out the tables and stuff like that and yells at him and tries to beat him up remember that and Martin Scorsese is like yeah and Chris Riley is like where'd you come up with that 
<laughs> and Mark Scorsese's like, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. <laughs> and Chris Farley's like, damn it. I thought that was such a short. <laughs> like he's getting so mad at him so much. Oh, oh, man. You ripped it off from the Bible? <laughs> no, um, the Gospel According to St. Matthew is uh, one of the most interesting biblical, biblical epics you'll ever see. Sorry, I'm tripping over my mouth. You're fine. Yeah. Uh, I think The Last Temptation of Christ is interesting, too, because it actually like is a, a it's an incredibly modern take on, mm. on Christ as well. That's my favorite. I haven't uh, seen The Gospel According to St. Matthew, but that mm. is The Last Temptation of Christ. Mm. That's a favorite Jesus movie. That's the movie as someone who doesn't believe in the Bible. I look at that movie and go... That guy seems pretty cool. I would actually might actually follow that guy. That guy, that guy knows what he's doing. I I really like that movie. The casting is very strange. Harvey Keitel is Christ, weird yeah. in that role. Harvey Keitel plays Judas. Uh, Bar- I, I, Barbara Hershey plays Mary Magdalene. I like her in that. Yeah, she's, she's fine. fine but yeah. Yeah, Willem Dafoe's Christ is a little. I I odd like guy. it. Like it's he, weird. He's good. It's, yeah, but it's, it's an unusual choice. Weird idea. Yeah, um, anyway. I, I like I like this guy from uh, Gospel According to Saint Matthew better yeah. just because because he's a guy. Yeah, uh, and. It's really accurate to the word of, of St. Matthew. It's not this sort of amalgam of a bunch of Christ stories. Uh-huh. It doesn't focus on uh, one like notion or point in his life. It's just a straight telling of the Bible. And in fact, if, if you go to the Wikipedia page, it says, what is the plot of the gospel according to St. Matthew? It just says, see the book of Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> you can just read the book of Matthew and you get it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, it's not even a and whole course, book. <laughs> and, uh, you get through it pretty quick, actually. And you'll notice uh, that Pasolini is bringing a lot of uh, very legit politics into this because mm. he himself was a Marxist. Uh, he was very anti-capitalist. Hey, guess what? Christ was anti-capitalist. Very much so. Yeah. If if, if you see what, like a rich televangelist, guess what? Mm, they're, yeah. they're they're doing it wrong. One of the most famous things he ever said was it was easier to get like a camel through the head of a pin, the eye of a needle, yeah. than the eye of a needle, than to get a the, rich a person rich into heaven, heaven. Yeah. the gates of heaven. Yeah. That's that's not vague. Yeah, that's not easy to misinterpret. That's very clear. <laughs> if you have a lot of money, you might be fucking up. Mm. You might be doing it Ho- wrong. Hoarding wealth is not where it's at. It's no, about you, aiding those in need. Yeah, your wealth should be used. And those are know. in need because you because you're hoarding because wealth. you are hoarding wealth. Yeah, exactly. This is actually, you know, Christianity is actually an incredibly economic philosophy. Yeah, and I think and, uh, Pasolini saw that and he yeah. incorporated that into the narrative of his film. But mm. again, it, it's there's no be, there's no theatrics to this movie. It's, yeah. it's not. Uh, trying to go for something like Ben Hur, which is incredibly beatific. Yeah, uh, it's the opposite of the the Hollywood uh, epics from uh, you know about mm. a decade pre. I don't know. I guess this is only a few years after Ben Hur. This is sixty three. Yeah, that's around uh, the time. So yeah, Ben Hur was fifty nine. Uh, it, it's like an antidote to all of the all the Bible epics. If you're mm. tired of that sort of preachy version of a Hollywood Christianity, this is the the grounded version. Yeah. It if you're if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian, mm. you'll find that there is actually an interesting story, an interesting politic, and an interesting philosophy, all from this book, this 2,000-year-old book, yeah. that you know, and yet it's finding something fresh in it. How novel is that? <laughs> yeah. Pasolini re- Look, read the Bible, yeah. made a movie of it, and it's fresh. I don't subscribe to mm. the belief set in the Bible, but it's an interesting text. There's a lot of interesting stuff in it. Like it's yeah, well, it's, it's it's all over the place, really. I'll, I'll, it ends in the of... apocalypse. Not not even of mice and men does that. Like <laughs> if you want a book, like, like it's full of weird shit. 
Leviathans come up and plagues. It's all metaphorical. Donald Trump <laughs> shows up at one point. <laughs> Old tattoo. It, yeah. it, it was um. Oh. Which it was one of the Caesars that the author of Revelation is writing. I think about. it was Nero. I don't think it was Nero. Well, maybe it was Nero. I think it might have um, been Nero. Actually, some people yeah. are, have argued that Revelations was all a metaphor for a, what was, was going on in yeah, ancient Rome. Was, yeah. There's yeah scholars have gone, have gone through on it, and yeah. it's definitely it's it's a, a coded book. It's because no. it, it it's not meant been, to be taken quite so literally. No, no, there's yeah. not like actual goat monsters and coming yeah. coming around. All, but would have been cool. We see that yeah. in movies a lot. Like, yeah, those oh, are wait, the, that's the cool was stuff. Literal. Yeah, that's the cool stuff. That's when you get like Arnold Schwarzenegger in End of Days punching Satan. Very stupid Ma- movie. Makes for good cinema. I'll no, say it does that. not. I've seen End of Days. No, not, not End of Days. Okay. I mean the Book of Revelation. Okay, yes. Other than that, yes, I agree. Yeah, we, we got movies like The Omen out of it. That's fun. Yeah, that part's o- cool. Omen's a fun movie. Yeah. Not, 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 not a classy film, no, but it's and quite it's, good. And, and, and sketchy biblical interpretations, but <laughs> it's fun. Um, but yeah, I, I really want people I to seek out movie. the Gospel according to St. Matthew. It's kind of obscure, like I said, outside of yeah. film schools. It's a little obscure, but I think it's uh, quite an important movie. I think it's yeah. really exhilarating to watch. Fascinating, fascinating yeah. film. Do you want to know what my number one was? Is it The Godfather? No, it's actually Glenn or Glenda because I miscounted. Oh, oops. Oh, <laughs> that no. was my last one. I was actually saving it for my second to last. I was probably going to pick something classy, All right. like uh, Goodfellas or The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And then I realized that I, when I was writing down how many I had left, I had forgotten to write down uh, Ginger Snaps. Oh, okay. So I was like, oh, I so have that's two all left. ten of yours. That is all ten of mine. And so right. Glenn or Glenda is officially, somewhat accidentally, my pick for the best <laughs> movie that begins with letter G. And you know what? Mm. I'm fine with it. Sure, why not? I'm actually totally fine with it. Why not? Look, as as we say frequently, uh, these lists are they they serve as recommendations. They do, and you know we're we're not necessarily mm. trying to stage anything for posterity. Well, I, I think that's something that I I I noticed. I think out of this last year's sight and sound poll. Hmm. When it came out, it was much less for a lot of people about establishing or preserving canon and more about keeping our interest in cinema alive and just sort of cataloging what's fascinating us. Yeah. And I was thinking about how, what is the best? Is it the movie that I think is the best made or is it the movie that I'm most excited to talk about? Yeah. And I think I'm leaning in that direction at the moment. Now, there's nothing, though, that, that being said, Goodfellas is perfect. It's basically a perfect movie. I love that movie <laughs> to pieces. It's a great movie. But I don't have the passion for it that I do about some of the, a lot of the other films okay. that I have on my list. I would watch, if you put it on, I would watch it from beginning to end and I would say, what an incredible piece of cinema. And then afterwards I would be like, can we watch Galaxy Quest? Like, that's kind of where I'd be at. Yeah. So, um, I have a lot of great titles on my runners-up. Do you mind if I just start those? Uh, you yeah, just I, I, I got some runners-up as well. So okay, yeah, so ahead. yeah, Goodfellas is on there. Uh, Get Out is on there. Great movie. You don't right. need me to tell you that. Uh, a movie that I felt uncomfortable talking about for a long time because I was engaged in an enterprise with one of the actors from it, but now that's over now. All right. And although I'm still on good terms with them, I, I think it's probably okay for me to tell you that the guest fucking rules. <laughs> it, it slaps as the kids don't say anymore. Yeah, amazingly fun, very smart movie starring Dan Stevens and uh, Brendan Meyer, who I used mm. to do a trivia with. Uh, just a fucking great movie. Please see the guest if you haven't already. It, it is, uh, I've said this before, it's the best Captain America film. It's the best Captain America film. I think it's the best John Carpenter movie John Carpenter didn't make. That's also fair. Yeah. Um, let's see here. One of the best studio comedies in recent memory, Game Night. Oh, Game Night is hilarious. Fucking great. I love Game Night. Uh, one of the better sci-fi movies of the 90s, Gattaca. 
Uh, yeah, just a really yeah. solid, heady sci-fi piece. Love it to pieces. Uh, the original, uh, it's an animated short, but it had a live-action component, literally, Gertie the Dinosaur. Oh, that's a good choice. Gertie the oh, Dinosaur. I should put that on my list. That's a really interesting film. So the idea mm, was, it was like Winsor McKay. Yeah. Winsor McKay had an animated dinosaur. It was a big brontosaurus. And it would it was in black and white. It was nicely animated. And it would walk up to the screen and it would eat a tree. And Windsor McKay would stand next to the screen he, and interact a, with it. It was a live performance. Yeah. It would, he would, it would, he, yeah. So it was actually so like, like, it was like a combination hold, hold of elements. He'll hold something up to the screen at the right. It's like yeah. Rocky Horror Shadowcast. Yeah. He'd hold something up to the screen and then Gertie would be animated taking it out of his yeah, hand. Yeah, or, or would react to the things that he said. Yeah. And at one point, he actually like walks behind the screen and then he an animated version of him walks into the screen mm-hmm. and Gertie like picks him up and like throws him into the background or something to that effect. Um, fascinating, historically significant. Please see it; it's wonderful. It's hard to see in its original form, obviously, but you can mm. see how it was supposed to play out. I've, I've never seen it staged. I I've saw only it, ever seen it on video. I saw it like recreated like once when I was like younger oh, on like AMC or something like that. Did okay. a thing. It was really neat. Um, let's see here. Uh, ba 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 ba. Uh, Get Carter, the original Get Carter with Michael Caine, one of the best oh, neo noirs. Yeah. Fucking fantastic. Book, book movie, they call yeah. it. Uh, underrated uh, biopic of recent years, carried mostly by a great performance, but I think the editing is fantastic. Get on up. Oh, uh, yeah. Chadwick yeah. Boseman playing James, as, uh, James Brown. James Brown. A fucking incredible <clears throat> performance. It gets a little overlooked in, in some of his other filmography, but really see the movie. It's great. Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai kicks ass. Yeah. Uh, the original Ghost in the Shell is a really wonderful sci-fi. The Ghost of Mrs. Muir is a wonderful romantic uh, supernatural tearjerker. Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. Uh, Gothic, I am unnaturally in love with. The Ken Russell movie? (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people don't like this one, but it is about the, like, uh, uh, hallucinogenic, uh, the hallucinogenic fueled night when, uh, Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley and, uh, and and the other, Polidori, uh, wrote a bunch of, came up with a bunch of horror stories over the course of one night, and of course it was orgiastic and monstrous, and it's fucking great. I love that movie. Uh, quick double tie. It gets pretty lost pretty quick. I know, but I think it's part of its charm. Yeah, it's um, drunk and sloppy as a movie. Somewhat underappreciated sports movies, Goon and Goon, Last of the Enforcers. I, I didn't see Goon 2, but I, I like the first Goon. Goon 2 is as good yeah. as the first Goon. Okay. It's really, really good. Those are excellent and underappreciated sports movies. I really love from the pieces. Uh, speaking of David Fincher, Gone Girl is also excellent. I'm a big fan. Uh, Renoir's The Grand Illusion is excellent. Uh, the Great Dictator is excellent. Uh, Preston Sturge's uh, political comedy, The Great McGinty, is really, really wonderful. A movie I've been meaning to rewatch, and I think it might have been my top ten list if I rewatch it and it's as good as I remember, uh, is Gridlocked, starring Tim Roth, uh, Tandiwe you, Newton, you... and... Uh, uh, yeah, Tupac Shakur. You've recommended this before. It's all about uh, two guys. It's about three people that are in a band together. Uh, she ODs, and they decide they're going to use this as a moment to get into rehab today. And what they find out is that the bureaucracy surrounding rehab and any sort of government assistance is a Kafka-esque nightmare. And it's a really mm-hmm. dark comedy. And it's great, but I haven't seen it in a long time, and I don't want to oversell it in case it doesn't hold up as well as I remember. Uh, let's see. I'm a big fan of Grindhouse as a double feature. I think that's just a really great cinematic experience. Um, if you like Cannonball Run, please see Gumball Rally, which did it first, and I would argue a little better. <laughs> um, and I have a small, and this is not a, maybe a great movie, but I have a huge soft spot for Guys and Dolls with Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando. Oh, the, the movie is I love it. Not nearly as good as the actual musical. I think, I think it improves the ending. 
maybe a little bit. I think the ending, the ending is a little less, and then everyone became a better person. And I'm like, no. Mm. And also, I actually like the songs that they added. I think they, they work in the piece. I, I suppose so. If you've got Frank Sinatra playing Nathan Detroit, you give Nathan Detroit more songs. No, what you do is you cast Frank Sinatra as Sky Masterson, <laughs> you tell Mar- Marlon Brando to fuck off, and you get somebody charismatic as Nathan Detroit. <laughs> But you probably Nathan get Nathan so- Lane played Nathan Detroit in uh-huh. the 1992 revival of Guys and Dolls. Okay, I, I can't think nicely- of anybody better. Didn't he play nicely, nicely in another another one, another uh, 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 adaptation? Uh, uh, Broadway. I could have sworn he played nicely, nicely. At he some probably point. also played nicely, nicely yeah. at some point. But he, he played Nathan Detroit in that nice, the one you're familiar with. Nicely. Anyway, those are my, those are my runners nicely, up. Nicely, thank you. You got any others? Um, uh, I I also mentioned Gattaca. Uh, you mentioned mm. the ghost in Mrs. Muir. I mentioned the ghost in Mr. Chicken uh, <laughs> with Don Knotts. Oh, I wish that movie was it's, as funny as, it, as it seems it, to think it is. It's one of those, uh, another one of those inner kid kind it, of It's movies. very affable. Um, I just don't find it terribly funny. Uh, I'm very fond of The Great Escape. I know it's yeah. a you know, big war. Oh, my dad film. loved that movie. Yeah, that it's, it's, a, it's a good dad movie. It's a good motorcycle movie, too. That one jump over the barbed wire mm. fence is legendary amongst yeah, motorcycle yeah. dudes. Uh, I also mentioned The Guest. I also mentioned The Godfather. I also mentioned yeah. Goodfellas. Um, Spike Lee's Get on the Bus yeah, is a really movie. excellent movie. I feel like yeah. Spike Lee... Uh, has a lot of bangers people don't talk about. Yeah, that's like, a lot of his movies are really excellent, and I, just they get look, like nobody's even talking about *The Five Bloods* anymore. That's no, great that was fucking yeah. amazing. Holy shit, Daryl Lindo should have been Oscar nominated. Absolutely, he got screwed yeah. over. That wasn't fair. Uh, I mentioned Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Uh, I'm very my one of my favorite uh, James Bond movies is *Goldeneye*. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I I will send it to my top five or six. I uh, it's it's in my top two. Right? Okay, that that With, one. Uh, Goldfinger yeah. and um, mm. For Your Eyes Only. One yeah. of each of those. those for Your three, Eyes Only is underappreciated. Those are the three that's, best Bond that, movies. That, that's a cool Bond film. Yeah, no, no, not For Your Eyes Only. Um, yeah. Gone no, Baby, I like Gone, Gone Baby Gone. I also yeah. mentioned Gone Girl. Um, it, uh, What's up? I did put Jim Cotta on my right. <laughs> You're allowed. <laughs> it's a fun movie. I, I don't think it's quite... It's one of those movies where a lot of people like, welcome to the cult. And mm. then I watch it and I'm like, I like it fine, but I'm not going to be in the cult. I think I just, because I discovered Jim Cotta by accident. Ah, you discovered the honest way. Yeah. Like I was, I was like flipping through, excuse me, UHF stations. And I found like, I didn't even know what it was for a while. Was that a genuine cough or were you just like, you know, wink, wink, UHF stations. (laughs) That's how that sounded. You know, like Videodrome. No, um. (laughs) Sort of underground thing. Yeah. Uh, no, I was. That was a genuine cough. Okay. My, my throat. It just, dr- it just read. Funny. Drying out a little bit. It um, read funny. Yeah. No, I, I was watching. Yeah, some UHF station. I didn't know what it was. I wasn't planning yeah. on watching Jim Cotta, but I did. <laughs> I just. I felt like I discovered something really strange and fun. I understood even as a kid. It's like this. This is garbage. Yeah, it's but, very but stupid. Like uh, from the opening, they don't even hide it. It's yeah. like no, this is this is gonna be very stupid, mm. and you're gonna love it. But it, it's. It's very fun. Very enjoyable. It's a very fun film. I don't I don't mm. dislike it. I just I'm not passionate about it. Yeah. I can't bring it. I can't raise that kind of passion for yeah. Jim uh, And and f- for for Sydney Poitier alone, guess who's coming to dinner? <sighs> I, I uh, wish it was about Sydney Poitier. Yeah. Like he has a few interesting scenes. Yeah, he's um, he but, he's really the best part of that movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's an interesting film. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah it was it's, not far, way more they revolu- far more revolutionary at the time than it yes. is now, but uh it, it's interesting. I feel like yeah, there's... it's interesting to watch it in the historical context where you watch it like this was considered really, you know, confrontational mm-hmm. to some people yeah. at the time. And nowadays you watch it and I'm like, oh, this is really naive. 
It's yeah, yeah. yeah like they they were handling weird character well bits in that movie. Yeah, it's an odd film. I I think it's important to watch hmm. because this is what was considered daring well, at the I, Academy Awards. And you know, what, I, the what time. I find really revealing about Guess Who's Coming yeah. to Dinner is that it is the white man's story. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, Spencer Tracy. it's about it's Spencer about Tracy trying to overcome racism and yeah. uh, that kind of a narrative about the white man uh-huh. be and it was always a white male uh-huh. being presented with their own uh, intolerance and learning yeah. to be a little bit better by the end of the day and that's the important the thing. dominant conversation yeah. about race shit. in the united states no no it's fucking time. it's fucking frustrating it was it came from a place of trying to teach white people to have sympathy mm. rather than trying to elicit Change empathy the, from the entire audience trying to elicit yeah. empathy and also pointing out just sort of the largest systemic problems about institutionalized racism. Yeah, like the, 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 the idea was ra- racism, uh, like all the institutional stuff, is gone now. We have the civil rights movement, yeah. and it's taken care of. Fixed. So it's all yeah, fixed. We put a bandaid on that. Yeah. Isn't that great? It's all done, and now the only thing left is these like few racist people who are remaining. Yeah, like, just, sort of, just sort of weed out the last, the last, yeah, the like, last weird sentiments that yeah. yeah, some people have, but they're really good people. Yeah. yeah. And, Fuck you. <laughs> that was and, so naive at best <laughs> and, and really grossly cynical at worst that you could just get away with not doing more progressive change mm. and more aggressively attempting to change the industry mm. to actually reflect experiences of people who aren't white. Yeah. Instead, we'll tell your story through the perspective of white people. Great. Thanks. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> So, yeah. you know, re- recently we've been seeing, uh, I-, I saw the movie The Woman King, finally. I caught ah, up great on that movie. one. Yeah. yeah. Re- really fun. Uh, at its heart, just sort of like a pulpy thriller. It's, it's a brave heart know, kind of thing. It, yeah. it's, 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 it's big, it's, epic, it's cool more, on that level. It's more about the action than anything else. Yeah. Uh, Viola Davis, Jesus. Lashana yeah. Lynch. Fucking amazing. Fuck off. Yeah, yeah she's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to see her at every. Lashana Lynch should be she's, in every she movie needs, now. She's on the cusp. She's at this point now where I think yeah, like, she's waiting for that one huge role. Mm-hmm. If it were it, me, it'll, it'll come. If yeah. it were me, uh, I don't care Cast what they Wonder do. Wonder Woman. Cast, I tell, she'd be great, Wonder Woman. For me, you know, like she played 007 yeah. in No Time to Die. If it were me, and I were into charge of the James Bond franchise, here's what I do: just give it to Lashana Lynch. Well, a, I give it. If you give it to Lashana Lynch, and if, you're, if the Broccoli's are going to be dicks about it, which mm-hmm. they clearly want to be, here's what you do: you. Take the James Bond movies, do whatever the fuck you want with them. Hmm. You continue James Bond as a TV series, like like on Amazon. They have the rights to it. Right. Throw some money at it. But you continue the Daniel Craig universe, okay? And you have Ben Whishaw and you hmm. have Naomi Harris. And you bring Lashana Lynch back and you call it 007. Oh, there you go. And every few seasons or so, whenever an actor wants to cycle out... You get a new actor to be the new 007, and you can dramatically change the tone if you want, much like James Bond movies did, or much like Doctor Who does. Yeah. Oh, there's a new Doctor. Okay, cool. We're going to change the vibe a bit. So we're going to get someone who doesn't have Lashana Lynch's vibe. We're going to go into more of a Roger Moore angle for a little while or something like that. And you can kind of keep it alive and keep it going forever. It'd be great. But uh, I'd but, love to see her headline that. She'd be great. My, my point being... The, or give her the movies. I don't care. My, my point being, I like The Woman King. Yeah. Uh... I did enjoy it. It's, it's, it's not going to make my top ten list, but I do mm. like it a lot. I'm um, I'm debating whether it is because it's real. I think it's really yeah. great. Uh, but I, I appreciate that there was. They made a concerted effort not to have like the white guy come in and discover that stuff. Uh-huh. Like I'm going to go in and write a journal, and I'm I'm. It's like othering these people. Yeah. It's just about 
it does, it's, it's about, not about it's you. It's a homie. It's, it's not about you. Fuck you. Yeah. yeah it's not about not about us. It's about yeah. It's about other experiences. <laughs> anyway, that is it for the best movies that begin with the letter G. Anyway. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you uh, uh, for all of our patrons who voted for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, you can vote uh, right about now on the, our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, uh, for our next Iron List, which will air sometime in January. And since it's a new year, we decided uh, there'd be a bit of a theme. Of an anniversary theme. Yeah, so uh, now's, a, now's a good time to sort of eh, look back. It's 2023. Uh, let's go with the following options. You may select from the best movies of 2003, 20 years prior. The best movies of 1993. <laughs> you might be seeing a pattern. Mm. The best movies of 1983 or the best movies of 1973. And we'll cut it off there. 2013 was available, but it's recent enough that we, we were, you got the gist. We were podcasting at that point. Yeah, we, we, we made ourselves heard. I think it'd be more interesting maybe to go back a little bit further and, uh, and reevaluate uh, older films. Hmm. So those are your options. Very, very curious to see what you pick. And we will present our uh, individual top 10 lists for those, dec- uh, for those years. Sorry. Uh, sometime in January. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, We hope you have a wonderful new year. Uh, If you want to talk about anything we discussed in this podcast, you want to send in your own list, you want to uh, dispute something we said on this list, how dare you pick... Picking a film at random. Go Zoo! (laughs) You monsters! I don't know. Uh, You can send us an email. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us an actual physical piece of mail. Uh, Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565. Los Angeles, California, 90064. I'm losing my voice. Whitney's dying. Uh, We're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I got this. He is at Whitney (laughs) Seibold. Thank you. And uh, that's the list. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.